This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. Season three, Art of Darkness. I think officially begins now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very right. good. Season three, season three of three so far. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> that would make sense, would yeah. it not? Yeah, yeah. That's right. season three, 2023. I'm Kevin Kautzman with my very good friend, the the Captain Kurtz, the Colonel Kurtz <laughs> of podcasting with unusual methods, Brad Kelly. <laughs> How are you doing, Kevin? I have never been better, Brad. I love doing core episodes like this one. We are starting season three with what I am sure will be a certified banger. Mm. We felt we had to finally get around to Joseph Conrad. Yeah. Why would we, Art of Darkness, need to do <laughs> Joseph Conrad, one wonders. I think it's all very obvious, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's going to be obvious to most people listening to this, but if it's not, Joseph Conrad is the author of, and I'm not going to give away too much here, but Joseph Conrad is, the, of course, the author of uh, Heart of Darkness, from which we draw our, is it namesake if it's not exactly the same? I suppose uh, it, It's an inspiration for the name of the show. It has yeah. a certain ring to it. I was I was out recently uh, and sitting, getting getting dinner. I was sitting at a, at a bar in St. Paul and I had a book with me. I had Heart of Darkness with me, of course, because we're getting ready for the book club for mm -hmm. Patreon. You want to go to artofdarkpod.com slash book dash club to see our list. And of course, we're starting with Heart of Darkness. And uh, the, the gal next to me was a librarian. 
Oh, nice. And she Very was, good. yeah. And she had a book of her own. She was reading Louise Eldritch and we got to talking a little bit. And, and I had to say, cause we got to talking about a heart of darkness and her eyes just kept, because I was, you know, her, her friend who had maybe had a few I was like, well, what's it about? And, and, <laughs> and, and I'm like, mm, great question. And she, the librarian looked over to me and I kind of gave a little expository answer that wasn't uh, just a uh, surface level because of course, Brad in the telegram, t.me slash art of dark pod you've been giving all of these like deep deep cuts into and we'll get into it i'm sure but yeah anyway she she got to the point where she's like because of course i had to mention the podcast right uh and uh, she said well this is where you give me your details and i said here here and she's like no no no, you need to write them down and i was like i I had my copy of the book oh i don't have it right with me but i had my copy of the book and i just covered the h and the e (laughs) (laughs) i said this is the name of our podcast very handy it It is was it was a good good prop so anyway hey if she's listening if our librarian you know shout out to uh to librarians all around the world we appreciate you uh so yeah could not be more excited thanks for everybody who's coming on board now uh, mm-hmm. on our little our little steamship into <laughs> the the depths of what is human and what is yeah. inhuman in the human uh yeah. that was a mouthful mm-hmm. uh what and and of course we've already said who we're covering we're covering joseph yes. conrad and i think we gotta yep and i think yeah i was gonna just i was just gonna ask you the question kevin we're not gonna miss it on the bingo card this time what do you know about joseph conrad is he Polish? I believe he was Polish. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote Heart of Darkness. Uh, he wrote one other tome that the name of which I will not be uttering on the on the pod. <laughs> We're going to talk that, about um, that. One. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's talk around it. Brad. Get on the get on the buzzer. Get late. Mm-hmm. Get ready on the buzzer. Yeah. And uh, the Narcissus. And mm-hmm. uh, I I know that he is a, a, a rare bird in that he wrote in a second language now what are considered masterpieces, which is an incredible thing to to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike many of our subjects, uh, because we're featuring him in the book club, I'm getting kind of ahead of things. And uh, for those who know the format, you might know the format of the show, but Brad and I take turns on these core episodes. So it's Brad's turn to teach us about the life of Joseph Conrad. But I have been reading Heart of Darkness, and I think it probably gives me some insights into some personal experiences he had, I would imagine, drawing from his time in the Belgian Congo uh, and and potentially sailing from London. Uh, and much beyond that, I am afraid I, I can't say, but I'm also pleased to say because that means I get to come along for the ride right. and learn all about the life of Joseph Conrad on Art of Darkness tonight. Excellent. Yeah, that is that is all true. Um, wrote Heart of Darkness, Polish fellow. We're going to talk about that background. Um, English was not his first language. We're going to talk about that because it's key, I think, here to understanding con- who Conrad was. Not only who Conrad was, but the contributions he made to literature and, and how he was able, how he was kind of able to use that. And also the challenges that presented, which you can imagine is pretty difficult. Um, and you're right. Heart of darkness is, um, it's not quite auto fiction, but there's a lot of details in there that Conrad lived through. And of course he's a great writer. So he was able to make tremendous hay, but it was also, I mean, he was also in the Belgian Congo in the 18, uh, 1880s, 1890s. So you can imagine, 
uh, pretty intense time uh, and place uh, coordinating that four dimensions, right? Yes. I can about imagine. And then, then of course, (laughs) there is some controversy about the the treatment of the subject. The book is uh, obviously massive. Mm -hmm. Is it a novella or a novel technically? I think, well, I never know where the breakdown is between the two, but it's quite short. Um, you know, it's, it's short, but it's dense it, it, and it carries metaphor. It is heavily laden with with metaphor and wonderfully so. And of course, it's a great river novel, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I'm sure it was it was preceded by uh, Mark Twain, by mm-hmm. by all of that business. And I'm sure there's probably a long history of such writing and maybe we'll get into it if not maybe we'll get into it on the the book club with uh mm-hmm. with friend of the show aaron Gwynn. uh very interesting and uh i think maybe we'll talk i don't know what we'll talk about tonight in terms of the critical reception a- during his lifetime but then also the reassessment of it but of course for those who don't know the obvious uh a little movie called apocalypse now is uh based on uh heart of darkness mm-hmm. and i think we're gonna squeeze in an apocalypse now watch party at some point yeah we'll here. get we'll get that in here in the first part of season three um it, it, yeah and i think that's that's the fact that it kind of the story resurfaces in apocalypse now in a sort of a different format a different time a different place to me that always lended the heart of darkness story something almost shakespearean you know or mm. or like the odyssey you know they're always films are always retelling these ancient myths and 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 sometimes not and not so um not so disguised right we go mm. we see oh brother where art thou right is a retelling right. of and and conrad almost with apocalypse now almost gets to have that same kind of status, it feels like. Like I think you could retell. Um, our friend Astral and I had a conversation on Twitter about how um, William Gibson's. Um, oh, what's the great William Gibson? Necro, uh, Neuromancer. Neuromancer. I had Necromancer in my head. That's not it. Neuromancer. Neuromancer is basically Heart of Darkness, but instead of uh, the Belgian Congo, it's a cyberpunk dystopia, and Kurtz is a is a evil AI, right? Hmm. So. This sure. pattern is something that that Conrad nailed and is something you can repeat throughout literature and film and all that. But anyway, I digress. I'm getting so excited about Heart of Darkness, I can barely contain myself. Well, this is going to be <laughs> exciting. And uh, it begs the question, what are we going to talk about on the After Dark episode for Patreon? Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. What's, yeah. What are we going to go into on that? We're going to talk about a couple of things. One, The big thing we're going to talk about is the time that Conrad tried to kill himself. Oh. The other thing we're going to talk about is what Conrad thought of two other writers. That's Dostoevsky and Herman Melville. Um, mm. So, I, and I think those are pretty interesting. It's kind of interesting to see how he related to those two folks. So um, let me just, I'm just going to get into it now for people who maybe aren't as familiar with Joseph Conrad, you know, um, I hope this, this is going to be, this is going to be educational for you. And I think it's going to be entertaining and interesting as well, but let me just give you a kind of a primer on the status of Conrad, how he's considered in the literary world. And I'm just going to read a quick paragraph from the um, the uh, Cambridge Companion to Joseph Conrad, right? This is the sort of handbook they put out with all the critical necessary critical readings and excerpts and things like that. And this is how they talk about it. Quote, Conrad is one of the defining founders of literary modernism, and his influence has been acknowledged by writers as different from him and from each other as Andre Gide, Ralph Ellison, Graham Greene, 
uh, Borges, V.S. Nayapal, William S. Burroughs, and Italo um, Calvino, to name only a few. Some of his works have been taken as models for the development of whole new literary genres. The Secret Agent and Under Western Eyes were among the very first studies of spies who cannot come in from the cold. Nostromo is the first uh, uh, panoramic epic of South American colonialism, and Heart of Darkness is frequently invoked as a cultural token signifying the horror at the heart of modern Western civilization. The life and works of Conrad have inspired films, journeys, sculptures, comic books, Conrad societies and journals, and well over 1,000 academic books and articles, right? So this is a major, this is a major literary figure, even if you've read some, some of it years ago and didn't quite get it or like it, right? This is somebody that must be contended with when you're talking about sort of the history of the history of literature. So we're going to get into it. Um, Joseph Conrad, Kevin, as you said, Polish, but... We're going to talk a lot about that because it's more complicated than when we say right now somebody's from Poland. It's There's things happening in the background. We're going to get into that. Joseph Conrad is born Josef Theodor Conrad uh, Korzynowski. And I apologize. There's going to be some Polish names in here that I'm probably not going to get exactly right, but I'm, I'm doing my best. Um, he's born December 3rd, 1857, and he dies on August 3rd, 1924. He was born in the city of Berdichev, I believe that's right, Berdichev, which is um, not in what is now called the Ukraine, and at that time was part of the Russian Empire, and much previously had been part of the Kingdom of Poland, right? So he's a Poland, Pol he's a Pole in the Ukraine in Russia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nesting right. dolls. We have nesting, nesting geopolitical uh, dolls going yeah, on. Yeah, Matroshka. Yeah, right. And so right yeah. now, the play, the town that he's born in, is dead center in 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 the nation of Ukraine. Hmm, interesting. Um, yeah. So now, <clears throat> of course, one of the most fascinating parts of the the Conrad uh, legend um, is, as you mentioned, Kevin, at the beginning, is the fact that he was not a native English speaker. We're going to get into that in some depth because it's going to we want to know well, what did he speak and how many languages did he speak and all of that. We're going to we're going to get there. Um, th this is the thing. So but to get to that point, we got to get some Polish history out there. And Kevin, I don't know how good your Polish history is. Um, uh, pretty, I'm not putting you on the spot. Weak. No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> I, I I stayed in Greenpoint for a little while in, in New York. Okay. okay. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I'm ashamed to say I don't know that much. Uh, yep. Yeah. Same mm -hmm. same here. Before I started this research, I, I really knew very very little. Um, and and you know, I, and I guess you could say that about most spots in the world. But but for products of American public yeah, schools, exactly people. right, yep, exactly. Yep. Now mm. for po po our Polish friends who may be listening to this, if I'm getting something wrong, get at me on Twitter. I'm doing my best here, but I think it's necessary to understand who Conrad is. I'm going to try to give this context, and I hope I'm not stepping on any toes. Um, so, what was what we call Poland, the Kingdom of Poland, came about in the year 1024 A.D. Okay. Now, after this and the ensuing decades of this kingdom coming in, uh, ensuing centuries, really, it'd be attacked and invaded by everyone from the Swedes, the Tartars, the Hungarians, the Turks, and the Russians, who are sort of the historical uh, enemy, I guess you might say, of the Poles, right? Um, 
where we start to get a sense of the cultural relevance for our story, for the Joseph Conrad story, is around 19, uh, excuse me, is around 1772. At this point, Frederick the Great of Prussia and Maria Theresa of Austria conspired to prevent Russia from controlling all of Poland by signing a treaty with Catherine the Great of St. Petersburg to divvy up about 30% of Poland between them. So you can have just a little bit of Poland as a treat. As a treat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, this is what this is what's interesting is Conrad comes from sort of that milieu. And then later he sees a similar kind of like almost nonsensical divvying up in Africa. Like, who are you people to even divvy this? It doesn't belong to you. You know, it's almost it's it's almost an echo of the same sort of human uh, societal tendency. Right. Mm. Um, OK, so couple decades after this agreement between, you know, quote unquote agreement between Prussia and Austria and and uh, and Russia, um, what remained of Poland signed a new constitution. And it looked from the outside like, uh oh, Poland is getting itself together, like mm. it's going to try to get in, a, get in a, you know, revitalize its economy and we're going to have to actually contend with it. So what happened was Prussia and Russia took action and seized a huge chunk on the east of Poland, just took it. Prussia took, or sorry, uh, Russia took a huge chunk of the east of Poland and Prussia took a huge chunk of the west. And what was left of Poland was basically a landlocked nation that was only about a third the size of the original kingdom of Poland, right? So you just- Right, right. you will never have an empire. Right, right. We are shutting it down, yeah. Right, you are part of these empires. right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, it didn't quite stay this way. And I'm going to talk about somebody who's not really part of the Conrad story, but I didn't know about him and everybody should know about him. This guy named Tadeus uh, Kosciusko, and I'm going to mis I'm mispronouncing that. I'm sure it's t uh, the excuse me. The last name is K-O-S-C-I-U-S-Z-K-O. A little tricky for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, his birth year is 17. I'd like to buy a vowel. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> It's a yeah, tough it's a one. Tough, I tough one. It's even one I looked up and like you can, you know, pronounce a name on YouTube mm -hmm. or whatever. And it was like, nope, still don't get it. <laughs> All right. Right. Yeah. Um, so 17, he was born 1746, dies 1817. This guy is fascinating. He would fight, he fought in the American Revolution. Okay. Also became a national hero of Belarus, France, and Lithuania. So he started as a soldier, became a military engineer. Um, and in America, he became a colonel in the Continental Army, right, during the American Revolution. And then a decade later, he goes back to Poland and leads an uprising against the Russian Empire. Busy now, man. Busy man. Total badass, right? Unfortunately, you know, you've got your 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 sort of Poland is reduced to this kind of scrap of land. It can't, frankly... It can't contend with the Russian Empire, frankly. It just can't do it. No, no matter how much willpower you have and national pride you have, it's just not going to happen. So the the uprising mostly led by this uh, Kosciusko guy who would later go back to the United States and become friends with Thomas Jefferson and leave in his will would leave all of his money to the education of American slaves. Right. Just a hmm. very interesting guy. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Um. So anyway, after his failed uprising, the Russian Empire comes in and just squashes it. It's no more Poland, right? And there would not be a place on the map called Poland 
for 123 years after that, right? So this is where Conrad is born. This is Poland that Conrad is born into, which is now the, the specific place is now now Ukraine. Ukraine. Right. Mm. He is ethnically um, a Pole, though. And that's how he would identify and particularly his family would identify. Now, um, the Catholics. Yes. Yes. Yeah, they were Catholic. yeah he was yeah, Catholic. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. So now the, the one true whole. Thing. Right. <laughs> First one of the year. Yeah, it doesn't hey, take long. To we got to celebrate. There we go. Okay. All right. Yes. Bingo. Check. Keep We're those out. bingo cards out. <laughs> now, the reason I'm telling all of this is, is, is I, I wanted to take this big view of Conrad, especially when we come, when we talk about somebody who's from the sort of non-English speaking world, a non-American artist or non, um, you know, again, non-English speaker. He would come to become he would become one of the great English novelists, of course. But um, I always take this as an opportunity, like, let's learn a little history. And in this case, it happens to be profoundly important to Conrad's story. And that's because his family was deeply involved in the history of Poland in the years leading up to his birth. Um, uh, his, let's see, his paternal grandfather um, fought as fought for Napoleon as a cavalry lieutenant and would later die in a Polish uprising. Um, uh, let's see, would yeah, would die in the uprising. I think no, he would be involved in an insurrection in 1830 and then die in a later insurrection in the 1860s, which we're going to talk it's about. Right, that's his grandfather. What, well, yeah, what do you call a gathering of insurrections? Yeah. It's a lot <laughs> of insurrecting. It is right, yeah. and his... we need to bring back more insurrection. Well, actually, wait a minute. Oh, oh. <laughs> I want to disavow. Disavow. we're on YouTube now, by the way, and please, right. please, everybody, subscribe on youtube to pump our numbers and uh you know channel your insurrection energy to youtube.com slash at art of dark pod go right. on brent yes yes no thank you that's good so uh Woo! <laughs> almost okay shake it out uh, all right yeah. <laughs> so, now okay so to further understand the the position of the conrad family technically the core uh the korzanowski family i hope i'm getting that right hold on hold on Yep, yep, yep. Korzanowski family. Yep, yeah, hundred um, percent. Uh, he, we have to understand there were basically where he was sort of born and raised. There was basically four groups of people. There was the Russian-speaking Orthodox governing class. There were the 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 group below them was sort of the intellectuals, the landowners, the estate managers. The and they were all Roman. They were Roman Catholics, and they all spoke Polish. This is where Conrad's family's from. Then below that, there's the Ukrainian peasants and servants. These people were members of the Eastern uh, Uniat or Uniat Church, and then and then there was also not below but sort of beside, I guess, was a merchant class which was primarily Yiddish speaking Jews. So this is this is Conrad's milieu. Are these four groups? They all speak different. They speak four different languages. None of them English. Um, <laughs> Conrad would later claim that he didn't know how to speak or read Russian, and then other people like figured out that that was not really true mm. um because uh, he was always pushing against anything it was like a an pride type thing mm -hmm. yeah right okay. um yeah he would say he didn't he didn't even know he didn't even know what the russian alphabet looked like which is essentially impossible um <laughs> <laughs> um uh so conrad's family was he, in this this um 
Roman Catholic, Polish-speaking class. But even within that, there's this old class of like quasi-nobility called the Szlachta. And uh, this is sort of, I guess, not quite the aristocracy, but just below the aristocracy. Um, and let me read you a little bit about this class from um, a book by Norman Davies called Heart of Europe. Okay, so give me just a second here. I got sure, a lot sure, of sure. I got a lot of books on this one. We're going to learn all about the Schlachta. The Schlachta. Yeah. So, um, and here's the thing about the Schlachta, and and this isn't this isn't my opinion. Okay, this is coming from Norman Davis, but I want us to understand th- this isn't an American classing of people. We don't have groups like this. So I was curious about what was what this was all about. This is from Davies. Of all the products of Polish life before the partitions, um, the Polish nobility, the Szlachta and all their works might seem to have been the most discredited. The Szlachta's knightly code did not help them to fight and repel the Republic's enemies. Their peacock pride and a supposedly exclusive ancestry was grotesquely unsuited to their miserable decline. Their social ideas of brotherly love and equality ill-fitted their continuing support for serfdom. The political philosophy of their, quote, golden freedom resulted in common anarchy. The Schlachta were the laughing stock of Europe, the butt which every radical wit from Defoe to Cobden could mock. If in Carlyle's cried cruel world, excuse me, if in Carlyle's cruel words, their noble republic was a beautifully phosphorescent rot heap, then they were the hmm. parasites who swarmed upon it. So, how do you really hindsight, feel? Yeah, right. Yeah, in <laughs> yeah. hindsight, it's sort of like the Schlachta again. This is interpreting Norman Davies and some other things. It was sort of like it was a class that hadn't really um, hadn't really resisted the empire in a real way, and then had sort of taken advantage to the extent that they could after the partitions, after they became part of the Russian Empire. And it was sort of like, well, the crap from the Russians rolls down to us and the crap from us is rolls down to everybody else. Right. I see. So mm-hmm. and again, and, and were those were those Polish speaking Catholics yes. sort of like kind of an uh, uh, upper middle class or like a lower elite tier of right. old nobility? So not middle right. class, but it would be OK. I see. Yeah. Sort of mm-hmm. upper middle class. Right. And all of their money was. Honestly, a lot of it was from sort of previous generations, right? Like not necessarily right. they weren't they weren't they weren't uh, they weren't the 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 engine of the economy by any sense. Yeah, middle class yeah. of any kind is probably the wrong word to mm-hmm. apply, but kind of old money, but parasitical. Mm-hmm. And okay, and still mm-hmm. trying to cling to that that reputation and that arist- arist- aristocratic sort of position. <laughs> yeah, right? we don't have anything yeah. like that in the United no, States. No, I don't know yeah. what that would be mm-hmm. about, right? So okay, I I want and again I wanted to get a lot of this out here, and there's, I've got more too because there's more for about this this background. Um, I wanted to get this out here because I wanted England claims Conrad right as a writer, ah. and I and I wanted to color this as saying, well, sure, okay, he's English. He he lived in England for a lot most of his life, um, and yet we can't we can't forget this other stuff in his right. history, right? Sure. Um we're going to lie uh, back and think of Poland. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And I wanted to say something about um a quote about him and I'm going to have a few quotes from other writers and people about Conrad, but one that I want to give you right now. This is Ezra Pound who said uh, who said of Conrad, he was the bringer of light of a European point of view into the black bog of Britain. Mm, that is that Yes, based on what I've read. Hmm, very interesting. Right. Yeah. 
So, okay. Now here's another person that we need to know. We talked about that uh, Tadius guy who fought Belarus and the American Revolution and led a Polish uprising and all of that. There's another man who is maybe not as heroic, but is uh, comparably important in Polish revolutionary politics of the 19th century. And that man happens to be Joseph Conrad's father. Okay. Oh. Joseph oh, Conrad. Oh, we got some we got some blue checks in the wiki. <laughs> That's right. We do. We definitely do. Now, at this point, Apollo Korzenowski, Conrad's father's most important thing in history is being Conrad's father. But during most of Conrad's life, that was not actually the case. Um, he was born, Apollo was, in 1820, current day Ukraine, would study oriental languages and literature and law at St. Petersburg. Um and a man who knew him well described him like this. And oh, I should mention, I'm reading here from the great biography by Jeffrey Myers, I think published 1991 or 1992, simply called Joseph Conrad. It's it's very strongly written biography. Um, if you want to write the definitive biography of a person, just that's the name. That you're, is the name. You're coming out swinging. <laughs> Joseph Conrad. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. it. Yeah, who are you gonna you, now? You gotta if you're gonna write a biography of Conrad, you gotta come up with something else now, right? Joseph Conrad, the other biography, <laughs> right? Part two, electric Boogaloo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the URL is available. Uh, you're not gonna have any problem getting the dot com, right? Okay, so this is a description of Apollo Korzenowski by somebody who knew him. Quote, in our part of the country, he had the reputation of being very ugly and sarcastic. In fact, he was not beautiful nor even handsome, but his eyes had a very kind expression and his sarcasm was only verbal of the drawing room type, for I have never detected any in his feeling or in his actions. Open hearted and passionate, he had a sincere love of people in his deeds. Uh, sorry, excuse me. He had a sincere love of people in his deeds. He was impractical, often, often even helpless uncompromising in his speech and writing. He was frequently over-tolerant in everyday life. He also had two sets of measures, one for the weak and ignorant, the other for the mighty of this world. Um, so he was an idealist, right? Um, and he was deeply proud of being a Pole in a place where Poland didn't exist anymore, uh, at the time anyway, right? Still culturally alive, but 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 not able, not autonomous, not sovereign. Um, Apollo marries a woman named uh, Eva Bobrowski, also from the Schlachta class, um, who is the only surviving daughter in a family of six sons. This marriage was highly disapproved of because Apollo had no occupation, owned nothing, and seemed lazy. Now, Apollo the Neat. Yeah, a little you bit. Are, yeah, <laughs> little that bit. is a heck of a name to give your son. It's uh, intense, right? Yeah, that's yeah. a very intense name. It mm. really is. Um, now, of course, he wasn't lazy. He was a poet and an activist. Um, anyway, so in 1855 <laughs> or thereabouts, <laughs> after the death. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm just teasing. He was nothing a great more, man. Nothing more to say. Right. Yeah. Right. In uh, 1855 or thereabouts, remember Conrad's born in 1857. Uh, this is. Shortly after the death of Tsar Nicholas I, Apollo becomes the prime mover behind a secret society called the Trinity, um, which opposed conciliation to Russia and instead urged active resistance. One of its biggest things was a newspaper and other publications largely written by Apollo 
um, that was trying to nourish the resistance and sort of keep alive the flame of Polish nationality, right? Because you can imagine over generations, you know, you get crushed and you still have your national identity, even though you have no autonomy, right? Two, three, four generations go by and that that sort of that starts to get washed out a little bit culturally. Right. And so Apollo's thing was, you know, he can't he's not going to lead an uprising, but maybe we can sort of keep the Polish heartbeat going. Right. Until the time is right. Um, they moved to um, when Conrad was born or just before he was born, they moved to this Berdychai place in, in modern day Ukraine, be closer to the Conrad's maternal side. Eva gives birth. Um, they take Conrad's name, which is not his last name. His last name is Korzanowski. His his they give him the name Conrad with a K um, after this. Um, because fictional- it's metal. It's more, it's way more metal, way yeah. more metal. <laughs> right. They take it from, they take it from, there's a, there's a, a character in a Polish patriotic poem by Adam Mik- uh, Mikiewicz named Conrad Wallenrod. Right. Mm. And they give, they give, this is what they call it. When jo- Joseph's a little boy, his family calls him Conrad. That's his, that's basically his name. Um, would they and, have pronounced it Yosef? He would. It's it's Yosef yeah. Conrad. Yeah, J O J O Z E F. Yosef or Joseph or Jo. I think it might be more like Joseph, but not the the American J. You know. Um, and for a pole, if you were a pole and you heard somebody, a little boy, and his name was Conrad, you would that would symbolize to you that he was like an anti-Russian fighter. It's like. It's it's a poetic reference that everybody would have at that time. Right. Interesting. So, so to yeah. us, it doesn't mean that much. But right. I'm yeah, I'm preparing to name if I am blessed with another son, he will be named Vladimir. <laughs> I'm OK. I'm not... <laughs> of course, of course not. But yes, I mean, that would yeah, it would be very interesting to, to think about, like, you know, what what names? Yeah, that. that OK, anyway. Yeah, it's like if know. you name I mean, if you name your son um, Abraham. Ah, so Abraham, is that even right? I can't sure. think of exactly what it would mean in America. You know, well, but. it would suggest a certain religiousness, possibly, and you know, could mm-hmm. mean there's a lot of things that it can mean. But I, I, I take, I take your meaning. So the yeah. the, the name Conrad has a very particular, uh, you know, sense about it at the time. Very right, curious. and and notice that he later, even though Conrad would reduce his change his name to a more English sounding name, he kept that part of it. Right. Mm, he didn't right. keep some truncated version of Korzanowski. He right. kept Conrad. All yeah. my daughters are going to be named Karen. <laughs> Can you imagine? Right. Just a oh, squadron God. of like little Vladimir's and Karen's <laughs> running around in a family. <laughs> just just <laughs> insufferable. Yeah. 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 Managers would fear you. You'd be you'd get kicked out of every Costco from here to Utah. <laughs> <laughs> it says online the yeah. price is these eggs are <laughs> Karen relax right relax. Vladimir is standing yeah. there standing <laughs> there and attracts you uh, we like to paint a little picture on Art of Darkness we like to have a little fun yeah why not why not we're getting we're gonna get dark here in a second so we should have our laughs now now quick I want to read a poem that Apollo Conrad's father wrote for little Conrad when Conrad was born. So this is by Conrad's father and translated into English, obviously. Bless you, my little son, be a pole with an exclamation point. Though foes may spread before you a web of happiness, renounce it all. 
love your poverty. Baby, son, tell yourself, you are without land, without love, without country, without people. While Poland, your mother is in her grave, for only your mother is dead, and yet she is your faith, your palm of martyrdom. This thought will make your courage grow. Give her and yourself immortality. It's a big, it's a big, heavy thing to put on your son, right? That That is some, that's some nationalism. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no. Apollo was absolutely, you know, he was, he was, he was, and we're gonna get, we're gonna get into this right now, actually, because in 1861, when Conrad is about four years old, Apollo is arrested by the Russian police in a prison for seven months in the Warsaw Citadel, right? Um, and this is one of Conrad's first memories: is his father being in prison as a political prisoner. I'm gonna read it to you from the Meyer biography. Um, uh, yeah, as I said, in Warsaw, autumn 61, Apollo um, was arrested. His extreme views were not generally accepted, and he narrowly escaped deaths at the hand at the hands of a terrorist group, the Stilettists. Conrad later objected to a critic, uh, probably the left wing Edward Garnett, calling him the son of a revolutionist and unconvincingly insisted that no epithet could be more inapplicable to a man with such a strong sense of responsibility in the region of ideas and action. But Apollo, one of the most radical red conspirators, clearly advocated violent revolt and national insurrection. Um, that oh, actually, the, the stilettists. That yeah. is an incredible band name. <laughs> Isn't it good? That right? slaps. Yeah. So what were they? What was that That group? They were against the, the Polish nationalists. I, I'm assuming uh, so. I didn't really look yeah. into the mm-hmm. stilettists, actually. Well, and when but, you say yeah. red, you don't mean that doesn't mean communist there. No, I mean, this kind of predates anything identify, anybody yeah, of course, identifying. Of course. Yeah, what am I, yeah, right? what am I saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was mm-hmm. sort of the red and the white. And I don't totally understand this, but I think the white was sort of a, the uh, imperial at the time okay yeah right interesting Hmm. yeah um now here is conrad's one of conrad's very first memories the three-year-old conrad remembered standing in the large prison courtyard and looking at his father's face staring at them through a barred window though apollo's conspiratorial comrades offered to help him escape he refused to consider this ostensibly because he did not want them to risk their lives for his sake but also because he wanted and welcomed this martyrdom for poland right his dad was like maybe he's lazy maybe he's you know not capable of doing it but he was for real like this was he was he he picked a hill to die on and he was willing to die on it if it came to that right um now after a protracted waiting for trial and a court date etc apollo and his wife eva who in her letters had her her letters had helped to incriminate apollo and kind of incriminated her as a sort of aider aiding and abetting um, they were they were both sentenced to indefinite exile in the village of uh, Volugda, 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 I think is how you say it, which is almost Siberia. So you might as well just imagine that they were exiled to Siberia, right? It's a journey of a th- over a thousand miles on today's roads. Like if you had Oof. to drive it now, it's a thousand miles. Rough. Um, and Conrad, little Conrad, about five years old, had to go with them. Ooh, so Conrad right. was exiled to Siberia as a five-year-old boy, right? Um, you made the you made a bad joke online. Now you got to go move to uh, way out there in Alaska. Right? And your dad, your dad, uh, you know, wrote some some uh, offensive poetry. Right. 
Yeah. Now you're living, now you're living in the middle of nowhere. Right. Whoa. And, uh, little Conrad would almost die on this trip. He'd get very, very sick. Um, he got so sick that Apollo, as they were traveling, sort of made a stand was like, we're not going anywhere. They were gonna, you know, it could have led to an execution and in in, out on the road someplace, but if they're being ushered a... there, of course. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're not by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whoa. Apparently, a doctor kind of came in the nick of time to help get some kind of medication or treatment to little Conrad. Um, Eva, Conrad's mother, becomes deathly ill on this trip as well. That was tuberculosis, which eventually would kill her. Um, and anyway, after a month on the road, they arrive in um, Volugda, which I'm going to read um, Apollo's description of this. Um, this. Again, this is Apollo talking. Quote, what is Volugda? A Christian is not required to know. Volugda is a huge quagmire stretching over three, uh, over two miles, cut up with parallel and intersecting lines of wooden footbridges, all rotten and shaky under one's feet. This is the only means of communication for the local people. A year here has two seasons, white winter and green winter. The white winter lasts nine and a half months, the green winter two and a half. Now is the beginning of the green winter. It has been raining continually for 21 days, and it will do so till the end. During the white winter, the temperature falls to minus 25 or 30 degrees, and the wind blows from the White Sea. The air stinks of mud, birch tar, and whale oil. This is what we breathe. All one does is pray with confidence and blind faith, although common sense says that prayers from here can never reach heaven, and that God always looks another way, or else the view of the world would become too repugnant for him. Wow. And I, I just want to clarify, this is on the other side of, of Russia from Siberia. This is in the West, north yeah. of Moscow. Uh, right. But it may right. as, at that time, it may it's, as well be. Right. It's, you're, you're approaching the Arctic Circle. Like it's getting oof. into. Right. Right. That's why I said just like it might as well, because I think sure. most people's conception of Russia is just like super cold, like North Pole with tre- mm-hmm. with some trees. That's basically where they're living. Um and they lived there for a while. Now, in 1863, while they're in exile, there's another Polish uprising. Um, and it wasn't completely uninspired by the work and the, the quote unquote martyrdom of Apollo. Um, his name was his name was remembered by the people who were leading this Polish uprising. He was, you know, he wasn't the only guy, but poets never mm-hmm. give up. <laughs> you right. never know what might happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, this re- uprising, of course, was suppressed like all of the others. Uh, actually, just interesting historical, literary historical side note. Uh, this particular uprising was suppressed with a little help from Vladimir uh, Nabokov. Nabokov, right? What, what is it? Nabokov? Nabokov. Na- Nabokov. Nabokov. Uh. Uh, Nabokov's grandfather, who was the aide de camp to the Tsar's brother. So ah. just interesting kind of thing, right? Now, hmm. Conrad's paternal grandfather would die in this rebellion. Another of his uncles would die in this rebellion. And a second uncle, the hunchback uncle Hillary, would survive, but he would be pushed into actual Siberian exile where he would like live out in freezing cold misery for 15 years until he would die as well. Um the remaining Kor- uh, Korzhanowski fortunes, such as they were, were seized by the Russian government. So I hope this is dark enough for the Art of Darkness fans. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is definitely probably top five of so, 
of childhoods. Actually, this might this might be t- it's top three because I think what happened with uh, Anais Nin yeah. is pretty wicked dark. But yeah. in terms of the the bros we've covered on yeah. Art of Darkness, is there, there any darker childhood? Uh, of those we've covered so far i mean stuff has happened to people for sure but man when you just think about like literally your kid the year you would be we're in kindergarten conrad was in like the frozen tundra in a work camp right right right. insane rough okay yeah um and he didn't you know he didn't speak the language it's not like he had little friends he was running around with like this is a the deprived and everything has been stripped existence. from you and your family and your mm-hmm. life hangs by a, a razor's edge yeah uh, even yeah. even if suddenly even if suddenly it was like well you guys are no longer in exile you don't even have anywhere to go back to right family's been wiped out the money's gone there's not there's nothing for you there's nothing for you anywhere in the world basically right hmm. or at least that's how it would have must have been how it felt well i feel bad for little conrad now i want to see how he's yeah. gonna get out of this yeah these scrapes these right. rough and tumble scrapes. <laughs> he does they're manage make, to get out. Of they're going to make it, kid. Yeah. yeah. Now, the Korzanowski family, all of them were so sick that they did manage to petition to get moved slightly closer to Kiev, mostly to just get slightly out of the winter. Um, so this, I think there were three years in uh, Vologda. And um, then in 1865, they get to um, Kiev or closer to Kiev. And then his mother dies of tuberculosis when Conrad's seven years old. Right. So then you've got Apollo. Get that bingo card out. Yeah. Yeah. Dead, dead parents, seven years mm-hmm. old. You lose your mother. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Doggy. Now here's Yowch. Apollo. Now here's Apollo describing um Conrad's um sort of motherless childhood. Um hmm. <clears throat> okay. There's a little preamble from the from Jeffrey Meyer. Um Quote, Apollo gives a terribly depressing account of the solitary existence with Conrad. After the failure of the revolution and the death of his wife, his courage gave way to despair. Now here he's talking about in a letter, he's talking about Conrad. Poor child. He does not know what a contemporary playmate is. He looks at the decrepitude of my sadness and who knows if that sight does not make his young heart wrinkled or his awakening soul grizzled. There, these are important reasons for forcing me to tear the poor child away from uh, my dejected heart. Since last, last autumn, my health has been declining badly and my dear little uh, mite takes care of me. My life is, at present, confined solely to Conrad. I teach him all I know myself. Alas, it is not much. I guard him against the influence of the local atmosphere and the little mite is growing up as though in a cloister. The grave of our unforgettable is our memento mori and so every letter brings us fastings hair shirts and flogging so uh not long after 1869 four years after this little conrad's 10 or 11 um apollo dies of tuberculosis as well Oof. uh and so no parents um he's taken in or taken under the ward of his uncle taddeus um his mother's his mother's brother um, the mother's side, Conrad's mother's side didn't get involved in all of the uprisings and the rebellion. So he managed to get through that 63 uprising. Okay. Um, he was actually, he'd become sort of a successful owner of a sugar beet plantation. Um, and he sort of takes responsibility for Conrad. Now he, 
takes Conrad on as sort of a surrogate son because his own wife had died during childbirth and his daughter had died when she was 13. And so Taddeus is he's a he's a reasonably wealthy widower. And here com- here, here comes Conrad. Right. Oh, man, uh, life was rough. Right? Rough. Yeah. Mm. I mean, yeah, that's the thing you think about. Nobody. Conrad doesn't have anybody from his childhood. That's still like nobody. There's nobody from his childhood that's alive basically mm-hmm. right insane um now uh Taddeus is uh let's give you a description i'm going to give you a description of Taddeus or, or sorry of Conrad when he kind of comes under Taddeus's control Taddeus is like a a he's one of these guys who's probably t- kind of tough severe he's a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of guy but he's also he cares. He's got a heart. He wants Conrad to end up in a good as well as he possibly can. And he understands the pain that Conrad has gone through. Right. He ends up putting him mostly through boarding schools. But that's not I don't think that's as uncommon in the time period as is it would be. It would seem now and now it would seem like you're trying to get rid of him. But I think at that time it probably made sense. Like I will pay for. Yeah, all this, right? sure. I mean, yeah. that that doesn't seem to me. I mean, he, he doesn't have a wife. It's right. him. He's running a sugar beet empire. Right. right. Uh, yeah. So now he's it when he's a when he's sort of a young teenager, he spends a little bit of time with a distant cousin that's you know, might be a second or a third cousin. And this is how that cousin describes Conrad. We have very few descriptions of him as like a boy or a teen. So this is kind of good for us to I'm gonna give you a couple descriptions of him through his life, and this will be sort of the first one. Um Conrad, quote, Conrad stayed with us 10 months while in the seventh class in the gymnasium. Intellectually, he was extremely advanced, but disliked school routine, which he found tiring and dull. He used to say that he was very talented and planned to become a great writer. Such declarations coupled with a sarcastic expression on his face and with frequent critical remarks shocked his teachers and provoked laughter among his classmates. He disliked all restrictions. At home, at school, or even in the living room, he would sprawl unceremoniously. He used to suffer from severe headaches and nervous attacks. The doctor, the doctors thought that a stay at the seaside might cure him. So right there, we've got kind of all the important Conrad pieces we actually need to know. Ambitious to become a writer, a great writer, um, sort of laughed at by people, nervous, way smarter than everybody else in the room. That's kind of a good way of thinking about Conrad. Um, it's kind of true throughout his life. Now, I like this too. This time where it would be, we'll send him to the sea. Right. Get the get the boy some some sun. Right. Yeah, yeah. If that only. Was, they never knew what. The, yeah, that's funny. Back then, they never knew what to do. They were like, "Did you try living somewhere else? Maybe have you tried taking the air?" Right. <laughs> I, it really is touch grass. Uh, that's what they were saying it is what they were saying um uh let's see so uh, let's see boarding schools uh oh at age 16 he leaves he finally leaves poland right he's most he's in boarding schools until then um here is uh and here's conrad later in life talking about this moment where he he about leaving poland what that's like to leave poland quote I spring from an oppressed race where oppression was not a matter of history, but a crushing fact in the daily life of all individuals, made still more bitter by declared hatred and contempt. I can't think of Poland often. It feels bad, bitter, painful. 
It would make life unbearable. The Russian mentality and their emotionalism have always been repugnant to me, hereditarily and individually. Okay, a little bit, another little part about the Russians, his attitude to the, toward the Russians. Um, think just, and, and, and this is Meyer, and I'm just going to read this because I, I really want us to sink home where Conrad is when he leaves Poland. What's happened to him? This is, sums it up. Um, <clears throat> the Russians had enslaved his country, forbidden his language, confiscated his inheritance, treated him as a convict, as a child, right? If, it, to his mind, had killed his parents and forced him into exile. This was Conrad. This is Conrad's life until he's a teenage boy, right? Um, so you talk about sort of the oppression it's, it's of Olympics, serious, it's like uh, Hunger Games stuff, like and, real world, real life. You, right. You, yeah. Mm-hmm. Any and, bigotry and the, that he would have toward them would be uh, justified. Right. It's yeah. It yeah. would be. It's like it would be like yeah. I get it. Yep. <laughs> I mean yeah. Yep. So. Yeah, so oppression Olympics, Conrad's scoring pretty high. I don't know if he's on the gold medal platform, but he's up there for sure. Um, here's another little bit. So this is him actually leaving, and I just liked this pet paragraph again from the Meyer biography. Quote, on October 13th, 1874, the 16-year-old Conrad became one of the three and a half million uh, emigrants, including his close contemporaries, uh, Paderewski and Marie, Marie Sklodowska Curie, oh, Marie Curie, as well as um, Apollinaire, uh, Louis Namier, and Malinowski. These are other writers and intellectuals, and we're not going to go into them, but interesting folks, who left Poland between 1870 and 1914. Like Jasper Allen, the handsome hero of Frey of the Seven Isles, that's a Conrad story, Conrad was, quote, an old man's child, having lost his mother early, thrown out to sea and out of the way while very young, and had not much experience of tenderness of any kind. So what does he do when he leaves Poland? A man from a landlocked nation who'd never seen the sea, except for possibly a little visit to the Black Sea as a boy, um, decides he's going to become a sailor, right? Get him to run away to the sea. And that is yeah. wicked cool. It is. <laughs> right. It is. He took their advice to heart. Yeah. Yeah. Go, yeah, go exactly. to the ocean, young man. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Very so, interesting. So mm. he, he moves a 16 year old boy. He goes, well, he wouldn't have been a boy in his culture, but in our sure. culture, he's a boy. Um, he moves to Marseille, France. Um, and oh, uses this as great. a oh, yeah great port a great city. great port town yeah yeah and he's going to use this as his home base to kind of learn seamanship and learn French he knows a bit of French but not much um, and uh, and you know try to become a sailor and uh, a little some challenges I mean he first starts getting money of his own and you imagine he's somebody who's basically never had any money right um, and. He doesn't know how he can't manage money like he just blows it on stuff. Now, he's not a drinker. There's no evidence that he was sort of he was sleeping around with 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 women, you know, with just women he met or with prostitutes or anything like that. And in some senses, it's not even clear what he was spending money on, but it did not last long. There was a bit of gambling. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so like subtweeting me. It's just like, <laughs> it's like yeah. what you're telling me there are prostitutes in a port city, Brad? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Whoa. I wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Different um, pod. Right, right. He um 
he would make friends with and, and again he barely had any friends right he'd been in multiple different boarding schools he'd been bounced all around ukraine and poland and russia um so he starts making friends too for the first time and he makes friends across classes he makes friends with the royalists and the bohemians and the seamen um and it's really Marseille, you know, 18, what did we say, 74. It's a culturally intoxicating place to be for a boy who was raised on the tundra, right? Sure. Fascinating place, right? Now, he starts out working as a seaman um, on pilot boats that would guide ships into the harbor, right? Very kind of simple stuff for a sailor. But but that's how you get your sea legs, right? You learn how boats work and you learn what the different boats are. He'd never really seen boats. You know, so it's <laughs> seen a painting or something. There's a boat. There's that's a boat. boat. Yeah, Is that also yeah. a boat? Yes, that's a boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's it all about? Right. <laughs> Very good. And at this time. He hears, okay, so the first time he ever hears English is when he's about 14 or 15 years old. He overhears some English engineers in a boarding school. It's the first time he ever hears English. Um, the second time he remember, he remembers very well what, um, hearing English, and he was pulling up to a um, to a boat with some English sailors on it. And this, you know, this man calls down, this English sailor calls down, look out there. And that's like a, that really stuck in Conrad's mind that for Conrad, that was the first English he ever heard at the age of 16 years old. Um, Probably this is one of the things they say about language learning is that if you make it essential, if you're going to get mm -hmm. hit by a, a rope or fall overboard, it, it, you, you're going to learn it really, really quickly. Yeah. Well, and yeah. what's great about Conrad, Conrad learned English from well, newspapers, he says, but also he he would emphasize on several different occasions. He basically learned English from Shakespeare and sailors. That which, rocks. Isn't that a, such a cool combination? That is so right? cool. Yeah. 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 I think this may be, I think this might be true. I think they used to in the theaters because there was so much elaborate rigging that would go on uh, that they would have they would hire sailors, ex you know sailors who had been injured and couldn't work on the boats anymore Makes or were like retired out. I don't exactly know if this is entirely true, but I heard this uh, and and they would because they, they would have elaborate uh, you know set changes and it would all be done with ropes and things so right. yeah it would make sense that it was sailors and i think uh one of the reasons you're not supposed to whistle in the theater has to do with the fact that the sailors would use whistle cues for uh for changes on on boats oh, and that could just be theater kid bull but i've i've heard that so it makes sense, the, especially yeah. the the pulleys and the ropes and pulleys thing definitely makes sense. I mean, if you wanted to hire somebody right off the street who knew knots and things that you definitely want a sailor, right? Right. Yeah. Like we yeah. definitely do not want uh, something falling on the head of our of our leading man midway <laughs> right. through Hamlet. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And somebody's not scared to climb up there if they have to either. Right. Yeah. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. So it's not long before it's not long in 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 Marseille before Conrad does get a berth on a ship. He takes three trips from Marseille to Mart uh, Martinique, which is a trip of about five months. So this is a you know, he's crossing he's crossing the ocean blue on these trips um, on the return of his first trip. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. He, so he went at first, he sort of turned, he he got off, turned around and went right back. And he kind of thought that this is how it was going to work. Right. It's like, all right, you just get off one boat, get back on another boat. You're starting to make money. You're not really spending money because you're on the boat. Um, kind of works out all right. But um, on the return voyage of the second one, 
they had been so beat up by winter storms that they had to stop in uh, Le Havre in the north of France, Marseille's in the south of France. And he ended up having to take uh, a train to Marseille to get home to Marseille and loses his trunk, right? He's 18 years old. He's been, he's weirdly enough been in like four places in his life. And one is like the Arctic tundra. One is Warsaw. One is Marseille. And one is the Caribbean. It's like a very strange experience to have, right? What were they doing in La Havre? Oh, they got beat up and they had to turn back. And, yeah, they couldn't. They just port. were Yeah, they were no longer seaworthy. So hmm. yeah, I don't know if it was closer for them or what, but yeah, they ended hmm. up having to get there. Um, and, uh, he takes another trip to Martinique where his third trip is where he meets this 40 something year old Corsican man named Domin Dominic Cervoni, who would later be the inspiration for the character Nostromo in Conrad's novel many years later. So um, uh. and he would also see the South American coast. Right. And which which Nostromo, we're not going to talk about Nostromo in depth just because there's so many, so many novels to talk about. And I just. I picked I picked some and Nostromo wasn't the one that I went decided to go in detail on. Um, and Nostromo is all about a fictional South American country. So these trips, these early sailing trips featured in Conrad's writing for years. Right. Well, um, is this and is this where Nostromo comes from in Alien? It must be. Oh, I don't know. I didn't even. Oh, that's that's the yeah. name of the ship. Is the the Nostromo? Is it really the problem? Mm -hmm. Oh, it is. Then absolutely. I totally... Into the heart of into the heart of darkness. There you go. Very very interesting. Yeah, yeah. and the, even the huh. alien has the bald head like Kurtz. <laughs> yeah, true. alien is just heart of darkness <laughs> in space. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, yeah everything's uh, that's interesting. I forgot mm -hmm. about this ship is called the Nostromo. That's wild, mm -hmm. huh? Um, okay. So Conrad learned some things about sailing, um, obviously, but one thing he learns is that it's not as much of an adventure as he perhaps thought it was. Oh, it's probably wicked boring. This is and the biggest thing. All dudes. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, gosh. Yeah. But you, you'd learn how to spin a yarn. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, exactly the same things you say. It's boring. The food's pretty bad most of the time. A lot of the companions, I mean, you might meet some interesting people, but he would comment sometimes like, I can't, I don't have anybody I can talk to really. Right. They're all just sort of, and, and, and then you're stuck with them for months. It's, it's not like, it's not like somebody you go to work and see every day. You live with these people for months on end, right? Smelling their BO and oh, right? all yeah. that. Mm. Um, now, what's funny, though, is during this time in his early sailing years, up until about the year 1881, so up until the time that Conrad is about 24 or so, Taddeus, his uncle, is giving him a stipend or an allowance. And that allowance is about 2,000 2, francs a year. And that amount, just because who knows, what does that mean? 2,000 francs a year. That's about what a lieutenant in the French Navy makes or made oh. at that time. Oh. So he has he's basically making a living wage whether he gets paid by a boat or not, right? Mm. Um, and yet, that amount of money was still not enough for Conrad. And he was constantly writing and asking for more money. <laughs> um, at least he's At least he's working. He is doing he is. this. So. That's true. That's true. That's true. And that I was Taddeus's idea was like, I will float you until you get to the point where you're where you're more established. Right. 
Um, and that day that day did did eventually come. Um, I'm going to read you something quickly from a, a letter Taddeus wrote him around these time around this time because I thought it was I thought it was kind of as you read the letter. I'm just going to stand yeah. up real quick, uh, but I sure. will be listening. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so Taddeus writes a letter. He's getting kind of annoyed about the money situation. <clears throat> Quote: Let us, and he's talking to Conrad, and I kind of like the tone of this. Let us ask ourselves to what extent each of us has fulfilled his duties. For by answering this question, the recapitulation will enable us to correct any shortcomings that we may find in our conduct. Um, in short, during a, during two years, you have, by your transgressions, used up your allowance for the whole third year. Consider all that, my dear, and you must admit that I am right, beat your breast, and swear to reform. I would have refused my own son outright after so many warnings, but to you, the child of my sister, grandson of my mother... I, the victim of these absurdities, forgive you with my all forgive you with all my heart on condition that it is for the first and last time. Of course, it wasn't the first or the last time. <laughs> well, in Heart of Darkness, doesn't he talk about uh gambling debts and sort of speculatively thinking about like a a Roman uh, aristocrat who or who falls from a young one who falls from mm -hmm. grace because of gambling debts and then has to see the ancient banks of the Thames before mm -hmm. it was conquered. So mm -hmm. maybe it was, maybe he's confessing to have, ha have had some gambling problems. Oh, probably. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah this was interesting about these early years. It, there's, it's not particularly well documented and Conrad, Conrad, like many great novelists was a bit of a storyteller. So you can't always trust what he said about what happened. And also he would often, um, he would often like post hoc graft on motivations to what had happened to him. Right. So it's like, you know, he's kind of telling the story like I had sort of planning that to happen. Like he would say we're going to get to it, but he would say that he'd always planned to be an English sailor. That's just not true. Right. Um, he had to have because if he was on these ships getting paid mm -hmm. doing that and going through a full salary, mm -hmm. he must have either been ext extremely stupid, which I doubt he was. Or he must have been gambling or something mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. of the like. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mm -hmm. think he was a drinker. There's no indication that he was a drinker, which is interesting. Um, anyway, so mm -hmm. at one point. He's in France, you know, he's in Marseille waiting to get a ship. He would later say it's harder work trying to get work on a ship than actually working on a ship, right? Because it's very freelance. It's very like this captain's looking for guys, that captain's looking for guys, this one's going to there, you know, negotiating how much you should make, you know, it's all about who you know. It's it's complicated. It's like freelance work, basically, right? Um, and at one point, he's the French Office of Military Conscription comes along and tells him that he cannot sail under the French flag. The reason why is he's uh, from another country and he's technically under obligation to military service in Russia, right? So the French regulations at the time wouldn't allow him to sail under French, under the French flag. Um, now he ends up going to England because the rules are more relaxed in England. The sailing rules are more relaxed. Come on over. <laughs> we'll take just about anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before he gets to that, in, in some of this, we're going to talk more about in the after dark. He's, but when he's setting up to get this last berth, well, it, he didn't know it would have been his last. When he's setting up to get a, a berth on a French ship, 
Taddeus had sent him a three thousand franc uh, check or whatever, and and which again he was making two thousand a year. Taddeus sent him an additional three thousand because this was going to somehow help him get on this ship. Apparently, sometimes you had to put money up front that you then like got paid back against somehow. I don't totally understand how this was supposed to work. Um, It'd be like uh, a, a a profit sharing arrangement or something. I it imagine. might have been like an investment in the ship, actually. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But sure. anyway, so he had these three thousand francs, and um, he he gets he gets uh Conrad can't go on the ship though because he gets uh he gets an anal abscess. It's extremely painful, and he can't sit. And so the ship takes off without him. He wait, still wait, has... wait, 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 wait. How, how do you get an anal abscess? It just happens. The I diet. Guess. That's all I know. Okay. <laughs> I have no more details than that. Um, except it was bad enough that he couldn't sail. Googling so, anal abscess. I'll be I'll be looking that up in the background. Okay, great. Oh, it's a it's a <laughs> it's like an internal uh hemorrhoid, isn't it? Okay. I think that's something like right. that. Yeah. That oh boy, right. the yeah, let's let's just yeah, move on. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have to we don't have to meander yeah. around there um so anyway <laughs> the point is he misses the ship because he's not healthy let's just say he's not healthy mm. and mm. while he while that ship he was on was out that's when the french offices come to him and tell him he can't sail now you have to put yourself back into the late 1800s if he would have been on the boat there would have been no way for the french government to stop him right five months you know six months later would have come back he would have made all the money back whatever but he still has the three thousand francs now <sighs> We're going to get more into this a little bit where this goes in the after dark. But here's the deal. Conrad gets uh, involved with using this money. He gets involved in gun running. Okay. Woo. All right. (laughs) Yeah. I like this guy. I like his whole vibe. I like his his origin story. Mm -hmm. I like a lot about this guy. Very interesting. Okay. So so he makes some friends amongst the Carlists. And you have to remember, his father was a revolutionary. So like, you know, he would be prone to maybe getting involved in any political cause. Now, I had no idea what the Carlists were. And I'm going to inform Kevin, maybe, you know, I'm going to inform our audience um, with this little bit, which I think is a good, succinct description from, again, from the the Jeffrey, uh, the Jeffrey Myers biography, um, quote, the immediate cause of the Carlist Wars was a, was the dispute about whether the eldest daughter of King Ferdinand VII was entitled to succeed to the Spanish throne in 1833. Ferdinand had abrogated the Salic law, which excluded females from succession to the crown, in favor of his daughter, who became Queen Isabella II. Ferdinand's brother Don Carlos refused to recognize Isabella and claimed the throne for himself. A civil war followed in which the Basque provinces and Catalonia supported the ultra-reactionary and ultra-clerical Carlists who were defeated in 1840. Raymond Carr observes that Carlism was both reactionary and romantic. Quote, The Carlism of the 1830s was a negative creed, a crusade for the elimination of the liberal canal. I don't know that word. Anyway, as a residual legatee of 16th century heresy and 18th century atheism, it was a revolution of frustration, a revolution of the inadaptables from the prince who had been pushed aside by the court faction to the violent men who took to the hills in Catalonia and Aragon. Such men became the prisoners of an intransigent ideal, legitimacy and the Catholic unity of Spain. 
Against the court of Isabella stood the austere court of the true king, Charles V, regular in his habits and punctilious in his devotions, his army under the supreme command of the Virgin of the Sorrows. Carlism, therefore, remained a romantic epic in which selfless devotion to an ideal was soiled by treason, desertion, and incapacity. In 1873, after the abdication of King Amadeus of Spain and the Declaration of the Republic, the Carlists seized large parts of northeast Spain. The Second Carlist War ended in 1876, a year after Alfonso XII, son of Isabella, was proclaimed king. Don Carlos was defeated and escaped to France, but the Carlists, who later supported Franco in the Spanish Civil War, remained a powerful force in Spanish politics until 1939. Okay, I'm not going to give you a quiz on that. But this is the group uh, for which Conrad was going to try and smuggle arms. Very interesting. I'm on yeah. their Wikipedia. This goes so deep. Uh, and I am afraid I know so little about this. But yes. there is still a claim to the Carlist communion. Okay. Uh, a, yeah. a current duke. So this, in a in a minor way anyway, continues unto today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So so he gets caught up in this now. It's not clear about whether Conrad had any like it's hard to understand why Carl Conrad would have been like politically motivated in this direction because it's so um it's so sort of uh, fine grained. Like it's such a like why would a boy from Poland care about like these strange you know you know what I mean? It's it doesn't Luker. Totally... Luker. Exactly. Don't you think it's about yeah. that paper. Yeah. yeah. So he was basically trying to get paid to smuggle guns, right? There wasn't really, I don't think, a political. There was also some suggestion that he was trying to impress a woman, um, uh, who, a woman who would later become a character in Arrow of Gold. And he got pulled into it by a guy who he'd sailed to Martinique with. So he's also, he's 18 years old, right? So there's probably a certain extent, a little bit of money um, impresses this woman. It's kind of adventurous. He's an adventurer. And um, and this guy, Dominic, who we looked up to, was kind of running the show. Right. So Conrad gets involved. Um, this does not go well. <laughs> There's some dispute about what actually happened um, there. I think the, the key takeaway that we can have. OK, I'll, let me read this again from the, the, the biography <clears throat> quote. According to Conrad's account in The Mirror of the Sea, this is a, a, a memoir that he wrote. The Tremolino, this is the boat that they supposedly smuggled guns on, officially known as a fruit and corkwood trader, but actually smuggling contraband arms, was betrayed by Dominic's nephew, Cesar Cervoni. When she is pursued by a Spanish patrol boat, Conrad exclaims, she will never catch the Tremolino. But Dominic, observing that the roping stitches on the sail have been cut, realizes they have been treacherously sold out. Dominic decides to destroy rather than surrender the boat by smashing it on the rocks and to escape with 10,000 francs he has hidden on board. Furious with Cesar, who has also unbeknownst to him stolen the money, Dominic throws him overboard and Cesar sinks with all the cash in a belt around his waist. No ship ran so joyously to her death, Conrad writes of the dangerous venture. At one moment, the rush and the soaring swing of speed, the next a crash and death, stillness. The Tremolino, with her plucky heart crushed at one blow, had slipped off into the deep water to her eternal rest. Now, Conrad's scholars, I'm continuing to read, but that's no longer what Conrad wrote. 
Conrad scholars have found no trace of a ship called the Tremolino in the Marseille uh, maritime records. Mm. They have discovered that Cesar was not related to Dominic and far from drowning with a money, money belt survived to sail for many long years. Though the details of the story are suspect, the unpublished memoirs of one of Conrad's oldest English friends um, who had extensive experience at sea and met Conrad in 1880, way before he was a famous writer, um, confirms that some such incident actually happened. So something happened with the smuggling. What exactly is kind of hard to say, honestly. Now, what he's thing, doing some crime. He's doing crime. Well, that's the other thing. Like, how much record is there of a 18 year old kid doing crime if they didn't get caught? It's kind of hard to prove what happened and what didn't, right? Um, no comment. Right. <laughs> right. I plead the fifth. Yeah. <laughs> now, his money, the money, and now when this happened, he still had the money from Taddeus, the 3,000 francs that we discussed. That money, we're going to talk more about in the After Dark uh, content because that money leads directly to Conrad's suicide attempt. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. We do an extra 20, 30 minutes or more for every episode we do for Patreon. Please, uh, please support the pod. We put yes. in the work. Yes, we do. We do. Um, okay. Now, as we said, the French government said that Conrad could no longer uh, sail under the French flag. So in 1878, Conrad's uh, 21. Conrad, he goes to England looking for a boat. Now, um, I don't it was tricky for me to know like how much of the sailing stuff do we talk about? Conrad was a sailor for 20 years, right? A long time. It was his primary occupation for two decades. Um, he would work on 18 different ships. He would eventually pass his master's uh, examination, which qualified him to be a captain on British ships, which was an uncommon achievement for a foreign national. Um, he would only actually work as the captain of of one plus a steamer, a river steamer in the Congo. Um, he would never get consistent work with a single firm or a line. He rarely he rarely sailed on the same boat twice. Um, and he had long periods where he was unable to get work. Right. So it's tricky. I mean, he was sort of successful in some senses and another. It was it was kind of a wash. Sounds um, like a choppy freelance career. Mm -hmm. Touch and go. Yeah. 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 And the biggest it can ever get is like you briefly captain a ship. You know, it, it, there's no, there's sort of no, there's no real retirement plan for a guy like right. Conrad, right? There's no military background. You're a foreign national. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You're making the best of a bad situation. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he's doing okay for a kid who grew up as a, basically a political exile, you know, near the Arctic circle. Yeah. Now he's, right? is he living? I mean, is he principally coming back to London? No, he's in Mar. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. When he's uh, when he's in. Yes. So he's coming back to I don't I actually meant to look up exactly where this is. He, he calls Lowestoft home mostly, which I'm not sure where that is. Uh, how, do you, how do you spell it? Oh, shoot. Hold on. No worries. I don't want to uh, uh, detract. But I mean, of yeah. course, uh, yeah. L-O-W-E-S-T-O-F-T. T-O-F-T. Yeah. Okay. That's where stuff. he's living. It's a, it, it's a town in it's a town in England uh, on yeah. the coast. I don't know exactly uh, where it sits geographically. Yeah, no, it's on the it's it's at the is it at the mouth of the Thames? No, that's a different river. Let's see, but it's on the uh, the east side of uh, of England. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. okay. Um, so he's 
Now, there's another thing that's going on with Conrad, too, in his soul sailing career, because he's working at an interesting time. It's the transition between sail and steam. There's both out on, on the seas. There's steamships and there's sailing sailboats. Now, as the career progresses, there are fewer and fewer uh, sailboats and more and more steamships. Um, but there's other aspects to this, too, right? So steam requires fewer men, right? You can move more cargo with fewer men, and the work is much more factory-like, as Conrad would say. Now, let me actually just read this bit that he wrote about this, because it's actually pretty good. Um, again, from the this is actually Conrad's words. Um, okay. Oh, this is actually, I'm sorry. This is the Jeffrey Meyer, Meyer biography. Um <clears throat> Quote, uh, noting the difference between the risk involved and the skill required on sail and on steamships, Conrad recalled during an interview his agonizing time high in the mainmast, struggling in the darkness to unfurl the booming royals. The conditions haven't changed so much, he said. It is the men who have changed. It is not that they are less romantic. It's simply because they're of different type. The man on a steam vessel suffers less strain on the nerves. His work is easier. The sailing ship made men, Conrad said. Sailors today are little more than factory hands. That's on a steamship. It's like working mm. on a factory, right? Right. And the jobs that were left to sailboats, there was, for a while, there was a sort of a calculus, a profitability uh, calculation you could do where long trips were slightly more profitable under sail than under steam. As long as, you know, because you could just put some guys out in a boat and if it takes six months, that's fine. Um, and you didn't have to burn all that coal, right? Like at, at some point, the man, the the wages, the wages count less than how much coal you're burning. Anyway, sure, sure. Um, he preferred to be, he preferred much, to, much preferred to be on, uh, under sail, though he did work a fair amount on steamships as well. Um, as an English sailor, he would sail to Australia and Malaysia, Bangkok, Singapore. Just try to imagine these places in 1880. I can't even like bring an image to mind. Uh, <laughs> um, he would be most often they would be hauling coal or wood. He'd be gone for months at a time. Um, of the dangers that he experienced, uh, this is from a, a writer named Robert Folk. Conrad suffered injuries from a falling spar, which was kind of Conrad's fault. Uh, he was stranded, uh, experienced collisions at sea, fire, foundering, and even a survivor's voyage in an open boat. Um, so this is, he's, he's like, he's literally like a romantic sailor of old. Like <laughs> there's no, it, there's no doubt about it's it. It's wild. And living through the transition from sail, sailing ships to this industrial steam type ship, mm -hmm. uh, which are, are you familiar with the iconic, uh, uh, Turner painting. Mm. Um, it's uh, the one where he's rowing. No, it's 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 called the Fighting Temeraire. Tugged her mm. last berth to be broken up. Eighteen thirty eight. It was it was painted in eighteen thirty eight. This is a little okay. bit of a side note. This is I think sure. it's on the twenty pound uh, note now. In I'm the sure UK. I've seen it. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I've seen it's it. it's iconic and and beautiful. A beautiful painting to see. But it it has a a steamboat. Uh, a tug with a paddle wheel is pulling mm -hmm. uh, a 98 gun, uh, you know, sailing ship. Navy. Yeah. 
in for the last time. And of course it, it means an awful lot of different things that painting, sure. uh, but sure. yeah. Yeah. And this worth- is Conrad's daily experience is this sort of transition. Right. And, and he mm-hmm. knows, he knows that like, that's the other thing too. He's getting all the, most of his experience on sailboats. Not only it's like he prefers that, right. But and not only is that work going away, the value of that skill is going away. Like, mm. you know what I mean? There's a thousand old dogs who know how to do it. Why would anybody hire you? You know, it's like, it's, it's yeah. worth noting too. We're going through a moment right now that a lot of people are experiencing some angst around. You have the advancement in robotics happening, and then you mm-hmm. have the advancement in AI happening. Mm-hmm. And there have already been cases of people who are now going to be losing scholarships and places at university because they've tried to cheat with uh, chat GPT. Yeah. And, uh, but that anxiety is, is real. You, mm-hmm. Am I going to have work in five years? Are they going to need writers? <laughs> Like there's a certain amount of, yeah, luckily what we do on the podcast can never be replaced. No, there's no AI will ever. uh, (laughs) Yeah. But in any case, yeah, Yeah. I just trying to pull people into sort of think about. Yeah. This stuff is, this Mm. stuff is super relevant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, 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 yeah. And it's a kind of a story as old as time in a certain sense, Mm. but you know, you have to think Conrad managed to come out of this, and have a certain type of life but he was around a lot of men who you know what happens to you if you were a 30 year old sailor in 1919 1900 you know there's it's not much there's not much where to go unless you're clever and lucky Mm. um now we haven't talked a whole lot about conrad's writing yet and part of the reason for that is up until now he literally hasn't written anything (laughs) right so he's what we might call a late bloomer uh he doesn't do any real kind he he doesn't do any writing at all until about 1886 until so until he's almost 30 years old and he doesn't take it seriously he doesn't do anything serious with it until literally he's done sailing effectively um but let's you know i want to talk about a couple of his i think we'll talk about the one uh he he had multiple popular seafaring novels and stories i think the one that i'm going to talk about now is the I feel ridiculous saying it in a way but the n-word of narcissists yep we're not uh, going to get into the habit of saying that nope. word on the pod no we're so, just not yep, so the, you don't yeah, have the, to yep but yeah, that's the, what it's called yep the the n-word of the narcissist and, and the narcissist is in quotes because it's the name of a ship right yeah and just um, call it just call it the the narcissist, narcissist. novel yeah, yeah I think that's yeah, yeah. I think that's what we can do now when it was published in America finally it was called the children of the sea which is way less evocative and feels almost meaningless. Um, Mm. uh, You know, I I get why they did it, but, and still, Um, I want to talk about this one right now, because even though it's fairly early in Conrad's career, it is one that he would refer back to later. I think this is the one where he finally was like, you know what? I might know how to write. Like he like wrote something was like actually proud of it and was like, this is actually pretty darn good. Now, a little bit of background because Conrad never totally fabricated. Almost all of his writing has direct links to stuff that either happened to him or was like um, sailing lore, you know, sort of in the community, the stories that he'd heard. Um, in 1884, Conrad had gotten into some disciplinary trouble um, because he claimed that this captain that he'd hated had been drunk. 
and he gets left behind in India. He gets kicked off the ship in India, sort of stranded there. Now, he gets his name somewhat cleared because that ship with this captain who said, I'm not drunk, this captain uh, took off. And 24 hours after they left, they ran aground on the coast of India. And it was clearly the captain's fault. So he was. Oh. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, so so after that, it was like, eh, maybe Conrad wasn't wrong about that. And his name was <laughs> Captain Drunky. Right. Right. Out of five. Yeah. Yeah. Five. Yeah. That's fine. I can do it. Just leave me alone. Just give me the keys. I can drive. I can drive. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> don't don't drive drunk people no please don't captain don't. your your yeah, steam is this a steam yeah don't <laughs> captain your steamship on the uh, coast of india drunk yeah twenty thousand ton ship hauling wool or something um uh so okay so he finds so conrad's in bombay just kind of like trying to find a way to get home basically and he finds this new ship and i've got this little piece i want to kind of read um from this period again quoting from the biography and then we're going to talk a little bit more about uh narcissus um so this is this is him actually in his uh this is in his actual life <laughs> he's in bombay um one evening, uh, wait, well, I'm sorry, hold on a second. T -t 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 Conrad was crossed by once. Uh, yeah, he sees a full rigged iron sailing ship um, that had come from Wales and was now in Bombay. This is a quote from Conrad. One evening, um, he was sitting with the other officers of the mercantile marine on the veranda of the sailor's home in Bombay, which overlooks the port when he saw a lovely ship. Sorry, when Conrad saw a lovely ship with all the graces of a yacht come sailing into the harbor. She was the Narcissus of 1,300 tons built by a sugar refiner of Greenock nine years before. Her owner had originally intended her for some undertaking in connection with the Brazilian sugar trade. This had not come off, and subsequently he had decided to employ her in the Indian Ocean and the Far East, right? So the this isn't like an actual ship, right? The boat is real. The most of the experiences that Conrad has on the ship, uh, on this ship, are real, and it goes right into the book. Now, okay, what is the book about? The book is about uh, a crew of men who sail out on a ship, um, a guy comes on board who is the um named James Waite. He is the he is the gentleman from the West Indies, the titular gentleman from the West Indies. Uh immediately takes sick uh after they leave port. Uh I think they're leaving from Singapore if I'm not mistaken. There is a near shipwreck. They almost the entire crew is lost. Um the man who's been sick, James Waite, he has because he's been so sick, he's been kind of hiding out in this little sort of house uh, on the on deck. And as the ship gets turned over, he gets trapped and they sort of have to they rescue him during the shipwreck. The crew does. Right. They all kind of come together and rescue him. Now, he even after that, he continues to to be sick. And it's not clear. There's a very strong division over whether he's a malingerer or he's actually sick. And he's James Waite tells different people different things. He tells them like, hey, I'm faking this. And he also tells them, you know, I'm desperately sick. I'm I'm on the verge of death here. Um, and you the ship divides into two camps. And then an old sea dog basically says they get stuck in the what are called the doldrums. That's where you don't have any wind, right? And you're stuck. And this old sea dog basically says, as soon as that guy dies, the wind will pick up. It's like the superstition that he's sort of expressing to the other people. And then James Waite does die. 
and they the sail the sails fill with wind and they make it home right now um it's not super eventful in some senses, but there's a couple really good passages that I want to read because we haven't really read much Conrad fiction yet. So I thought this was a good spot to read some a couple passages that I quite liked. Um, so this is again from uh, the Narcissus. Um, and this part is going to be about a storm. It's a very good description of a storm at sea. Um and it's fairly early. It's fairly early in this. In this, eh, it's about in the midpoint of the story. Um, <clears throat> quote: The immense volume of water thrown forward by the last last send of the ship had burst the lee door of the forecastle. They could see their chests, pillows, blankets, clothing come f- out floating upon the sea. While they struggled back to windward, they looked in dismay. The straw beds swam high. The blankets spread out undulated while the chests waterlogged and with a heavy list pitched heavily like dismasted hulks before they sank. Archie's big coat passed with outspread arms resembling a drowned seaman floating with his head underwater. Men were slipping down while trying to dig their fingers into the planks. Others jammed in in corners rolled enormous eyes. They all yelled unceasingly, the masts, cut, cut. A black squall howled low over the ship that lay on her side with the weather weather yard arms pointing to the clouds while the tall masts inclined nearly to the horizon horizon seemed to be of an immeasurable length. The carpenter let go his hold, rolled against the skylight, and began to crawl to the cabin entrance where a big axe was ready for just such an emergency. At that, at that moment, the topsail sheet parted, the end of the heavy chain racketed aloft, and sparks of red fire streamed down through the flying sprays. The sail flapped once with a jerk that seemed to tear out hearts and uh, tear our hearts out through our teeth and instantly changed into a bunch of fluttering narrow ribbons that tied themselves into knots and became quiet along the yard. Captain Alliston struggled, managed to stand up with his face near the deck, upon which men swung on the ends of ropes like nest robbers upon a cliff. One of his feet was on somebody's chest. His face was purple. His lips moved. He yelled also. He yelled, bending down. No, no, Mr. Baker. Uh, I'm sorry. No, no, Mr. Baker. One leg, or, one leg over the binnacle stand roared out. Did you say no, not cut? He shook his head madly. No, no. Between his legs, the crawling carpenter uh, heard, collapsed at once, and laid full length in the angle of the skylight. Voices took up the shout. No, no. Then all became still. They waited for the ship to turn over altogether and shake them out into the sea, and upon the terrific noise of wind and sea, not a murmur of remonstrance came out from those men who each would have given over so many years of life to see them damned sticks go overboard. They all believed it their only chance, but a little hard-faced man shook his gray head and shouted no without giving them as much as a glance. Now, there's a little bit of context I probably need to give to that. I just wanted to give you a scene of how Conrad builds a scene. Slight part of that that requires some context to understand. The ship tips over in the storm, and the idea is that they're going to cut pieces of the mast off to allow themselves to, to roll back over, right? Now, the problem with doing that is now you don't have masts and you're in the middle of the Indian Ocean, right? So great, you didn't sink, but what happens to you after that? And the captain is basically saying, we're going to ride this out. And when the storm is over, we're going to try to right the ship. And there's and they have to listen to the captain, right? That's the whole right. thing about the, the right. hierarchy of the ship is you have to listen to the captain. Sure. And they 
they do have this thing where they survive all night with the ships on its side and it's like it's not sure whether it's going to sink or not and they all kind of manage to pull through now <clears throat> there's one other bit i'm going to read and this is again just to give you just to give us the conrad flavor especially at this point that is some career. very strong writing that gets it your is. blood pumping it does you, it does it's, it's got the feeling of a almost like a pulp adventure but of course it i'm does. sure it's surrounded by great pro it is great prose it's, it is there's elevated the, mm -hmm. yeah there's a great passage and I, I could have read it i considered reading it i think the part i'm going to read is great but there is a great part where he's talking about referring to the ship as like a planet go at night going out into the going sort of out into the solar system it's just beautifully done right just mm. striking striking imagery um, i'm going to give you this other passage this this actually has the character of james Waite in it and James Waite's an interesting character because he's sort of he's sort of sympathetic, um, but he's also a bit like you don't trust him. He's kind of the villain, but he's not actually doing anything. It's a very he's a sort of very interesting character. Um, but here here's a bit that I quite liked. <clears throat> Again, from uh, Narcissus, quote, it looked as if it would be a long passage. This is later in the book. It looked as if it would be a long passage. The southeast trades, light and unsteady, were left behind. And then, on the equator and under a low gray sky, the ship in close heat floated upon a smooth sea that resembled a sheet of ground glass. Thunder squalls hung on the horizon, on the horizon, circled round the ship, far off and growling angrily, like a troop of wild beasts afraid to charge home. The invisible sun sweeping above the upright masts made on the clouds a blurred stain of rayless light and a similar patch of faded radiance kept pace with it from east to west over the unglittering level of the waters. At night, through the impenetrable darkness of earth and heaven, broad sheets of flame waved noiselessly, and for half a second the becalmed craft stood out with its masts and rigging, with every sail and every rope distinct and black in the center of a fiery outburst, like a charred ship enclosed in a globe of fire. And again, for long hours, she remained lost in a vast universe of night and silence where gentle sighs wandering here and there like forlorn soil souls made the still sails flutter as in sudden fear and the ripple of a beshrouded ocean whisper its compassion afar in a voice mournful, immense, and faint. All right, so just intense, right? Just really sort of painting the ocean. Mm. Let me give you one more and then we're going to move on to something else. And this is this is right next to it, but it's it's different context. This is more about Jimmy Waite. When the lamp was put out and through the door thrown wide open, Jimmy, turning on his pillow, could see vanishing beyond the straight line of top gallant rail, the quick, repeated visions of a fabulous world made up of leaping fire and sleeping water. The lightning gleamed in his big sad eyes that seemed in a, seemed in a red flicker to burn themselves up burn themselves out in his black face, and then he would lay blinded and invisible in the midst of an intense darkness. He could hear on the quiet deck soft footfalls, the breathing of some man lounging on the doorstep, the low creak of swaying masts, or the calm voice of the watch officer reverberating aloft, hard and loud, amongst the unstirring sails. He listened with avidity, taking a rest in the attentive perception of the slightest sound from the fatiguing wanderings of his sleeplessness. He was cheered by the rattling of blocks, reassured by the stir and murmur of the watch, 
soothed by the slow yawn of some sleepy and weary seaman settling himself deliberately for a snooze on the planks. Life seemed an indestructible thing. It went on in darkness, in sunshine, in sleep, tireless. It hovered affectionately round the imposture of his ready death. It was bright, like the twisted flare of lightning, and more full of surprises than the dark night. It made him safe, and the calm of its overpowering darkness was as precious as its restless and dangerous light. So, good stuff. <laughs> very poetic, very um, very of the 19th century in a lot of ways. Um, romantic kind of tendencies, but beautiful. Um, and, uh, you know, to think, I mean... You're talking about a person who didn't learn English until he was 20 years old, being able to write this a decade or two yeah, but, later. But it doesn't feel like high romantic or high right. symbolist. It has right. a a modern quality and it has mm -hmm. a like an immediacy that almost makes it sound like almost again like an adventure novel somehow. Mm -hmm. And even those those rhapsodic philosophical passages are they're anchored in stuff you can kind of feel life what, yeah. what's that line life felt indestructible indestructible yeah yeah it goes yeah. on uh, something about goes it continues on in the darkness like that's a that's a real that's a vibe you know yeah. i understood exactly what he meant when he said that in that context right yeah right and this sort of the grammar of the of the of the ship it's little movements and tinklings and it 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 that making life feel kind of real as well in the mm. darkness it's yeah, are it's all of lovely. his paras as uh, like extravagantly long as they they tend to be in Heart of Darkness. Where kind of, yeah. are they? Yeah, he <laughs> yeah. he's a lover of the two and a half page paragraph. He really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which could be a bit of a chore for. Uh, I think it could be a little off putting uh, to contemporary yeah. readers. Yeah, I would agree. I would say that the the kind of the the what maybe balances that out is that most of his books are quite short. So mm -hmm. like the narcissist is a book, but man, it's gosh, it's 110 pages, 120 sure. pages, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and this is something that, that he Conrad says about this book. Um, and I, I do recommend it. I, maybe I wouldn't put it as my number one Conrad book, but it is good. Um, quite good. I, I've, I was quite moved by it. Um, this is what he said by about it later. Uh, quote, it is the book by which, not as a novelist perhaps, but as an artist striving for the utmost sincerity of expression, I am willing to stand or fall. Hmm. And so this was a real stake in the ground for him. Um, um, so kind of back to the biography. Now, he doesn't, of course, write this until much after his sailing career, but, but I figured it was a good enough time to, to talk a little bit about one of his books. Um I struggled to kind of know where to begin and end with the sailing stuff because it's 20 years and some of it, you know, is kind of interesting and cool. Some of it sounds boring. <laughs> some of it's kind of repetitious. It's like, oh, he took a boat here and then he took a boat there. Okay. Um, it's the ocean. Yeah. Still the ocean. <laughs> Still the ocean. Right? Still the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I kind of got just some anecdotes that I think are interesting. So 1884, he's on a 1,500-ton uh, a sailing ship um, to Calcutta from Singapore. Um He's uh, in port one night along the way, an able, what he calls an able seaman, gets struck in the head, becomes delirious, and commits suicide by jumping into the sea, right? Just like a crazy, you know, a crazy occurrence. Um, after this 
particular journey, um, Conrad had apparently performed pretty admirably, and the captain had told him he could always Conrad could always work on his ships. And this was kind of exciting for Conrad. He'd been looking for like a good, you know, something with some stability. He was an adventurer at heart, but man, you still want to kind of know what's going to happen. Uh, immediately after this trip, this captain who promised them, hey, you can work for me forever. This this captain immediately fell ill and retired. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like every time Conrad gets a chance, rats. it's like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're no doing luck. good. Oh, you're, no you're doing, yeah, you're doing good as a French sailor. Oh, uh, yeah, by the way, you can't do that. You got right, to right, find another right. country. Yeah, um, it's like uh, we'll get the invitation to go on Rogan, and then a week later the aliens will land. And right. They'll take, they'll make Rogan our leader. <laughs> right, right. He'll forget. Yeah, he'll forget yeah, about he, us. Joe yep. Rogan is the yep. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> um, here's another one. So after passing uh, his chief's mate, mate, chief's mate examination, um, and I, I looked into these tests. These tests are actually were pretty hard. I mean, there were like written and oral uh, portions. There would be a portion where like some old seaman would basically say like would just like verbally lay out a situation to you and be like, so what would you do? And then you have to come up with a response and then they kind of grade you on whether that's, you know, does everybody die or live in that situation? Yeah, you know? right. It's it's the trolley problem, but a real actual problem. Yes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah, I got a couple, a, I got a, uh, I got a couple questions from one of these tests that are, I'm not going to go through all of them, but there's a couple that are pretty interesting. Would you, would you shank the mizzen mast <laughs> right. or would you, you know, <laughs> it's just like mizzen mast the, or the, <laughs> gobbly guy. There's so many parts. I know for some people, I, I know I have a kind of a weird, um, uh, reading eccentricity i love that technical language when i don't know what it means so like i know a lot of people you'd read like the sailing person like i don't know what any of this crap is to me i'm like i don't care that i know if i know what it means like i find it like it's like the poetry of the yeah there's like a yeah. every like little subculture has its own sort of it's a dialect there's a terms scene. of art yeah, yeah there is yeah yes yeah. right mm -hmm. and i i just love that i love seeing that kind of in action and i don't have to totally understand what it means um sure Here's some questions. And this would be the written part. Here's one question from one of these first mates tests. Prepare your ship for rounding the horn in the winter months. And you just have to explain what you do. Um, here's another one. You are totally dismasted and consequently quite unmanageable. What will you do to keep the ship from foundering by the sea, striking her astern or amidships? So, Kevin, if you've got a good answer to any of these, you know, just let me know. <laughs> uh, hunk, hunk, you're going to want to hunker down. Right. <laughs> and re, rejigger. Right. Yes. The ba the ballast. <laughs> yes, I think I I I think you can pass. That's that's Dot okay. Com. <laughs> here's here's another one. This is the last one I'll give you. You are taking your ship up a river and are forced by an ebb tide on a reef of rocks. All attempt to get spars over as shores are rendered futile by the rapidity of the current. And in defiance of all efforts to the contrary, the ship falls over 22 degrees. The usual preparations are made by battening down the hatchways, but owing to a defect in the chain pumps, the water gains upon the ship and she falls over and remains at an angle of 45 degrees. How will you endeavor to raise her? I would find the guy behind the chain pumps <laughs> and kill him and his kill entire him. family. <laughs> yeah, I'd start making some threats. <laughs> <laughs> I'd start looking for who's liable. 
Yeah, right. I'd call I'd call uh, our show's lawyer Dan Baltic, and uh, <laughs> I'd have him put in some strongly worded letters. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I just love those. Like I literally. I don't even understand what the problem is. Like I read that and I couldn't, exp- well, I couldn't ship explain is, to you. I assume tilted. it's, is it yeah. falling toward, toward or away? I assume away. I don't have no idea. It idea. seems like no away. Idea. Yeah. And I don't know what a chain. I mean, I know what a chain and a pump are, but I don't really know exactly what you mean when you put them together. Like, yeah, it's very. So anyway, Conrad in within a system where you'd get asked questions like that became a captain. Again, he didn't, captain much um but he he was certified to do so i mean even if you technically are qualified as a captain um you go around looking for jobs there's not as many captain's jobs as there are you know mate various chief mate first mate all of these things so he t- that's typically how he worked um now let me give you a couple more anecdotes on the sailing stuff and then we're going to move into sort of another phase of his life um there was uh oh one thing that I thought was funny. <laughs> this is just humorous. Apparently, if you were working in the maritime trades in this time, the single most important word that anyone could put on your letter of recommendation, because when you went to get a new, another job, it, ideally you'd have a letter of recommendation from the previous captain. And if it did not say the word sober on it, there was no chance you were getting a job. Wrecked. <laughs> Wrecked. <laughs> It was literally one of those things where it was like, yes, he saved everyone's life in the, you know, in a in a storm the likes of which we've never seen. And uh, but was he sober? Bit of a drinker. <laughs> Bit of yeah. a drinker. Oh, sorry, sorry. You're gonna have to go dig ditches. Uh, I just thought that was that was quite funny. Uh, and you know, drink like a sailor is a common expression. Oh yeah. And, and based on Conrad's experience, though he there's no there's no documentation of him being a drinker. It makes me think that the drinking was primarily because they were bored. There's just nothing to do most of the time, right? I I, I can see that. Yeah. 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 Um, mm. Another couple anecdotes. Um, in 1887, uh, there's four months in 1887. Conrad works. Uh, he does these four round trip voyages between Singapore and Borneo, which is those are. 1887 what are those places like i have no idea um these trips into the uh, malay archipelago give him an inspiration for the story uh the end of the tether and his four early novels so his four early novels are all kind of set in this place which you can imagine how exotic that was to the typical european reader right um these books were all mayor's folly and outcast of the islands Lord Jim and the Rescue. The Rescue didn't get finished until later, but it's the fourth novel that he worked on. Um, it was here too that in in, in the uh, in Singapore and Borneo area, he would encounter Dutch colonial rule, uh, and you know he really started to see. This is where he first. Now it's not the Congo yet, but this is where he first starts to see how colonial rule by European powers worked. Not just you know your neighbor oppressing you, but like what is this sort of economic engine of this thing and what does it do to people this is where he starts to get his first glimpses of it and he he loathes it um he um you know again remembering he's not an englishman he's a pole he's not interested in the english empire or the dutch empire these things don't matter to him the way that they might to, to somebody from those places um 
he's, you know, his father was a revolutionary. His life was ruined by an empire, right? So to then see this stuff up close again, I I think really affected him. Um, One other anecdote. Uh, He's briefly uh, the captain of a small sailing ship out of Bangkok uh, in which he... (laughs) He has this kind of humorous story, which he has to deal with this locally sourced uh, a ship steward who's from Bangkok. And the guy who seems upright at first um, turns out to be a gambler, an opium smoker. And uh, after he steals all of Conrad's entire life savings, Conrad refers to him as a first class sprinter. Apparently, he tried to chase him down and he couldn't. So this guy, Conrad, didn't have a ton of money, but this guy swiped it all and just ran off into the streets of Bangkok. Um, So not good. Conrad once again losing all of his money, which would happen a handful of times in his life. Okay. I'm going to give you another picture of Conrad. Now, we had that one of him as a boy. He's been sailing for a number of years. Now, this is when he's 31 years old. And this is who actually give this description. I think this was by somebody who he knew. Um, this is, yeah, this is uh, by somebody who he worked with uh, in the Caribbean. Um, this is sometimes he would be referred to as Polish Joe. That was his nickname on on the, on the boats. <laughs> um, Pol- oh, Polish Joe. Oh, Polish Joe. Um, did he have a very thick accent? He did. He must have. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit. His spoken English was terrible, apparently. Uh, he didn't know how to pronounce a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, come right on the pod. Yeah, I was going to say he could hop right in this seat. That's for sure. Yep, yep. Um, yeah. Okay. Here's a here's a description from uh, somebody uh, named Paul Langlois, who a local charterer he'd worked with. And so this is a picture of, we had the picture of him as a boy. Here's a picture of Conrad at about 31 years old. Quote, He had vigorous, extremely mobile features, which would change very quickly from gentleness to an excitability bordering on anger. Large black eyes, which were as a rule melancholy and dreamy and gentle too, except in his frequent moments of irritation. A a determined chin, a well-shaped handsome mouth, and a thick, well-trimmed dark brown mustache. In contrast to his colleagues, Captain Korzanowski was always dressed like a dandy. I can see him. And just be, and I can still see him. And just because of this contrast with the other sailors, my memory is precise. Arriving almost every day in my office dressed in a black or dark coat, a waistcoat, usually of a light color, and quote, fancy trousers, all well cut and of great elegance. He would be wearing a black or gray bowler tilted slightly to one side, would always wear gloves and carried a cane with a gold knob. Might have been spending all that money on clothes. As to his character, he had a perfected, a perfect education. He did not have a perfect education. He was self-taught primarily. He must have must have faked it. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he, he was per- obviously a very smart fellow. Yeah, I don't think there's any way to dispute that he's clearly a brilliant person, right? Um, he had a perfect education and a varied and interesting fund of conversation with, when he was in the mood, which was not always. He who was to become famous under the name of Joseph Conrad was often enough very taciturn and irritable. On such days, he would have a nervous tick in the shoulder and eyes. Anything unexpected, something falling on the floor, the slam of the door would make him jump. He was what one would call a neurasthenic. In those days, one spoke of nerves. So he had like a nervous thing. He was a nervous guy. He was jumpy, sort of, you know, irritable, um, you know, friendly and kind generally, but, you know, maybe not a person that always wanted to be around other people. Um, 
And I'm sorry, I, I think I said that that was in the Caribbean. That was in Mauritius um, that that he met this guy. Now, he ends up, because he does this captaining, uh, this, these trips in Singapore, and, and he's in the Malaysian area generally, um, he spends some time on land here, and he does actually try for the first time in documented Conrad history, he tries to court some women. And Conrad's relationship with women is... Uh, interesting uh like we said there's nothing recorded of him i mean he's 31 years old at this time we have no documentation that he has had sex of any kind nothing in his letters so he's either very very private about it, like incredibly private about it which is a possibility or he literally just didn't try didn't put himself out there in that manner right as we say now the first record of him trying to really court somebody is he's literally 31 years old um and there's some daughters of Europeans within the shipping industry who are in Mauritius. Um, and even the women, even the women that he tries to court, they're they're in, they're interesting choices. And I'm going to tell you why. So we're going to we're going to quickly just briefly get Conrad's description of the first woman that he ever courted. He's 31. She's 17. This woman's named Alice Shaw. Her father is works in the shipping industry in some capacity. Um and, and you'll see why I think he's, his relationship to women is strange. And then we'll see it even more so when we meet Conrad's wife. So um, Conrad, quote, this is from the Jeffrey Myers biography again. Conrad wrote in his Mauritius story, quote, seduced by the moody expression of Alice Shaw's face by her obstinate silence and her rare scornful words. That's what he liked about her. She was. She had obstinate silences, a moody expression, and she didn't say much. But when she did, it was scornful. This is it, what this. So he, she's a very stern woman. Yeah, a very this is severe a, woman. Right. This hmm. is apparently what gets what got Conrad worked up. Okay. Cool. Okay. <laughs> so okay. So now we're getting close to the end of his sailing life. 1889. Conrad is 32. Um, he decides that he's going to start writing a book. He's going to start writing this book that would later become Allmayer's Folly. We're not going to talk about Allmayer's Folly in depth other than to say this is basically the first major writing project that he has. Um, he also gets a berth on a ship called the Roy de Belges in Kinshasa. This is the famous Conrad's going to the Congo to work on a steamboat period, right? Um, now, this is I said earlier that Conrad would often have these sort of post hoc justifications for why he did things when when you really look at the historical details, it might have just been kind of happenstance. I think this Congo thing is one of them. I guess the maybe the better way to think of it is like there's sort of positive reasons and negative reasons why he went to the Congo. So I'm going to talk the first. I'm going to give you the negative reasons why he went to the Congo. OK, and then we're going to talk about the Congo. Because, holy crap. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. It's going to get... This, this is 
we've got enough darkness already. We are going into the heart of darkness. The literal heart and of darkness. That, yes. And we are also heading careening toward hour three. Not we quite are. yet there yet, but we're we're yeah. getting it in, getting the work done. I'm very excited. I like that you've broken this out into the sailing portion, which is so mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm excited to see what the pivot looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So this is just a, a quote. This is about sort of where Conrad is career and life-wise as he's about to go to the Congo. Quote, the struggle to find a berth was often followed by bad experiences on board. The Tremolino had been wrecked near Marseille. He had been excluded for political reasons from service on French ships, had quarreled with the master of another ship and lost his deposit, had been exploited by the mad captain of of the Europa, another ship, He had not completed the round-trip voyages on the Palestine or on the Riversdale. He had a series of disasters, including an explosion and a fire on the former, and had been dismissed with a bad recommendation by the drunken master of the latter. He had been injured by a flying spar in the Highland Forest. That that one was kind of his fault, but it still happened. He was like laid up in bed for weeks. Um, Had resigned from the Vidar and from the Otago. The Otago was the ship he briefly captained in, in Bangkok. Um, Conrad had commanded an ocean going vessel in Eastern waters. Oh yeah. But now under adverse conditions, he had to seek humble employment as a captain of a decrepit 15 ton freshwater steamer, which he called a sluggish beetle on an uncharted and perilous river in the middle of Africa. So one way of looking at this is like his career had just never really taken off. And this was the best opportunity was to work on this steamship in the Congo. Now, the sort of the positive side of this, right, is this is a quote from Conrad. This is him justifying it in in hindsight in some ways. At 10 years old, he had looked at a map of Africa, put his finger on the blank space that represented the unsolved mystery of that continent and vowed to himself with, quote, absolute assurance and an amazing audacity. When I grow up, I shall go there, right? And I respect, I kind of respect like taking occurrences of your life and making them into your mythos. Like, I'm cool with that, right? Like, if you got to go off, he's going into literally the heart, the darkest heart of Africa on purpose. So we're going to do Bukowski this year. It's another example of a man who made his own myth and a man who Mm -hmm. was conscious of doing it and Mm -hmm. set out to do it and was pretty cynical about it. Uh, there's a great Bukowski story not to derail, but there's a great Mm. Bukowski story where, um, he wrote a poem. It's in the documentary, He wrote a poem and somebody came up to him afterwards and said, that's not how it was at all. You made me out to look like, like an ass, you know, you were, you were a mess. And Bukowski was like, baby, I'm always the hero of my own shit. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And take that to heart. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, there's some things about this trip to the Congo. He gets help, and there are all kinds of things that line up with um, the book Heart of Darkness. You may remember, Kevin, if you've read this. Yeah, this is fairly early. He says, Marlowe says something about, like, I had to go to the women to help fi- help me find work. Um, Conrad actually had to do this. So Conrad had a distant relative who was this cousin who had, like, um, fought in the Polish uprisings and like escaped to um, Brussels and then married this beautiful young woman who happened to be the niece of the doctor who treated, tried to treat Van Gogh when Van Gogh killed himself. Right. So point is Conrad has this white young wife of a distant cousin who he sort of falls in love with, 
who helps him get this job. You know, so he calls her aunt. She's not that much older than him and certainly not related to him by blood. She helps him get this birth on the Congo because she's very influential. She's one of these sort of high society women. Um, anyway, the position that he takes over on this steamship, this riverboat, is because the captain was dead. Now, imagine you were going to take a job in a foreign country you knew very little about. And they said, there's a job opening because the guy died there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I was thinking what would happen if one of us were to were to croak. And I, yeah. I, I maybe on the pod we can say right now, and I maybe you disagree, Brad. Mm. I, I was just recently thinking this. And insulah, uh, yeah. you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, nothing, uh, you know, nothing will happen to us. <laughs> But yeah. I don't I don't know that this is a Led Zeppelin situation. If what's that where if, the show continues on? We, well, where it where it doesn't, where you oh, the band oh. breaks up uh mm. because John John Bonham chokes on his own vomit, right. uh or whatever. Like, you know, you the machine elves carry you away <laughs> one day, Brad. <laughs> right. Uh what do you because uh, part of me, my heart will go on. I mm. like if 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 I was to was to pass away. Mm-hmm. As, as horrible as that sounds one you you have to wait a year and a day to cover me yeah and and two i would hope that you would find another another co-host and mm. continue on yeah i think i probably would eventually you know you'd have to regroup a little bit i would yeah. certainly do the kevin kautzman episode that would happen right yeah, um, I just I'm just gonna I'm just yeah. gonna write a few names of people that I never want you to talk with. Um <laughs> and maybe there's some contractual obligations right. that we have to quickly uh <laughs> gotta, gotta gotta call Dan Baltic again. Right. Call... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I you need so many lawyers, you know. More Patreon money, please. We gotta pay yeah, the lawyers. Yeah. Uh, but expensive. no, yeah, and and and, yeah. and I'm just gonna say on the record, on the main episode, on a core episode, God, God forbid, something uh, you know was to happen, it wouldn't be this, it wouldn't be the same show. But I mm-hmm. think that Art of Darkness should should go on if one, God forbid, that's all. I, I'm on board with that. I'd be cool yeah, yep. for the roles are reversed. Keep it, keep yep. it, keep it going. Yeah, keep it going. It, it would be it would be really hard because the, the training to replace Brad Kelly would be severe. I don't need. Yeah, well, I don't think either of us. It it would be a different show. For sure, mm, it would be, be a different show. Point. Absolutely. In any case, yeah. let's just not put the not put the the maluk on us on ourselves, yeah. not to put the evil eye on us. We're going to be fine. But it's just mm. something I'm thinking about. Yes, if and, and whoever you don't want to be be like the drummers in Spinal Tap, right? The last right. guy he just died in the bathtub. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what right. was that? Spinal Tap. There's just a green little blob <laughs> left on the stool, like spontaneously combusted or something. But, but this, <laughs> this stuff with Conrad, this is no joke. I mean, literally, yeah. like you're going into yeah, it'd no, be like going it, to the moon. It would yeah, be like going yeah. to the moon. It really yeah. is. And the former captain, I don't know if I even have it in my notes here, but the former captain had died in a dispute with the 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 native population as well, like he'd been he'd got got right and so this is the guy you're replacing so this is a this is a ballsy thing to do to take this job it is no doubt heroic and intense Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah so now okay now in order to understand what conrad went through and to understand heart of darkness we really have to understand what was going on in the Congo around the turn of the century when Conrad was there. And so I'm going to try to keep this 
not too lengthy because we could have spent we could have done out you know you could talk for hours about this scenario and for people who aren't familiar with it at all i think it's gonna be eye-opening and the belgian congo was among the most horrific treatment by any of the colonial powers Mm -hmm. by some measure uh that's my understanding of it yes yes it's the i mean it's one of the dark you know it's it's it to me it's up there with like holocaust level Mm -hmm. just level of how dark the moment was um uh yeah and so okay so up until the 19th century and and i want you to remember conrad doesn't know any of this when he's going there conrad has got a contract job to go to a place an uncharted place on the map to have you know maybe one last adventure or at least another adventure right conrad doesn't know any of this context until he gets there and even maybe didn't even really know it then and i get to be the captain right right exactly so so i want to be careful that i'm positioning conrad relative to this in the right spot um but anyway up until the late 19th century there had been very little exploration of the congo basin by europeans um, many reasons for this swamps, malaria, sleeping sickness, which will kill you even now. If, you know, I think the treatment has got to be like immediate, um, the, uh, sometimes not so friendly and for good reason, indigenous population of the area. Uh, it wouldn't really be until after this guy, Henry Morton Stanley, this is the guy who said, Dr. Livington, I, Dr. Livingston, I presume, right. Famously, um, it wasn't until he. Uh, had sort of started to track things uh, or chart things out that things started to open up a little bit. Now, throughout the 19th century, he had various European powers colonizing different parts of Africa. And at one point or another, virtually all of sub-Saharan Africa, except for the great nation of Ethiopia, would be colonized by either the English, the French, the Dutch, or the Germans. The Congo had been a bit of a holdout, primarily because no European had been able to lay claim to it, right? It's just, it was kind of inaccessible. Um, It's not really, it's it's quasi landlocked except for the, um, except for the Congo River. And even if you look at old maps of the Congo Free State, it's very oddly shaped. There's just like this little bit that goes out to the coast and then the rest of it's in the middle of the continent. Um, But, um, just some statistics so you kind of understand this. Um, 1870, 10% of Africa had been colonized by European powers. 1914, 90% of Africa was colonized, right? Yeah, it was and, a, a an, almost like an arms race of mm-hmm. colonization because Absolutely. if one of the powers got too much, too wealthy from their, you know, colonizing efforts, it would you know, echo yeah, back into, into Europe. It, yeah. was, it was just this massive, yeah. And you can't understand any history, uh, any European history, any world history uh, after that if you don't understand that period. I didn't realize right. it was that extreme and it was that right. hurried. Yeah, yeah, it was fast, mm-hmm. very fast. Right, and so Con- Conrad is there, what I think I said, 1878, 8, 1880? Oh, hold on, I don't have my year for it. Um, 1889. Sorry. Okay. So yeah. So yep. he's smack dab in the middle of this 1870 to 1914 period. Now, okay. If all of the powers of all of the colonies are, like I said, the English, the French, the Dutch, and the Germans, how does the Congo end up in the hands of the Belgians? This is where, and and I'm not going to 
rank which colonies were the best to be under. But um, I do think we can probably say the Belgian control of the Congo Free State in this period was probably the worst. It's as um, extreme as it could get. Yeah, I think right. famously so. Right now, right. I think that's it's pretty accepted and settled history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So now, how does how did it become under the control of Belgium? So King Leopold II of Belgium, he'd been making kind of quiet forays with the help of Henry Morton Stanley um, into um, into the country starting in 1878. Other countries started hearing about this and started sending people down there to kind of plant flags, and it started to get very confusing about well, you know. France has got a flag over there. Portugal's trying to take like who who runs this? Now nobody bothered to say maybe the Congolese should run it. Right? That wasn't part of the conversation. It was which of us European powers should run the Congo. This led to an event in 1884 that's known as the Berlin Conference, um, put together by uh the first chancellor of Germany, Otto von Bismarck. Um this was, you know, a bunch of plenipotentiaries and dignitaries the and namesake various- of my hometown. Right. There you go. Ismark. Right. Right. There you yeah. go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've got all these sort of diplomats and dignitaries, private and in, private enterprise in, interests at this conference. And then a group called the International Association for the Congo. That sounds nice. Right. An international association. We're just getting together for the benefit of the Congo. Mar- <laughs> Marlo. <laughs> Nobody does this anymore. Um, right. We're the World Economic Forum. Right. We're just discussing the, the world, world economy. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Marlowe will refer to this in Heart of Darkness as this is the same. He's talking about the same group in Heart of Darkness when he says the International Society for the Suppression of Savage Customs. That's when he that's a snarky name that Marlowe has in Heart of Darkness for this group. Now, mm. the group it's complicated, but it's it's I think factual to call this basically King Leopold's front group and rec- would be recognizable to us now basically as a private company. So basically, you've got King Leopold, the second of Belgium, has started up this group that has sort of like um, you might call it like a private public partnership. We don't they didn't really have that back then, but it had philanthropic and missionary objectives. And also, hey, by the way, if we happen to modernize it and get a little bit of trade out of it, that's good for us, too. Right. Um, it's one of these we're going to civilize them. We're going to and it's going to be good for them and for us. Um, but it actually was King Leopold's. It was basically a King Leopold's private company. They managed to finagle the Congo Free State to come under this group, the um, International Association for the Congo, and thereby effectively the Congo became King Leopold II of Belgium's private property. Now, there are distinctions to be made between something being a colony and something being your private property, right? If something is a colony and your own government has things like rules then they <laughs> oh, may right go on they might but they might make rules they might include the business of the colony as part of their parliamentary system right indeed indeed right. and so terrible things can happen but you can still get a guy shouting in parliament about you know, this shouldn't happen, whatever. Right. There's 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 some there's some there's some resistance to, to things happening. King Leopold is just running the Congo. He doesn't have to answer to anyone. Right. Um, 
And this makes a big difference. King Leopold is desperately ambitious for an empire and for colony and for money. And when you take that kind of malice, just outright greed, and you combine it with total stupidity, he didn't know what he was doing, right? Um, And so here's the thing. So, okay, you look at the Congo. Congo, very rich in resources, right? It to this day isn't particularly developed, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Super. There's all kinds of resources in that ground that could be used, and the reason why is it is a enormous effort to. It would be an enormous effort to develop the infrastructure to the point at which you could extract those resources in a profitable manner, right? So he ends up. It, it's a loser financially for a long time, and that fact leads to the brutality right it's like we need to get money out of this thing that we're doing it's hem it's hemorrhaging cash now another challenge is he could never get king leopold ii could never get more than three thousand europeans in the congo as administrators at any one time so you have a country that is the size of uh what did i what did i say I, i was looking at the um it's the size of Texas and Alaska combined. And you have 3000 men there that you've instructed, get me profits by any means necessary. Yeah. And so they do. They, um, and and then who's going to go there and do it. Right. Like who who are these 3000 men, right? (laughs) Like that are going to go do this. Um, you know, it's, it's a, a wild country far from home, few maps, fewer allies um you're dealing with various tribes don't speak to each other you don't speak to them there's um arab zanzibari slave traders who are fighting for fighting you for turf basically um and so they end up you end up having these sadistic administrator administrators like this guy leon fivez though there's a bunch of of other ones they start instituting these instituting these insane practices to extract primarily rubber but also ivory as discussed in heart of darkness um they press a bunch of um of the um indigenous people of the congo into this group called the force public and this is like they're like trustees basically they're like people that you have coerced by one means or another to kind of do your bidding. There's also intertribal rivalries that are existing before Belgium even gets there that you'd be ta- they would take advantage of, right? And it gets so intense. So, hey, hey, that neighbor on the other side of your house. Yeah. C- kind of stinks. Right. Not a, right. not a big, not a big fan of that guy. Yeah, we should. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And mm. dude, they're, like, so a big, one of the sort of symbolic things of this is like, all right, if you weren't meeting quota, um, you would get oftentimes you'd get your hand cut off, cut off, right? Oof. And 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 sometimes so this started out what this started as um you'd give the force public, these native people from the Congo, guns and ammunition, and you'd tell them, hey, you got to go get a certain amount of rubber, right? And if people aren't cooperating, you can kill them. But what you have to do is I need you to basically I need one hand per bullet that you used. So if you go out there and you kill a bunch of people, that's fine. If you use 16 bullets, I need you to bring me back 16 hands that you cut off. And then the hands became like currency, 
Oh. So people would cut. Yeah, they effectively became like almost like a money, like the economy is partially driven by hands. And then you would have sometimes you would have uh. little villages would would raid the neighboring village and cut off hands because, again, just think of hands as money, right? They would go and take money from the neighboring village. I'm not I'm not going to go for the joke here. I'm just going <laughs> to. That's so dark. <laughs> Isn't it? There's, I mean, it's, it's insane. Insanely okay. dark. Okay. And then now you can imagine, okay, not only just directly killing people, but the starvation and the disease and this, the disarray and the chaos that this kind of thing would cause. Right. Um, I'm going to just read you rather than Oof. trying to like totally paint the picture. I'm just going to read you a section from the Wikipedia page on this. Um, and the section is just called death toll. Okay. This is just from Wikipedia. <clears throat> Quote, a reduction of the population, and this is in about what they call the Belgian atrocities in, in Wikipedia. Quote, a reduction of the population of the Congo was noted by all who have compared the country at the beginning of Leopold's control with the beginning of the Belgian state rule in 1908. So eventually we'll talk about that in a little bit, but basically the, the Leopold era. But estimates of the death toll vary considerably. Estimates of some contemporary observers suggest that the population decreased by half during this period. According to Edmund D. Morell, the Congo Free State counted, quote, 20 million souls. Hence, Mark Twain mentioned the number of 10 million deaths. According to Irish diplomat Roger Casement, we're going to talk about him more later, this depopulation had four main causes, indiscriminate war, starvation, reduction of births, and disease. Sleeping sickness was also a major cause of fatality at the time. Opponents of Leopold's rule stated, however, that the administration itself was to be considered responsible for the spreading of the epidemic. And there is some good cause to, to say that basically sleeping sickness was brought from contained regions into Congo more generally. In the absence of a census providing even an initial idea of the size of the population of the region at the inception of the Congo Free State, the first census was taken in 1924, so who knows, um, it is impossible to quantify population changes in the period. Despite this, Forbath um, more recently claimed that the loss was at least 5 million. Adam Hochschild and Jan Vansini use the number 10 million. <coughs> Hochschild cites several recent independent lines of investigation by anthropologist Jan Vansini and others that examine the local sources, which generally agree with the assessment of the 1919 Belgian government commission. Roughly half of the population perished during the free state period. Since the first official census by the Belgian authorities in 1924 put the population around 10 million, these various approaches suggest a rust rough estimate of 10 million dead right so basically uh basically 10 million people are killed under this regime in the matter of about 20 years right yeah. a, a, a population cut in half um brutal i i did a little reading on what sleeping sickness is because that's one of the things that we'll just blow by and go oh, yeah sleeping sickness i'm like it's i a, have no idea Titsi fly, I believe. Yeah, it's called yeah. African trypanosomiasis, and mm. it's an insect-borne parasitic infection of humans and other animals. Uh, there are two types that infect humans, but one is caused for over 98% of reported cases. Yeah, titsi flies, more common in rural areas. Initially, the first stage of the disease is characterized by fevers, headaches, itchiness, and joint pains beginning one to three weeks after the bite. Weeks or months later, the second stage begins with confusion, poor coordination, numbness, and trouble sleeping. 
and uh, you can you can prevent the disease and then you can you can treat it. But yeah, that does not sound very uh, that back then you, you could back then you couldn't treat it. Yeah, without treatment, the disease is invariably fatal with progressive mental deterioration leading to coma, systemic organ failure, and death. And it will cause death within months. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, excuse me. An untreated infection. Oh, there are two, t- two types, months or years. The most common <laughs> one will kill you after years. But yeah, that's mm. not fun. That's no, no bueno. No, not good. a big fan. Yeah, no, it's probably called sleeping sleepless because you go into a coma and you just, you, yeah, you just go to sleep up. eventually and never wake up. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, okay, so how does this all come to an end, right? How does the whole Belgian Congo thing come to an end? Um, I think it's important to keep in mind that the world didn't really know what was happening in the Congo. The larger world didn't, I mean, how how would you know, right? It's It's, it's you know, you're not getting... It's, it's cliche to say, but like they didn't have the internet, you know, they didn't. There, there was very few people. If you were there, you were probably part of the Congo Free State, you know, as an administrator or a steamboat you're captain just, or something. You're just right? doing one of these numbers. You got like you're waving yeah. a hand up in the air, you know, and right. kind of like oh you know, with a machete or something, you know. Hey, you know, the day in the life of uh, <laughs> right, right. of uh, in the Belgium Free State of Congo right. or whatever. Right. Da, da, da. Here right. we go. I wake right. up in the morning and I look for rubber. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I look for more rubber <laughs> and then I I eat a little bit yeah. if I can and yeah. then I look for more rubber <laughs> because if I don't get more rubber I will not be able to hold up my phone I won't be able to hold up my phone oh Gone. dark super dark. super dark um, can you imagine if we could just transport anybody who makes one of those ridiculous day in the life of uh, somebody at, at Meta just immediately mm-hmm. into the Belgian Congo in like 1899? Right. What a great yeah. idea for a story that is. <laughs> just what? It's the kind of like weird. <laughs> right, here I am. <laughs> oh my Tremendous. God. Yeah, Tremendous. it's oof. And, and, you know, the thing is, it's, it's, well, we're going to get into, we're going to get All even right. more All into right. it. Yeah. Um. Okay, so how does it end? A big part of how it ends is this guy, Roger Casement. Roger Casement is, uh, I mean, he's a hero, really. Um, He, okay, so they had this philanthropic missionary group kind of running around, running as part of it. And that was, if you were in England and you were to read something in the papers about the Congo, what you would think was, oh, well, they're, they're running a missionary group, isn't Doing that missionary nice? work? Converting uh, the natives, uh, they would say, of course, the right. savage natives, uh, right, uh, to to the Lord. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, right, right. And Conrad certainly didn't have all that different of a perception. He did, certainly didn't have any facts at hand to to kind of counter it. Um, but once word got out, um, and it did, Belgium had to actually, interestingly enough, Belgium had to annex the Congo as a colony. So that was the first step was like, it didn't get independence. It got, oh, 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 oh. you know, we should have made it a colony to begin with so we could keep eyes on this place. The audacity right? of that dude, of Leopold. That's unbelievable. Ridiculous. This is my giant backyard now. Right. I just, like, I own, that's belong. He never, he, and this is the other thing too, and obviously you know this, he never went there. Oh. You know what I mean? Why just, would he? Right. Right. Like he never even went there. It's just um, okay. So but this guy, Roger Casement comes along. 
Roger Casement starts out working in the Congo in 1884. He's a surveyor and he's working to help establish like lines of communication, whatever other infrastructure, right? He actually meets Conrad. Conrad meets him in 1890. And Conrad, basically Roger Casement is the only white man in the Congo that Conrad met and respected. He basically thought the rest of them were all vultures and scum. Um, uh, in 1904, though, this is a little later. This is after Conrad's time. Um, Casement starts. Uh, he's working as a British consul um, under uh, in the, for the British government, obviously under Balfour. And some words are starting to leak out about how brutal it is down there. And the Balfour government actually tells him to investigate. So Caseman basically becomes a spy. He's there on official capacity as a as a as a consul, and he's going to write a report on this. Um, this be- famously becomes the Roger Casement Report, which is a quite a sometimes boring, but when it's not boring, will give you nightmares. Read. Um, you can read it. It's out there. Um, now, Casement was probably an inspiration, actually, for uh, the. Russian, the character that's can be referred to as the Russian Motley in Heart of Darkness. I don't know if you recall this. You've got a cast of characters who are all sort of under Kurtz's spell. And the Russian Motley is the guy who just kind of lives off of nothing. He'll just like wander off into the bush. He doesn't really need anything. That was Casement. Casement was like, Casement was a hard man. Like he didn't, he didn't need much to get by and he would bushwhack by himself and all these things. I mean, later he would get hung for trying to, uh, for the trying to recruit prisoners into the Irish uprising after uh, after the Easter Sunday uprising in 1916. He would get hung for that and also because he was a homosexual. But that's not even part of the story. Roger was Casement, he was he any kind of an artist? Guy. No, not really. No, no. Okay. can't do him. Well. <laughs> but an interesting guy and, 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 and a heroic man, nonetheless. I mean, he basically he's the most responsible person for bringing down the Belgian Congo. Um, the Belgian Free State. Um, I'm going to read you just a little bit about him in the bio again. Uh, the the Jeffrey oh, Myers so much juicy historical information presented yeah. in a fun, entertaining way by two <laughs> yeah. guys on a podcast. <laughs> Support the pod, Patreon.com/slash Art of Dark Pod. We really appreciate it. We just got another supporter while we were recording. Oh, excellent. Thanks. Yeah. 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 Very good. Thank you very much. Yeah. Man. Um, Yeah. Here's from the Jeffrey Myers uh, biography about Casement. Casement, quote, Casement reported that Africans, this is in, this is in the famous Casement report. Casement reported that Africans bound with uh, thongs that contracted in the rain and cut to the bone had their swollen hands beaten with rifle butts until they fell off. Chained slaves were forced to drink the white man's defecations. Hands and feet were chopped off for their rings. Men were lined up behind each other and shot with one cartridge. Wounded prisoners were eaten by maggots till they died and were then thrown to starving dogs or devoured by cannibal tribes. One girl carried the bones of her parents clinking in a ragged canvas sack and testified that starving people ate peeling whitewash torn from old buildings and then vomited up a green bile filled with leeches. Another boy described a casement how during a raid on his village, he was wounded and, quote, fell down, presumably insensible, but came to his senses while his hand was being hacked off at the wrist. I asked him how it was he could possibly lie silent and give no signs. He answered that he felt the cutting, but was afraid to move, knowing that he would be killed if he showed any sign of life. So this is just hell on earth. Just, you know, 
I don't I just, you know I I, I don't even just know what's terrible. There, it's just a, just a perfect cauldron of megalomania. Uh, mm-hmm. Just Green. outright, it, it, it even goes beyond racism in a way because it's they um, they almost didn't consider them to be human. I yeah they didn't. Uh, you know and, I don't think you, yeah yeah you can't. I mean just terrible. Just a perfect storm of of horror. Yeah, it's one thing I guess to be sort of like patronizing and like we're going to civilize these heathens, right? That's kind of screwed up in its own way but like another is like no you know what um let's just destroy we're just them. gonna strip like, mine this place yeah and, yeah and that yeah. includes the people like it's just all part of the charnel like it doesn't matter yeah Ugh. okay so now conrad goes there as we said um i want to talk a little bit about the book heart of darkness okay um people don't know quick summary um you've got this old sea salt Charles Marlowe, also the prime, a primary character in Lord Jim, a book called Chance that we're not really going to talk about, and a short story called Youth. Um, so Charles Marlowe, there's the Joseph Conrad cinematic universe. Charles Marlowe is the, you know, I don't care, Iron Man. I don't know. Um, when the story starts out, Marlowe is on <laughs> the Thames with some... <laughs> Kevin is very upset. Oh, no. Now, now, we, now we have to have a post-production meeting to talk about that. <laughs> Uh, there goes my evening <laughs> he's on okay so this book starts out marlo is on the tame the thames uh, wait thames it's thames. the thames the, the thames. thames yeah i, yeah, I was close yeah. um with some other sailors including the narrator of the book so it's kind of this cool frame story just like the narrator of the book who you do not know is writing this down but primarily it's being told to you by this charles marlowe so you've got these kind of layers of layers of um uncertainty and unreliability that kind of keep you at the at a nice distance from the, from the actual meat of the story um and in this we in the actual story of it um it's a, it's much like conrad's experience marlowe goes to the congo um, he he has to finagle uh, a berth while he's in in London. He goes to the Congo. Oh, by the way, most of the Europeans working in the Belgian Free State were not Belgians. It was like almost like mercenaries types that you brought in, right? Just whoever would do it, right? Um, pr- probably prisoner, like probably ex-cons and things like that too. I'm sure. Yeah, um, no, it's like like the MFA program from hell. Yeah, right. <laughs> just like, or just like an MFA program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Marlowe gets down there to the Congo to find that the steamship is totally in wreckage; it's in pieces. Um, and he finds at first, and what's kind of cool about the book, it, it's it's not that he gets there and he immediately understands the depths of horror that are going on. At first, it just seems horribly mismanaged. At first, it's just an administrative nightmare, and it's not sure. You know, there are people suffering and things, but you can't piece it all together because you're just a guy who showed up. You don't know. And it's a again, it's in a country the size of Texas, Texas and Alaska combined. And you're at one little station. It's, you, you don't really understand what's happening. But clearly, it's like you can't get the things that you need at right. And early on, there's right. the one station where the guy's the brick maker and he's been waiting for months for like some re- part of the recipe to show up. And that's what he does now. That's his job is to wait for that thing to show up. Right. Um, there's another place that's been like waiting for, I think, rivets forever. Um, 
And all of the white men that he runs into, or a lot of the white men that he runs into, are basically either dying or losing their minds, right? They're all sort of kind of, they're, they're kind of losing it. Um, and a lot of the native African people are effectively being worked to death. That's the one thing he sees. He doesn't see this brutal economy of the hands being chopped off, but he does see that clearly like nobody cares what happens to the Congolese, right? It does mm-hmm. not matter. You just beat them and make them work until, until they die, you know, you can just die of thirst as long as you get, you know, you get the ivory or whatever. Um, yeah. Now in the book, Marlowe is supposed to go up and retrieve this guy named Kurtz, uh, from up river who's up to some you know his unsound methods if you've seen apocalypse now it's effectively the same story kurtz is up there at the head of the river and it's not even clear like you kind of have to read between the lines to understand what kurtz has actually done it's almost like he's in the way that i think of it is he sort of instituted like some kind of cult up there Right. He's drawn all these native Congolese sort of into the power of his charisma in order to extract as much ivory as possible out of the land. And he's super effective at that. This episode is called Joseph Conrad's Unsound Methods. (laughs) Okay, I like that. Is that? Yeah. Unsound Method. Uh, I think it'll just be Unsound Method. Yeah. And then uh, the Kurtz is the... uh, is like the through a shadow darkly version of the king. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it. Yep. And exactly. so how are we really, are we really that much different from the state of nature such as it is or, or whatever right. this is out here in the, yeah, the dark heart right. of Africa? Yeah. Right. Right. Wild. Right. Now we're going to talk a lot more about this book for Patreon subscribers in the, uh, the book, the book club meeting that's coming up. So we're not going to, we're not going to spend as much time as, you know, we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but I want to do it justice. So I'm going to read a bit from the bio about Heart of Darkness and then a couple of my favorite passages from from Heart of Darkness. And we'll kind of talk about that and, and how it relates to Conrad's actual life, because his time in the Congo is not that dissimilar, not that dissimilar from from um, what's as described in um, Heart of Darkness. Um, I did find this interesting, though. This is from the Jeffrey Myers um, <clears throat> biography, quote, Heart of Darkness is the first significant work in English literature to deny the idea of progress, which had been a dominant idea in European thought for the past 400 years, and to question the very foundations of Western civilization. It shows the antagonistic interests of civilization and colonialism, portrays the disastrous clash of the white man and the African, and suggests suggests the humane values that are needed to survive this conflict. Marlowe, who represents the European conscience that Kurtz has abandoned in the depths of the jungle, measures colonial experience in human and moral terms. Unlike Kurtz, he is skeptical about what Western materialism can do for the Africans and recognizes that colonialism is a completely destructive practice. He despises all the white men he meets and remains aloof from them, but he compassionately commits himself to the Africans he encounters on his journey to the interior. Their suffering reflects the white man's cruel visitation, just as their honorable restraint represents a moral standards the Europeans fail to meet. Um, I think that's fair a fair kind of take on it. Um, I do like to think about this as, is this, I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't read every everything, so I don't know, but I do like to think of this as like 
is this the first book to deny the concept of progress? And I like to think because Conrad, Conrad had a life changing experience down there, like on the on the order of like a psychedelic experience that like it's an uncharted part of the map. Right. It's the blank spot. It's the white spot on the map. And I'm going to go on there on this adventure. I'm going to become this captain and I'm going to see it. And it's going to be like a journey into myself. And I don't know if I have the quote here, but he refers to it at one point as like going on a journey into yourself, to, into the depths of yourself. And what does he find there? Hell. Right. So imagine you have this thing. You're going to go. I'm going to go find myself. And then what you find is hell, right? And you can just imagine how that's going to shake loose all kinds of things in you, right? Um, and it did for Conrad. And, 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 and even still, it's not like he had lived a privileged and sheltered life either. We're not talking no, about somebody right. who graduated from Yale and had a silver spoon in their mouth who went to, you know, went on a missionary trip to, you know, name a country for a weekend. And man, we built a latrine and oh, I'll tell you what, it's tough down there. Like, this is not what happened. You're talking sure. about, you know, a man. Who hims yeah. yeah, you're talking about a man who himself <clears throat> was sort of a detritus of history who mm -hmm. shows up in this place and it's it's beyond comprehension it's you know lovecraft's man-made horrors beyond my comprehension level right the uh yeah and the and the novel really shows that mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so i'm going to read a couple passages from heart of darkness just to kind of like you know because i feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't um again this is from the great heart of darkness. the, the man-made horrors is from from tesla not lovecraft Oh, it's not from love. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. 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 Why do I think uh, it's a Lovecraft quote? Because it sounds like, well, because he Lovecraft, you know, created horrors is responsible for yeah. some man-made horrors. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Um, okay. This is when Marlowe is talking about he has this great bit because Marlowe's whole point is like he's talking to these guys in the Thames and he's like, this is also there. Like we're not, this isn't different than there. This is just a different year than there. I love the that. In, it's right? such a staggering it's, uh, yeah. frame. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and so this is, this is the quote. So um, <clears throat> from Heart of Darkness. And this also, Marlowe said suddenly, has been one of the dark places of the earth. And he's referring to, to, to Britain, London. He was the only man of us who still followed the sea. This is the narrator talking about Marlowe now. The worst that could be said of him was that he did not represent his class. He was a seaman, but he was a wanderer too, while most sea seamen lead, if one may so express it, a sedentary life. Their minds are of the stay-at-home order, and their home is always with them, the ship, and so is their country, the sea. One ship is very much like another, and the sea is always the same. In the immutability of their surroundings, the foreign shores, the foreign faces, the changing immensity of life glide past, veiled not by a sense of mystery, but by a slightly disdainful ignorance. For there is nothing mysterious to a seaman unless it be the sea itself, which is the mistress of his existence and is as inscrutable as destiny. For the rest, after his hours of work, a casual stroll or a casual spree on shore suffices to unfold for him the secret of a whole continent, and generally he finds the secret not worth knowing. The yarns of seamen have a direct simplicity, the whole meaning of which lies within the shell of a cracked nut. But Marlowe was not typical, and to him the meaning of an episode was not inside like a kernel, but outside, enveloping the tale which brought it out only as a glow brings out a haze, and the likenesses of one of those misty halos that sometimes are made visible by the spectral illuminations of the moonshine. 
So this is also one of the reasons I kind of picked this is because this is where Conrad's sort of form is following function. He's got this nesting dolls of narrators. And then he's also saying that this is the way Marlowe perceives the world and the meaning of a story isn't that he's going to get to the bottom of it in the way like, well, we'll just get all of the facts together and then the whole thing will make sense. I mean, this is where we're really seeing, and we're not going to preach on this, but this is like where we're really seeing a turn toward what would become literary modernism, right? Like this is a, this is where we start to see, we're a generation ahead of James Joyce, but like James Joyce, this is getting into James Joyce territory. It's about how you perceive things. It's not about some rock hard, what is actually perceived. Um, uh, let me get another bit and I'm kind of jumping around, just give you some different spots from different, you know, different places in the book. Um, this is another passage. I love this one. This is when he's in the Congo. Marlo's in the Congo and he's first heading out from the station. He's finally got the boat together. <clears throat> and this is a bit that uh, Chinua Achebe, the great uh, African writer and scholar, would point out as part of his case that Heart of Darkness is a deeply racist book. Um, <clears throat> quote, going up that river was like traveling back to the earliest beginnings of the world when vegetation rioted on the earth and the big trees were kings. An empty stream, a great silence, and impenetrable forest. The air was warm, thick, heavy, sluggish. There was no joy in the brilliance of sunshine. The long stretches of the waterway ran on, deserted, into the gloom of overshadowed distances. On silvery sandbanks, hippos and alligators sunned themselves side by side. The broadening waters flowed through a mob of wooded islands. You lost your way on that river as you would in a desert and butted all day long against shoals trying to find the channel till you thought yourself bewitched and cut off forever from everything you had known once, somewhere, far away, in another existence perhaps. There were moments when one's past came back to one, as it will sometimes when you have not a moment to spare to yourself, but it came in the shape of an unrestful and noisy dream remembered with wonder amongst the overwhelming realities of this world of plants and water and silence. And this stillness of life did not in the least resemble peace. Um, let's see if I had any other ones I wanted to read one more, one more. 16. We will cover this ad nauseum around the book club event, which is later this month. The entire calendar for the book club is at the website, artofdarkpod.com. You can't miss it. Brad is also going very hard in the Telegram and on Patreon. Uh, the Telegram's mm -hmm. at t.me slash artofdarkpod. And of course, you know where the Patreon is by now. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Um, quote, the original Kurtz had been educated partly I love that he says the original Kurtz, like there was a version of him before all of this, right? The original Kurtz had been educated partly in England, and as he was good enough to say himself, his sympathies were in the right place. His mother was half English. His father was half French. All Europe contributed to the making of Kurtz, and by and by I learned that, most appropriately, the International Society for the Suppression of Savage Customs had entrusted him with the making of a report for its future guidance. And he had written it, too. I've seen it. I've read it. It was eloquent, vibrating with eloquence, but but too high strung, I think. 17 pages of close writing he had found time for. But this must be this must have been before his 
let us say, nerves went wrong and caused him to preside at certain midnight dances ending with unspeakable rites, which, as far as I reluctantly gathered from what I heard at various times, were offered up to him. Do you understand? To Mr. Kurtz himself. But it was a beautiful piece of writing. The opening paragraph, however, in light of later information, strikes me now as ominous. He began with the argument that we whites, from the point of development we had arrived at, must, quote, necessarily appear to them, the savages, in nature of supernatural beings. We approach them with the might as of a deity, and so on, and so on. Quote, uh... Quoting Kurtz, by the simple exercise of our will, we can exert a power for good practically unbounded, etc., etc. From that point, Kurtz soared and took me with him. The peroration was magnificent, though difficult to remember, you know. It gave me the notion of an exotic immensity ruled by an august, a bene- august benevolence. It made me tingle with enthusiasm. This was the unbounded power of eloquence, of words, of burning noble words. There were no practical hints to interrupt the magic current of phrases unless a kind of note at the foot of the last page, scrawled evidently much later, in an unsteady hand, may be regarded as the exposition of a method. It was very simple, and at the end of that moving appeal to every altruistic sentiment, it blazed at you, luminous and terrifying, like a flash of lightning in a serene sky. Exterminate all the brutes. The curious part was that he had apparently forgotten all about that valuable postscriptum, because later on, when he in a sense came to himself, he repeatedly entreated me to take care of what he called my pamphlet, as it was sure to have in the future a good influence upon his career. I had full information about all these things, and besides, as it turned out, I was to have the care of his memory. I've done enough for it to give me the indisputable right to lay it, if I choose, for an everlasting rest in the dustbin of progress." So, so yeah, (laughs) I, you can't do a narrow, you can't do a narrow reading of that book and dismiss it as racist or, uh, or, or otherwise. Um, No, and I I don't, I, yeah, I do. It's way more complicated than that. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's probably the easiest way to put it. Um, sure. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's the first novel to speak out against colonialism. How is it? Who are the brutes that ought to be exterminated? Well, that's a great question, right? That is a great question. <laughs> I'm not even going to answer that or try to. Yeah, we'll just um, leave that. And then, hey, the... join us on the bo- the book club if you're into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Conrad, I want to talk briefly about Conrad's experience himself in the Congro, right? Because it's largely matches Marlowe's, but it's not the same. And in some ways, it's more intense. Okay. Um, he had signed a three-year contract, right, to to work in the Congo. Now. He didn't even last a year. Apparently, less than 10% of the people would work their entire contract. Everybody gets sick or dies, basically. Um, on the on the trip down, this is talked about in the heart of in in the book, Heart of Darkness. He does see the famous scene of the ship, one of my favorite phrases in the book, firing into a continent, right? He just sees this boat just firing into the land. And this is actually uh Conrad actually saw this. Um, the very beginning of a of a French campaign against the Dahomey, which uh, the movie The Woman King that came out recently was about. Um, so just kind of a historical thing. Um, after some months in the t- this town of Matadi uh, near the coast, Conrad is uh, on his ship going up to Kinshasa. Uh, he's supposed to be go up to Kinshasa um, 
to get on his boat. But you have to go past these unnavigable cataracts in the river. So you can't take a boat up to Kinshasa, at least then. I don't know what the situation is now, but then you couldn't. So he has to cover 230 miles on foot in the jungle. Um, yeah, it takes him over a month to do this, right? And it's mosquitoes and heat and foul drinking water. And when you when you go try to go to bed at night, you just hear menacing drums off in the distance. <laughs> imagine? And people are telling you that there are cannibal tribes, and there are cannibal tribes, right? Just unbelievable. I, I right? can't even imagine. Yeah, this yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. And he's just also stay home with your very stern uh, <laughs> betrothed. Did they right. get married? Did I miss that part? Um, no, uh, he does oh, yeah. marry a woman, but that not that okay. Woman. Okay, all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, he's he. But what's crazy is while he's doing this hike, he's also writing um, Allmeyer's Folly, his first book, in a little notebook, which is just crazy, right? He has this um, feverish companion that he has to like nurse back to health. Um, this guy's practically dying and there's he he that guy appears in the book. There's a part where he's they're talking about how they have to carry a guy out on a stretcher and he weighs like 200 and some odd pounds. This apparently Ooh. happened. Hmm. Um, Conrad does encounter cannibals. Not not he's not in conflict with them. He actually doesn't have any beef with he he's fine with the cannibals. <laughs> they seem OK. And yeah, uh, you don't want to yeah. get on the bad side of the cannibals. Yeah, but he does. Apparently, Conrad at one point asks this guy, he says, you know, did you do you really eat human flesh? And the cannibal says, ah, I wish I could eat everyone on Earth. <laughs> it's so metal. It's so it is. I normally yeah. reserve that sound for Crowley. Yeah. But that yeah. deserved that. <laughs> yeah. This is a very metal episode. There's it a is. lot going on. I wish yeah. I could eat everyone on earth right right oh crazy right yeah um conrad apparently does not get on well with his boss now remember i said earlier conrad disrespect conrad loathed all of the white men he met in africa except for roger caseman it comes across in the novel as well and i think it that if you do a reading where you're looking uh for uh like a really strongly racist read of course it is i mean it's racist in the sense that that it was an extraordinarily racist time even mm -hmm. most people would say our time is still racist so right. you know right. it's there it's of a time but if you read between the lines and you pick up his uh snark mm -hmm. and the the twinge of irony in statement after statement after statement in the novel makes it very clear that he's indicting the entire system right absolutely 100 yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah he's got nothing good to say about any of the europeans basically yeah that he comes across and kurtz even kurtz is like a villain and the only like marlo's kind of trapped in his charisma charismatic orbit but also understands that he's not a good actor either right right um uh Conrad gets posted up uh, at what was called Stanley Falls, now Boyoma Falls, a thousand miles inland eventually. Um, and then he has a falling out with his boss and his boss is like, hey, you have no prospects here. Like, this is not going to work out for you. This is what Conrad's boss tells him. You know, a thousand miles middle, dead middle of Africa. And your boss is like, I don't think so, man. <laughs> um, you're four years into your PhD program right. <laughs> and your advisor pulls you aside. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. been some talk. Yeah. Mm. Now, Conrad would get dysentery and dysentery is the thing that actually allowed him to go home. Right. Um, mm. He because uh, he got very, very sick. Um, 
You know what he, I think of every time when I hear dysentery? Hmm. This is a great joke from Annie Hall, Woody Allen. Oh, I I, I thought uh, I, I heard a uh, commentary and dissent merged and formed dysentery. <laughs> I don't remember that. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's a funny line. Yeah. Um. So I've got, uh, let me read just a couple little bits. Um. Here's Conrad in a letter talking about this is when he's in the Congo. Or it might have been actually just a journal entry. <clears throat> Quote. My days here are dreary. No yes, no use deluding oneself. Decidedly, I regret having come here. I even regret it bitterly. Everything here is repellent to me, men and things, but men above all, and I am repellent to them also. From the manager in Africa who has taken the trouble to tell one and all that I offend him supremely down to the lowest mechanic, they all have the gift of irritating my nerves, so I am not as agreeable to them perhaps as I should be. Right. The manager is a common ivory dealer with base instincts who considers him a mer- himself a merchant, although he is only a kind of African shopkeeper. His name is Del Commune. He detests the English, and out here I am naturally regarded as such. I cannot hope for either prom- promotion or salary increases while he is here. And it goes on like that, right? Um, uh, and then eventually he does get to leave. And I'm just going to read this quick part about him leaving. Quote, Conrad left Boma for Belgium during the second week in December after stopping for a f- uh, of uh, 1890. After stopping for a few days to see Marguerite in Brussels, he reached London on February the 1st, 1891 and began his dismal convalescence. Uh, quote, when he arrived, his friend Hope recalled, he looked half dead with fever. So Krieger, who knew the doctor at the German hospital, got him in there and he and I used to go see him frequently. The nurse said she thought he would die. But he pulled around and in a few days was able to go to his rooms. Um, so Conrad was extremely ill and he would suffer from um, he would suffer from blackwater malaria. Um, and what blackwater malaria is, is apparently I hadn't heard of this before, is apparently a strain of malaria that will make when you're suffering a, a fit of it or an episode of it will make your urine black. Once again, so metal. Right. Right. Yeah. That is, that's not good. No, that's bad. That's not good. You don't want your, can you imagine you, you, you go to take a, take a leak in the morning and it just comes out just jet black. Oh God. Like a, <laughs> right. like a nineties goth black pleather pants from hot topic. Just right. a stream of black. Unbelievable. Right. Oh my Dark. God. Yeah. Mm. And he would later, I mean, he would later have, well, we're going to get into it in a minute. We're, we're like, I'm not going to give an estimate, but we're we're coming around the bend. Most of the biographical stuff I wanted to do was actually up to and through the Congo. So totally makes sense. And yeah. we're we're back in London now. Is that the last time he ever goes? On it's the basically water, the last time he he didn't know he was done, but he was basically done. Um, yeah. he, I think he. Might I would be done after that. I would be done after that too. Yeah, he has a couple trips to Australia, and I believe on steamships, so they're fairly, you know, uneventful mm-hmm. in a way. Sure. Um, but he does start to make, oh, one is a passenger ship, and he actually starts to make some friends who are like part of kind of high society. Um, but, uh, you know, he does have this, he does, he's in rough shape after Africa. He starts to have gout pretty bad. And I don't know, there are various causes for gout, but I have to imagine that something that gout is about a buildup of uric acid, right? And I have to imagine most people get it from like drinking or, you know, meat, like too much meat in there. There's a bunch of reasons you can get it. And it's easily, fairly easily treatable now. But I have to imagine that if you have a virus in your body that occasionally makes you pee black, that might have something to do (laughs) with you. I'm not a doctor. 
but I play I one know. on a podcast. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> one right. potato, potato. Yeah. 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 Now he had, he, he said, he said, it's kind of sad. Think about this, right? This is before he's a writer. He's not a writer now. He's just come back from the Congo. He's in his thirties. He's uh, let's see. He'd be, yeah, he'd be like in his mid thirties almost. And he says, um, I've spent 20 years of my life mastering an art that nobody needs. Right. Just, oh, and not... so now he's going to go be a writer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah good perfect. <laughs> yeah, right. Just try to swap one useless thing for another. Yeah, yeah. I am kidding. We, well, of course, we are both writers. We respect writers. Oh man, you make a very yeah, tidy living as a writer. You may not get rich from yeah. a novel, uh, right. but there are a lot of ways to make a very good living. And actually, oh. being able to communicate effectively as a writer is a very, very important skill for anyone. Oh man, uh, to me, writing is indistinguishable from thinking. So, um, yeah, so, so, and so, imagine if you get really good at writing. That's the way I think about it. Um, so anyway, uh, he's got this first book called All Mayor's Folly. He does get it published. He does get this thing published, uh, I think, in 1894. Um, and it doesn't do really, really well, but a few reviewers kind of notice it, right? He's kind of puts himself on the scene. And of course, you know, you don't get to have an overnight success. Very few people do. And the people who do, if you if it's immediate, that's usually it. A lot of times you'll kind of see this with like with various artists. It's like if the if the the success comes immediately, there's like no longevity to it. Oftentimes I've kind of noticed this pattern. So Conrad's going to Conrad has goes the long way to success. Um, uh, OK, so the first year, the year that he gives up, it's an interesting year for him. The year that he gives up the sea, he meets his wife and becomes a published writer in the same year, right? So you'll notice this. We've noticed this too in other people's career, in other people's biographies, where they have like this like hinge year where mm, like mm-hmm. suddenly a bunch of stuff happens all at once. And it's like 2023 oh. is our hinge year, Brad. It's, Ooh, yeah. oh, it's happening. That's right. Yeah, Let's do it. Good. Yeah. All right. My P doesn't have to be black for that, does it? <laughs> we got to talk on that post-production meeting, man. After that that one analogy you made, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So from All Mayor's Folly, um, which we're not going to talk about in depth. Like I said, he's got a bunch of novels. We can't talk about them all in depth. It's a it's one of his seafaring novels set in in you know the Malaysian area. Um, but after that, his reputation pretty much steadily rises until the point where basically his last book is his best-selling book, effectively. So it's a pretty much a straightforward kind of linear progression into success from here on out, from sort of the mid, mid-1890s mid on. Um, I want to describe, and we're going to describe his like later much of a big chunk of his later years in kind of four channels, at least at this part. And then we're going to talk some more we're going to get kind of to a linear narrative, but I want to talk about four aspects of his life. The first is money. Then we're going to talk about his wife and family. Then we're going to talk about his health. And then we're going to talk about his writing. And this is going to be kind of scattershot. We're going to be jumping back and forth in time a little bit. Um, Conrad, like practically every writer ever, was terrible with money. Writing paid better than it does now, of course, like a novel does or a short story does, right? But it was, you know, it was still, a, you know, we, it was a smaller, it was a small market. Um, and it was a long time before Conrad really made money, money from it, like something you could live off of. So even if you are like, hey, I can get two grand off a short story, which is a lot now, 
you know, you do two of those a year, what's that add up to, right? Um, so he's constantly borrowing money and less constantly paying it back. He's always trying to negotiate bigger advances or, or for smaller payouts in the back end and things like that. He's always looking out for hands out in terms of editing uh, places to live, et cetera, et cetera. And he's doing this like practically up till the end, maybe up until like the last decade of his life. He's got to do these sorts of things. It gets to the point late in life. I mean, this is after he's a name that he's selling manuscripts. He he has this collector he sells manuscripts to. You know, this is the first draft of Heart of Darkness. This is the second handwritten version of whatever, right? And he's selling them this to this guy. He meets a guy who is a forger who um says, you know, you know, Conrad, if you and I work together and we forge a little manuscript, say it's the first draft of Lord Jim, and I show you how to forge something and you help me out, we could sell that for a lot of money. And so he actually does this in his later years. And Doing I, crime. Right, right. But he's forging his own, quote, original manuscripts, right? Oh, yeah. wow. That yeah. is, that's unpleasant. I don't like that from no. him. No, I don't me like neither. that. Yeah, no, me neither. Mm-hmm. Um, he's around the time of. But his I also marriage. like that he's yeah. a little tricky. I like that he's a little yeah. trickster, and he sort of. Yeah, yeah, I do appreciate that. He's he's crazy. The, the world, the world dealt him a raw hand. It did. And it really did. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. He got has to get a little of his own on the back end, you know. Um, around the time of his marriage, he does get an inheritance from his uncle, Tha- um, Uncle Thaddeus, who dies. It's 16,000 rubles. I tried to figure out like how much money that is. And it was hard to, I don't know. I don't know. It was enough. It was a chunk of change. And then apparently he lost it all via the bankruptcy of some gold mining company in South Africa. It was very complicated. So he loses his entire inheritance. Um, uh, hard to tell how he much may, fault that he was. May be, uh, he, I think he's the top contender for the worst with money that we've seen yet. He might be. He might I be. think he is because, yeah, yeah this is yeah. pretty bad. Yeah, he would. Yeah. And he. this is the thing. He would always wear out his welcome. Like cause he would get an editor and the editor would be like, well, um, you know, here's two thousand dollars for this book. And and Connor would be like, well, how about five thousand for the next one? And I'd be like, well, we didn't sell any of this one. Like you, you had to prove yourself to be a, like a money making enterprise before we invest in you. Right. Um, Conrad, you know, Conrad was always pushing the envelope when it came to this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, he would get saved by occasionally by things like the Royal Literary Fund, which was, you know, the government would recognize that you were a talented artist contributing to the culture and they would give you a fairly unrestricted grant. Sounds uh, impossible now. Um, yeah, imagine. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Um, in 1902, he asks Conrad asks for a large advance from William Blackwood. And William Blackwood is the man behind Blackwood's magazine, which first serialized Heart of Darkness. Um, Conrad was so insistent about it that it basically severed the relationship with Blackwood. Blackwood was like, who played reasonably well, was just like, I can't put up with Conrad. He's asking for money all the time. <laughs> He's like uh, constantly pestering us. Um, and, and and he did this. My point is he did this with a number of other, a, a number of other people, right? He's always mm-hmm. wearing out his financial welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, because of this, because of how much he was wearing out his welcome, uh, his first 11 books were brought out by six different publishers. <laughs> he kept burning bridges. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm going to give you a little bit from uh, his agent. This is an 1899, his agent, uh, James Pinker. This is something that he said. This is some things he said about Conrad. 
Um, let's see. Oh, no, sorry. This is Conrad talking to Pinker, trying to explain to him w- w- the challenges of, of being Conrad, the writer, as a business enterprise. <clears throat> Quote, my method of writing method my method of writing is so unbusinesslike that i don't think you could have any use for such an unsatisfactory person this is him talking to his agent i generally sell a work before it is begun get paid when it is half done and don't bother the other half till the spirit moves me i must add that i have no control whatever over the spirit neither has the man who has paid the money the above may appear fanciful fanciful to you but it is the sober truth right um, and I think, you know, I think a writer, writers can relate to that. Now, here's another, uh, here's another thing about the relationship with Pinker. Um, quote, uh, this is again from the biography, the, the Jeffrey Myers biography quote, despite the prize from the Academy grants of 300 pounds and 200 pounds from the Royal literary fund in 1903 and 1908, 500 pounds from the Royal bounty fund in 1905 and a civil list fund of a uh, hundred year a d- pounds a year in 1910. I think you can multiply these by a hundred and get roughly, uh, American dollars now. So a hundred dollars a year is, um, like $10,000 a year. Um, Conrad shuddered to think how much he owed Pinker, his literary agent of the last decade, um, who frequently advanced him considerable sums of money. Conrad estimated that he lived on 650 pounds a year, and by 1908, he owed Pinker as much as 1,600 pounds. So that's, you know, over $100,000. 16. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. geez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the following Oof. year, his total debt amounted to 2,250 pounds, for which he paid 100 pounds annual interest. Pinker managed Conrad's finances, paid for milk, cigars, hotel rooms, and a new coat for Jesse, uh, Conrad's wife. He even replaced the money when Conrad's pocket was picked. When Conrad's bankers, Watson and company, failed in 1904, Pinker helped cover the overdraft of 200 pounds. In 1907, Conrad helped to settle down on a secure financial basis within the three within three years. But in 1908, his 13 books brought in less than five pounds in royalties. In 1912, he complained to the wealthy Edith Wharton that after 16 years of scribbling, he was still living from day to day. Pinker was paying Jesse's medical bills as late as 1919. That's uh, Conrad's wife is Jesse. 1919. Conrad dies in, t- in 1924, right? Um, so the money situation was always tough. Always. Yeah. Even when he up and almost, almost right up until the end, he got kind of rich right at the end. Basically. Okay. All right. Um, well, at least there's that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Now, talk. we'll talk briefly about his wife and his family. Uh, Jesse George was his wife. Uh, in, uh, it's funny. I wrote 1984, 1894 <laughs> when they met, she was, uh, uh, she was 21, uh, and Conrad was 37, which I don't know how unusual that was for the time, but it's interesting. She would be one of only two women with whom we know that Conrad had sex. So, um, there's a later affair that Conrad has, and I'll talk about that when we get there. Um, very unlikely marriage. Jesse's an English girl, right? Conrad is conrad he's a pole <laughs> barely speaks english and he's nervous yeah. and dandy and mean you know he's, he's a strange guy um <clears throat> jesse was provincial plain utterly completely alien to conrad's back i mean conrad might as well have been from mars to her right um, i think to a lot of people uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. This was yeah. kind of his strange attractive power to some people in england it was like who is this guy right um her mother 
Uh, Jesse's mother was awful. And after a few years of marriage, Conrad banned her from their house. So apparently she was like very strict and controlling and judgmental. And Conrad was just like out, never come back. Um, Jesse herself, um, her probably most prominent feature, uh, according to people who knew her, was her almost unnaturally imperturbable temperament. She basically never showed any emotion. Um, to the point her son Boris found it frightening as a child mm. that she was so like flat that mm. like, mm. yeah, it was unsettling to people. Interesting. Um, yeah. Now, Conrad had said in a letter to her uh, before they got married that, quote, uh, since we had, quote, not very long to live and no intention of having children, uh, I, I thought we might spend a few happy years together. <laughs> romantic uh, right right very romantic yeah, right uh after about a year of courting they uh they met someplace he insulted her clothes and then essentially ordered her to marry him uh this is a classic uh pua tactic you neg yeah. and then yep. you propose mm -hmm. neg mm -hmm. young yep. men neg yeah. propose <laughs> <laughs> maybe drink a, get a little drunk first <laughs> all of these I, like all of these are bad point bad tips. Uh, yeah i am i mean definitely uh, you, do not should, do that you should yeah. propose at some point but right yeah. yeah actually in fact it would be helpful i would i would love to live in a world where i didn't have the word neg in my vocabulary i would i would like to, to go back it. yeah can we go back we can never go back, can we? No, we can't go. It's a more innocent time. Yeah. Uh, oh, and then and then he so he 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 shows up. He negs her. He basically tell orders her to marry him, and then he gets food poisoning and ghosts her for three days. <laughs> He's like she doesn't even know like what just happened to her, right? Um, and then let me give you a little bit of a letter that he wrote to his cousin about Jesse and about getting married and all these things. Um, let's see if I can find it real quick. Um, yeah, here we go. Um, he's, this is Conrad writing to his cousin, quote, no one can be more surprised at it than myself. However, I am not frightened at all. This is as they're getting married, they're, they're engaged. <clears throat> I am not frightened at all for, as you know, I'm accustomed to an adventurous life and to facing terrible dangers. Moreover, I have to avow that my betrothed does not give the impression of being at all dangerous. Jessie is her name, George, her surname. She is small, not at all striking looking, to tell the truth, alas, rather plain, who nevertheless is very dear to me. When I met her a year and a half ago, she was earning her living in the city as a, quote, typewriter in an American business office of the Calligraph Company. Her father died three years ago. There are nine children in the family. The mother is a very decent woman, and I do not, and I do not doubt very virtuous as well. He would come to not like her, but mm. at this point he was okay. However, I must confess that it is all the same to me as I am not marrying the whole family. The wedding will take place on the 24th of this month and we shall leave London immediately so as to conceal from people's eyes our happiness or our stupidity amidst the wilderness and beauty of the coast of Brittany where I intend to rent a small house in some fishing village. Um, now, uh, they do go on honeymoon, but... <laughs> Catch this. Okay. This is another quote from the biography. Uh, quote, on his wedding night, Conrad was either indifferent about sex with Jesse or anxious about deflowering his bride. In any case, he felt the need to delay consummation and was more interested in catching up with his correspondence than in sleeping with his wife. He stayed up until 2 a.m. writing inconsequential letters uh, that, and then went out to post them in the middle of the night though they could not possibly be collected until morning. His anxiety continued the next day when they crossed the 
uh, channel to St. Malo and Conrad, as well as Jesse, became seasick. Um, so during their honeymoon, and their honeymoon was six months in a peasant's cottage in Brittany, right? During this time, Conrad writes a short story called, quote, The Idiots, about a woman who produces four mentally defective children and then kills her husband with scissors while repelling his sexual advances. So that in his honeymoon is the story he comes up with writing. I did not expect him to be so neurotic. He's extremely neurotic. That right? is the biggest surprise. The yeah. The childhood is a, is a huge surprise to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And then this, you would expect a different thing from the person who wrote Heart of Darkness. You'd expect sturdier stock or kind right. of like a, a Hemingway type. And instead I'm getting kind of like a weaselly, uh, kind of a bit of a money, like, uh, like a hungering after yeah I, it's yeah. not what i expected no yeah. i had the same i had the same reaction too it's like he survived mm-hmm. 20 years of sailing yeah you expect like a like a man's yeah. man yeah. right yeah yeah he's not um, like sending letters in the middle of the night while his new wife is there waiting or not waiting and right then he gets seasick after you have no permission to get seasick after 20 years at sea, buddy. <laughs> right. I, I had the same reaction i was like how did he get seasick and then made me think wait he probably was just making it up it may be right or it could be like sympathy with her or right maybe it was something they ate yeah could be yeah um he also apparently tended to run the house like he was the captain of a ship right so very explicit instructions for jesse down to when she should change clothes you know you'll change into dinner clothes at this time um he commonly and he would commonly hire a significant amount of help so even when they're like poor there's like a gardener and a maid you know, mm-hmm. which, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, uh, eventually Jesse does, uh, bear children, which again, Conrad was not really, um, looking for. Um, and he was not particularly interested in the children. Um, and apparently got upset that Jesse had somehow played him false when she got pregnant, though, what that even means is not entirely clear. Um, ah, I mean, he spent 20 years to see. He doesn't know how the plumbing works. He might not. Ever. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, of course he does. But yeah, it, yeah well, maybe. Well, who knows? Uh, who knows? We, can merely, we can merely speculate. Yeah, you don't know what conversations But how, how many them. Uh, babies have been conceived, children have been conceived when, uh, when a woman pulls a goalie uh, or, <laughs> or a man sure. does something that, you know, he ought not to if it's understood we're not trying to have a baby. It's right. It's, uh, it's right. a very easy uh, little uh, error to make there. Yeah, and, uh, and we yeah, and we don't know exactly what the sure. agreements or not agreement, you know. But right. but anyway, she, babies babies are very very ready to come into the world. That's very true. That's also very yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, point uh, larger point. Conrad apparently found the boys. There were two boys, um, particularly when they were uh, infants. Uh, quote totally objectionable. Oh no. Not good. Uh, when not your dad, good. No when your dad's like, I find this situation totally <laughs> objectionable. That's not. That's oh, not good. I find um, you right. <laughs> I object to you. Yeah, when you're an infant, <laughs> that's not <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. yeah Every good. parent finds their child. Oh, there's moments, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What the child does is <laughs> objectionable. Uh, objectionable. The yeah. child is not objectionable. Right. Right, right, right. So, yeah. Yeah, apparently there's at one point Conrad just like, it it didn't even make sense to anybody. Oh, one time he had to like hold on the train. He had to briefly hold the baby and like 
you know, they're like managing luggage and stuff. And he just found that like unacceptable. He would, when they traveled, at least for a while, he wanted Jesse and the children to pretend they weren't together. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. And at one well, point he, he hmm. in a fit of like frustration or something, he threw the bag of, of, uh, I think it was John, the second boy, he threw the bag of the boy's clothes out the train window. Oh no. Just like out of some kind of weird fit of something. My initial yeah. reaction is to like him even less, but mm-hmm. in the context of this episode and what you um, explained about his childhood, I can understand that there would be, and everything that he's seen in his life and the amount of trauma he's he's probably carrying around, I don't hold a grudge for this. It's loathsome yeah. behavior, but yeah. given what he went through and the yeah. early loss of his parents, I could see it being He's difficult. not... He's not a stable guy. Like you said, he's no. neurotic. He and he had massive depressive episodes throughout his life too, right? So he's not he's 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 a mentally he he has mental illness, really. And not to skirt blame for loathsome behavior because of that, but like you're not dealing with a guy who's got it all sure. sorted out, right? No. Um yeah. in 1905, Jesse has a a kind of a breakdown um like out of stress probably living with conrad um and something happens in this that exacerbates this knee injury that she'd had way back in 1889 and this leads to a slow downward spiral 1905 um by 1908 because of her knee thing she was in so much uh immobility and pain that they couldn't seem to treat that she was basically started to drink and eat her way into an early grave um and you know this would lead to like she gets quite large um she's uh causing scenes every once in a while when they go on travel she has to be like carted around and like put on chairs and lifted into things and it's always complicated and expensive right to to get her to go anywhere she'd have countless surgeries that never seem to actually improve anything um and so yeah that was kind of the situation and so you know that that caused obviously strain on the obviously causes major major strain on the relationship as well, right? Um, uh, of the two sons, probably the one maybe that's more sort of interesting uh, to talk about for our purposes anyway is the one named Boris, uh, Boris with a Y B O R Y S, um, just has has important ukrainian and polish patriotic lore that that leads to this name boris um conrad basically he uses a different term for it but according to conrad boris is a dud Uh, (laughs) oh oh no oh right not good um he struggled to read he was struggling to read even by the by age eight um and conrad was like i was reading two languages by that time you know um Boris would fail tests to get into both private school and later to get into the university. Um, he would come, he would be pressed into service for World War One. He would come back basically traumatized and uh, unable to really do much of anything uh, successfully or for any long periods of time. Um, so the family situation is not good and Conrad's not helping, I would say. Um, with, you know, his sort of neuroses and attitude and general, uh, general, just, I don't even know, priggishness, curmudgeonliness, neuroses. Uh, yeah. His attitude. Um, it sounds like he's just yeah. not, not, you don't expect, always expect a sailor 
to be right. the easiest person to live with. I think that's pretty understood. Somebody who spent 20 years not rooted rooted with life at home. Right. Uh, right. There are a bunch of cliches around it, aren't there? So he mm-hmm. seemed, and then you have that exacerbated by the temperament of, a, of an artist. Right. Who grew right. up in a really difficult uh, situation. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's nobody's had it. Yeah. It is a lot. Absolutely. Um, his own health. This is one of the other three of number three of the four kind of pieces I want on the table here. Uh, his own health is not great. And in particular, the word is gout, 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 gout. Okay. So every once in a while, gout would flare up and like put him in bed for days. Um, he would sometimes become the pain can be so intense in the fever. He would become delirious sometimes and start sort of shouting and Polish at people. Um, uh, he also had horrible teeth, but would not see a dentist unless something had to be yanked. And his teeth were so bad that, and he endured so much stress in writing that apparently every long novel he wrote after Lord Jim, which is most of his career, he lost a tooth. Every book caught it's described as cost him a tooth, right? So you just imagine just like this, like crunching down kind of breaking down nervously and a tooth falling out uh, as he's, as he's writing these works. Um, now this is writing. This is the other part we're going to talk about sort of in broad strokes. Conrad would often refer to himself as a slow writer. I think it probably felt like that, but I think when you look at his output over a career that's that's really just 30 years, not the shortest career, but but not particularly long either. Um he writes 20 novels plus countless short stories. That's pretty darn fat. That's pretty darn productive. Um Yet, you know, this is while being sort of plagued by gout, right, which, as we mentioned, would often interrupt him, Um, sometimes severe bouts of depression as well. Um, And then also just his struggles with the English language, right? He didn't just fall off the sea as a master of the English, English, you know, vernacular, Mm -hmm. um, especially in the written form. Let me read a little bit. You mean in the spoken form or in the written form? Well, both, both. Right. I mean, okay. You know, sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about this process because I think it's interesting. And I know that this is something Con- people always point out about Conrad. It's like, you know, he wasn't English wasn't his first language. Um, here's a little bit on. Uh, yeah. Here's a little bit on Conrad in English. Quote, when Conrad read aloud to Garnett, this is an editor and friend, um, from the early chapters of his second novel, An Outcast of the Islands, he mispronounced so many words, which he had learned from books but had never heard spoken, that Edward could scarcely understand him. Okay. Now, here is a description of how he actually spoke. Um, Let me get to it here. Um, Yeah, let's see. Um, oh yeah, here we go. Um, though no recording of quote no though no recording of Conrad's voice was ever made, it is possible to reconstruct his way of speaking from many accounts by his friends. Uh, Ford agreed with Galsworthy and Garnett that Con- Conrad's pronunciation was so faulty that he was often very difficult to understand. His use of adverbs and of shall and will was eccentric and arbitrary. He found the English. Uh, th sound troublesome and like so many for foreigners would say dis and dat he transposed v and w so that vowel became wowvel wowvel and used a sword as useth a sword 
iodine, he pronounced uridine, which his young son once took to mean you are dying. Hugh Clifford, who believed Conrad spoke French more fluently and perfectly than English, heard him describe an edit editor as a horrible personality. He would say, I thought he was afraid. Uh, <laughs> I thought he was afraid uh, instead of afraid. Um, so I asked him, but I was utterly wrong. And uh, it is uncomfortable. Oh, he would say he pronounced uncomfortable as on cum for tarble. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, and he frequently had to correct himself. So he would say something like, I bide it. I mean, I bought it. Right. So why did he choose to write in English? Was it for um, the audience? Okay. Yeah. This is a very, this is a very good question. So um, I think partially, it, it, I think it is largely for the audience. Um, I think another aspect he would tell a polish writer at one point he says well i didn't want to dirty our great polish literature with my own writing but i don't think that was actually true um i think it was because the market was there and mm -hmm. he actually you know he actually ended up reading more in english than he ever had in polish right you know mm. he he's he kind of starts coming into his own takes on his own sort of self-education on sailing ships reading english because that's what was available so sure. um so i think it's i think it's a combination of those things and i think he was also trying to become an englishman in a, in a certain sense mm -hmm. um interesting yeah um now here's a um yeah here's a little thing about now i just said he was trying to become an englishman he you know you never really can shed your place of birth right so he's always going to be a polish man um uh, and because of this, and he's in England, he's trying to be English and he's got this weird career where he's like, a he's a sailor, but he's also a writer. Um, he always seems throughout his entire life to everybody. Basically, he always seems like a man out of time. He always seems like a man from someplace else. He's never like home. Right. And I got a little bit on that to read real quick. Um, yeah, let's see here. So. Yeah, I mean, of the people so, we've covered, Burroughs was maybe as peripatetic, but in yeah. a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, but Conrad never had a home, didn't really wow. have a home. I mean, it's and, you know, I was glancing at the Wikipedia and it looks like even at this period they were moving around. Oh, they stuff. were moving around. Yeah. Like all through the marriage, he's staying in play. He would get, you know, cheap lodging or cheap rent i guess from from friends and things like that it was took a long time before they got really any stability um here's a little bit about um you know him as just kind of the outsider quote another difficulty was that conrad retained many characteristics of polish as well of uh as well as of french prose style which provided an exotic foundation and made his english seem unusual even when it was grammatically correct polish has longer sentences um, it is rich in adjectives, more sedate in pace, less ambiguous, and tends to be rhetorical. I don't know Polish, so I'm going to just take this at its word. Conrad's over-fondness for triple parallelism, especially in his early works, such as, you know, saying, um, I don't know what book this is from, but this is a quote from Conrad. All that mysterious life of the wilderness that stirs in the forest, in the jungles, in the hearts of wild men. Biographers saying that's a sort of a Polish-ism to do that kind of thing as well as uh, uh, Conrad's uh, tendency for rhetorical abstraction, such as, quote, it was the stillness of an implacable force brooding over an inscrutable intention. 
uh, are things that are more typical of Polish than English and reveals Conrad's Slavic literary legacy, right? So him bringing, him kind of smuggling in sort of Polish conventions actually, you know, in a way makes for the Conradian style, style. right? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. which then goes on to influence other people, right? Who are now trying to write like Conrad, not knowing necessarily that they're kind of trying to write like a Polish, uh, a Polishman. Uh uh, okay, um, here's one quick thing. All right, I'm bouncing around here. 7.05. Oh, we are going long, Kev. Okay, here we are. All right. Getting into the fourth hour now, I think. Yeah, we're getting there for sure. Now, um, here's a little thing about... So when nar- The Narcissist came out, there was a foreword to it, which is uh, was about Conrad's sort of perspective on art, which is interesting because he hadn't, he wasn't like a successful writer at that point, right? He was building his career and he puts this forward in that's like his perspective on, you know, what uh, the condition of art. But it's kind of interesting. So this is Conrad. And I think it gives him a, a perspective on what he thinks he's doing as a writer. Um, anyway, quote. The artist then, like the thinker or the scientist, seeks the truth and makes his appeal. Impressed by the aspect of the world, the thinker plunges into ideas, the scientist into into facts, whence presently emerging they make their appeal to those qualities of our being that fit us best for the hazardous enterprise of living. They speak authoritatively to our common sense, to our intelligence, to our desire of peace or to our desire of unrest, not seldom to our prejudices, sometimes our fears, often our egoism, but always to our credulity. And their words are heard with reverence, for their concern is with weighty matters, with the cultivation of our minds and the proper care of our bodies, with the attainment of our ambitions, with the perfection of the means and the glorification of our precious aims. It is otherwise with the artist. Confronted by the same enigmatical spectacle, the artist descends within himself, and in that lonely region of stress and strife, if he be deserving and fortunate, he finds the term of his appeal. His appeal is made to our less obvious capacities, to that part of our nature which, because of the warlike conditions of existence, is necessarily kept out of sight within the more resisting and hard qualities, like the vulnerable body within a steel armor. His appeal is less loud more profound, less distinct, more stirring, and sooner forgotten. Yet its effect endures forever. Okay, so that's what Conrad thinks the writer is doing, or the artist, more properly speaking, is doing. Um, Now, I think I want to talk briefly about Lord Jim. Um, Okay, so we're going to talk about one or two books. We're going to talk about a couple of his famous friends. We're, we're getting there. Um. Lord Jim is, I had some passages. Well, let's talk about what it is first. Okay. From Wikipedia, just a summary, because I think Lord Jim is one of maybe his three or four best books. um, And I want people to read it if they haven't already. Um, From Wikipedia, uh, an early and primary event in the story of Lord Jim is the abandonment of a passenger ship in distress by its crew, including a young British seaman named Jim. He is publicly censured for this action, and the novel follows his later attempts at coming to terms with himself and his past and past and seeking redemption and acceptance. So you have this sort of swashbuckling tale about, you know, a ship sinking and then the crew abandoning it, but then it doesn't sink and all of that. But the book is really about exorcising the guilt that's left behind of that. That's what that's what I think 
raises it out of just being an adventure story about the sea, right? Um, this book, like all of his other work, was based on actual incidents. Um, uh, in 1880, there had been a ship carrying a thousand Muslim uh, pilgrims from Singapore to, um, well, to Mecca eventually, right? Um, and there had been an accident and the white officers and crew abandoned the ship. The problem was that the ship didn't sink. And a first mate at the time of the desertion, this guy, Augustine Podmore Williams, who became the model for Lord Jim, uh, you know, Conrad had some sympathies for this guy, right? Um, you know, despite taking the stand that this abandoning your ship is an awful thing to do, he still felt sympathies for this guy who had to live with his guilt, right? And this is this is a fascinating part of Conrad. And the reason I also wanted to talk about Lord Jim. Remember, Conrad is born, remember that poem that Apollo, his father, wrote about him, about how you're a pole and sort of this notion of like, we have to fight for our freedom, we have to fight for our sovereignty, we have to push, push, up against, push back against suppression. And then Conrad just leaves. And we can make all the comments we want about that was the smart thing to do. But there's guilt that comes with that too. Right, right. right. <clears throat> should I have stayed and tried to fight for my homeland and live out the fate that, you know, my father wanted for me? Am I letting down the spirit of my father who went through all of this stuff, right, to try and make it, you know? And so I think we see Conrad sort of putting that guilt into different guises throughout his work and trying to deal with it, right? Um, that makes you know, sense. Because mm -hmm. he left, you know, he leaves Poland. He abandons sure. his land. He, abandons he his doesn't land. even write in it. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, so I think that's interesting. I think that's why part of the reason why Lord Jim is so emotionally potent, because Conrad's really wrestling with a feeling. It's not a criticism so much of like in Heart of Darkness. It, it, there's criticisms about the Empire and, and things like that. This is really like a figuring out a criticism he has of, of himself, though. There's some of that in Heart of Darkness as well. Um, I think. um let me see. Okay, I'm going to read one passage from Lord Jim. Okay. Um, and I just, and part of the thing, I'm trying to convince people who haven't read uh, any Conrad why he's worth reading. And um, I'm going uh, to show you in this like page how effective he is at introducing a character and getting you to see a character, what a, who down into like what they really are and giving you their whole life basically in a page. Okay. This is about um, just a quick brief thing. This is character is Montague Briarly, And this is a captain in the merchant service who is responsible for partially responsible for figuring out what the judgment on Lord Jim should be right the, who what should we do with this guy who abandoned his post right Montague Briarly is one of the guys who gets who's involved in this decision. Think of him as like a juror on a jury right. Um, <clears throat> Montague Briarly. Um, let's see. He seemed consumedly bored by the honor thrust upon him. He had never in his life made a mistake, never had an accident, never a mishap, never a check in his steady rise, and he seemed to be one of those lucky fellows who knew, no who knew nothing of indecision, much less of self-mistrust. At 32, he had one of the best commands going in the Eastern trade, and what's more, he thought a lot of what he had. 
There's nothing like it in the world, and I suppose if you had asked him point blank, he would have confessed that in his opinion, there was not such another commander. The choice had fallen upon the right man. The rest of mankind that did not command the 16-knot-steel steamer Osa were rather poor creatures. He had saved lives at sea, had rescued ships in distress, had a gold chronometer presented to him by the underwriters, and a pair of binoculars with a suitable inscription from some foreign government in commemoration of those services. He was acutely aware of his merits and of his uh, his rewards. I liked him well enough, though some I know, meek, friendly men at that, couldn't stand him at any price. I haven't the slightest doubt he considered himself vastly my superior. Indeed, had you been emperor of East and West, you would not have ignored your inferiority in his presence, but I couldn't get up any real sentiment of offense. He did not despise me for anything I could help, for anything I was, don't you know? I was a negligible quantity simply because I was not the fortunate man of earth, not Montague Brierly in command of the Osa, not the owner of an inscribed gold chronometer and of silver mounted binoculars testifying to the excellence of my seamanship and to my indomitable pluck, not possessed of an acute sense of my merits and my rewards besides the love and worship of a black retriever, the most wonderful of its kind, for never was a man such loved thus by such a dog. No doubt to have all this forced upon you was exasperating enough, but when I reflected that I was associated in these fatal disadvantages with 1,200 millions of other more or less human beings, I found I could bear my share of his good-natured and contemptuous pity for the sake of something indefinite and uh, and attractive in the man. As I looked at him flanking on one side of the unassuming, pale-faced magistrate who presided at the inquiry, his self-satisfaction presented to me and to the world a surface as hard as granite he committed suicide very soon after whoa and then he never explains why he committed suicide it's just like you have this entire arrangement of like the perfect man right and then he committed suicide and then conrad just lets you live with that yeah but it's a perfect man in in his own mind right right so yeah yeah i mean what is that it's very biting very mm-hmm. in, incisive and, uh, in fact, cr- almost a pretty cruel way of describing a character. It is. Yeah. 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 Mm. So it's very cool. And, and Conrad's always doing that. If you read through his stuff, like anytime he introduces a character, it's like, it's, it, it's noteworthy. It stays, <laughs> right? We're, we're well into a, a fourth hour and I can just see you get all jacked up because you got to read some prose. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, um, oh, like why excited. are we doing this show yeah. well yeah. this is why and yeah. uh, if you're still listening i hope you are brad hopes you are please mm-hmm. do support the podcast if you're into this this is a core episode this is at the heart of what we do we will be doing an additional 20 30 minutes for patreon on the after dark we'll tease that again before we uh we close this one down just want to mm-hmm. say whether you're on board for patreon or not you can support the pod in lots of different ways Tell your friends. If everybody listening to this podcast right now tells tells five people about it, we're we're gonna have no problems this year. Mm-hmm. Give us five stars on Spotify, iTunes, whatever else. Go and subscribe on YouTube. It's easy to find. Just Art of Darkness podcast on YouTube. We got to get those num- those numbers up because they're already running ads on our stuff. Right. And until we get a certain number of subscribers, like we don't see any of that. So yeah. come on now. It's yeah, the least it you can do. Yeah, and we did we did break a certain milestone. We've got over a thousand subscribers now on Spotify. Spotify, oh, cool. 
which is outstanding. And hey, uh, shout out to all the Spotify people. But uh, hey, if you're if you're there, take five minutes, go over, subscribe to the YouTube. You don't even have to look at our at our faces if you're not into it. Just do it to you know boost the numbers, help us out. Wow, we love all of you. Thank you for listening, Brad. You're crushing yeah. it. I am so into this. <laughs> okay, I've good. learned so much. I have a yeah. feeling you're going to be bringing us around home. And yeah, we're getting there. I am. Uh, take it. Take it away, okay. my friend. Yes, absolutely. So here's another thing about Conrad. He had very many famous friends, or would come to have very many famous friends that you, whose names you will know, and the ones that you don't know are actually almost as interesting as the ones you do. He was friends with H.G. Wells, right? Um, this starts out guy who wrote the Invisible Man and you know uh, War of the Worlds and and also wrote like a book that like repopularized the the sort of pedestrian study of history. Very interesting guy in a lot of ways. Wrote a dictionary at one point. Um, yeah, it came anyway. from a lot of money. His grandfather invented the well. <laughs> no, of course yeah. not. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. Get a nickel every time you draw a bucket of water. Um, uh, so uh, he, Conrad, and he become friends. Uh, Wells had written an anonymous review of a positive review of a Conrad novel. They became they became buddies, and this was a very interesting point that because one thing that Conrad got um, criticized for in his writing and sometimes in his personal life was for how pessimistic he was. Most of his works are fairly pessimistic um, uh, and, and they range. A Heart of Darkness is intensely pessimistic, right? Um, now, Wells told him at one point, uh, uh, well, that he was in a letter said he was a pessimist. And Conrad said, you to, to Wells, he said, no, 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 you don't understand. Wells, you don't care for humanity, but you think they are to be improved. I love humanity, but know that they are not. Right. So Conrad's thing is, I don't no, think you make them better or improve them or yeah. yeah know that they know that they can't. Right. Be improved. Right. 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 So that is intense. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's a different and 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 that's an interesting juxtaposition, right? Because H. G. Wells is part of like the the technocrat, like you mm-hmm. know, he's a sign of progress, right? Um. Anyway. They did like each other. Conrad would dedicate uh, the secret agent to H.G. Wells. Um, uh, Conrad was good friends with Stephen Crane, uh, author of The Red Badge of Courage, American writer. They meet in 1897. Crane uh, loves Conrad and his work, and Conrad loves Stephen Crane. Unfortunately, you know, um, Stephen Crane, famous as people probably know, dies in the year 1900 at just 28 years of age. So, you know, it's not a long term relationship, but it was powerful while it lasted. Um, The last letter that Stephen Crane ever wrote was, in fact, to a man named Sanford Bennett, who's a really interesting character we're not going to dig into. But Wikipedia Sanford Bennett people who are listening to this interesting character. Um. And uh, basically, Stephen Crane's last letter was to the Stanford Bennett guy asking for any guidance about helping Conrad with his gout. That was the last thing Stephen <laughs> Crane wrote. The letter Interesting. Hmm. Um, Ford Maddox Ford was a good friend, uh, also known as Ford Maddox Hoof- Hoofer. 
uh, Moe's English writer best known for the novel The Good Soldier and more so for being the editor of the English Review, which the first edition of brought together Thomas Hardy, Henry James, Conrad, John Galsworthy, the author of the Foresight Saga, W.H. Hudson uh, and H.G. Wells into one volume in 1908. This was a it's kind of a big literary event. I mean, it's before all the literary modernism stuff really kicks off. But in 1908, this was a big deal, this 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 journal coming out. Um, Ford would become a very close friend of Conrad. And Conrad would even live at one of Ford's homes, the famous Pent Farm, where the Conrads reside for a number of years. Um, and this got living there got Conrad close to all of these people so they could visit each other for dinner. Um, Stephen Crane and Ford Maddox Ford and H.G. Wells, Henry James and some others. Um, and then Conrad and Ford would actually become literary collaborators. They wrote a few novels together, The Inheritors, Romance, The Nature of the Crime. Most critics believe that neither, none of the books they wrote together were as good as the books they wrote separately. <laughs> so it wasn't very beneficial, apparently, that they, and I haven't read any of these, but, but that seems to be the consensus. Um, Conrad uh, didn't seem to like Ford as much as Ford liked Conrad. Conrad would kind of diminish Ford's talents when he was out of earshot. Um, but at the same time, Conrad would end up relying on him for money and housing. And Conrad would also kind of lean on Ford to like stimulate his creative powers and conversation. Um, there was even a time there was a time when um, they were serializing. Which book was it? It might have been Nostromo when Nostromo was being serialized where for, uh, Conrad couldn't keep up and 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 Ford ended up like writing some passages and it went unacknowledged for years. Um, hmm. Ford, though, was, you know, Ford is an interesting character, too, because he's he comes out of nowhere. He writes the English review and then he thinks he's like the best literary mind in England because he's the editor of a successful issue of a journal right and he's like suddenly he's wearing furs and like just making oh god just ass of himself oh jeez right? yeah yeah so so it's just kind of funny so ford and ford and conrad's relationship kind of kind of came and went in terms of intensity they had some fallings out um the big kind of falling out came from two reasons uh one was uh Ford had Conrad uh, contributing to his was serializing something in the English review and couldn't keep up. And so Ford wrote publicly that Conrad couldn't keep up because he was sick. Right. It was written in nice terms, like, unfortunately, in this issue of the English review, Conrad, you know, and but Conrad took offense to it. Like he did not want it said in public that he was was ill. He, he was very upset about it. Also, he found out that one of the financiers of the English review was a Russian. Uh, so <laughs> and he, don't, he did not like Russians. He would always say he had no problem with Russians, but like if it ever came up, he was no, um, that guy's a Russian. Um, we'll talk a little bit slightly about his, uh, his love for the Russian writer Turgenev though. Um, Conrad would become friends with Henry James, uh, brother of William James, American author of Daisy Miller, Portrait of a Lady, uh, Story of a Year, a bunch of other stuff. Henry James was kind of considered the sort of American literary genius of his generation by many people and the generation following. Um, Conrad himself saw Miller as the only living writer in English who was his equal. 
Um, and, Miller, Miller, or I'm sorry, uh, Miller. yeah, yeah, James, James. Sorry, Conrad right. saw Henry. Thank you, Conrad saw <laughs> Henry. Yep. Yeah, yeah, James. Conrad, Conrad saw Henry James, the only living writer who was his equal. Um, they they weren't as close of friends as some of these other people, but it's just kind of interesting that he was there. Uh, Henry James did help Conrad get the Royal Literary Fund uh, award, which was about $30,000 at the time. So it had seriously helpful when you're a guy who's, you know, asking for handouts from everybody. Um, and uh, yeah, and so Henry James generally was helpful in his career. Now, there's another guy who's fascinating that I'd never heard of. I'd heard of all of these people and learned a little bit about them. But there was a guy named Cunningham Graham who... Very interesting. Okay. So he's the first socialist member of the UK Parliament, founder of the Scottish Labour Party. He was a journalist. And most interesting to Conrad, he was an adventurer who'd um, sort of, who'd gone, who'd had a refined European education and then went off to Argentina to make a fortune cattle ranching, right? He'd gone searching for a forbidden city in Morocco. Um, disguised as a sheik, you know, so he could get through the various villages and things. He'd become a friend of Buffalo Bill in Texas and taught uh, sword fighting in Mexico City, right? And so when Conrad met this guy, he was he he just loved him. He loved this like adventurous life that the guy had lived for sure. And um, Cunningham Graham, it, it, sort of in reciprocity, loved Conrad's work um, and uh, actually had reached out to Conrad when um, Conrad's sh- short story, An Outpost of Progress, had come out. This was a, a book that was all a, a story that was also set in the Congo, kind of a precursor of Heart of Darkness. When that story came out, Cunningham Graham reached out to Conrad and said, this is amazing. You know, I'd like to meet you. And I'm sure he was interested in a report from the Congo, an adventurous guy like that, you know, probably the first thing he ever read that might have been an indication of what was happening on that uncharted piece of the map. Graham would become uh, the inspiration for a major character in the novel, Nostromo. Um, And we haven't talked much about that book, but it's definitely worth, I I plan to read it. It's one that I haven't actually read and I would love to read it when I've got a minute. Um, One thing worth saying about Nostromo is F. Scott Fitzgerald is quoted as saying, I would have rather have written Nostromo than any other novel. Hmm. So it's a big deal. It was important to all, you know, it was important. It was hugely influential, obviously, um, since Fitzgerald is arguably more influential than Conrad. Right. And this is his, this is the novel he looks up to the most. And we will be doing part one of Fitzgerald here live in St. Paul, Minnesota this yeah. June. I cannot right. wait. That's gonna it's going to be, be fun. Yeah. yeah. Stay tuned for that, for details. Yeah. 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 Let me give you a quick, um, this is a, uh, this is a letter. So here's another thing that that Conrad liked about Cunningham Graham. Um, Cunningham Graham, despite all of his adventures, was a pessimist and probably a misanthrope and saw really no, didn't favor progress, saw really no future. Um, and so I think Conrad saw him as a fellow traveler, like in that regard as well. We've both seen the world and we both know that on that uncharted piece of the map is a heart of darkness. Right. We both know this. Here's a letter that Conrad wrote to Cunningham Graham, Um, quote, faith is a myth and beliefs shift like mists on the shore. Thoughts vanish. Words once pronounced die. And the memory of yesterday is as shadowy as the hope of tomorrow. 
In this world, as I have known it, we are made to suffer without the shadow of a reason, of a cause, or of guilt. There is no morality, no knowledge, no hope. There's only the consciousness of ourselves which drives us about a world that is always but a vain and floating appearance. A moment, a twinkling of an eye, and nothing remains but a clot of mud, of cold mud, of dead mud cast into black space, rolling around an extinguished sun. Nothing. Neither thought, nor sound, nor soul. Nothing. That's Conrad mm. in a personal letter. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's something you could have pulled from Kurtz's report, 17-page report that said exterminate all the brutes, right? Like, yeah. Um, you can tell it's I'm, somebody who's uh, suffered from depression. Yeah, right, yeah. Right, right. And physical Up, pain. and Above yeah. average, yeah, suffering. Yeah, yeah 100%. Now, I want to talk, we're in a part of my notes called Late Conrad. So, you know, we're getting there. Okay. <laughs> so starting um, with the book, uh, The Secret Agent, I think we find ourselves in Late Conrad, Mature Conrad. Um, this is comes out in 1907. So when Conrad is, say, 40, what would he be? 50, about 50 years old. Um there's like nine novels still after this and some of them are quite good so he's a very productive he's, he's a busy man um again despite him saying how how slow he is as a writer i think when he says i'm a slow writer i think what he means by that is i write for 12 hours straight and i only get a, a couple pages out of it but then i just do that every day until the book's done mm -hmm. right and so sure. that does feel slow if you work all day and you get a page or two, but you keep doing it. It builds up. Um, um, now, the secret agent. Um, some people will claim that the secret agent is Conrad's most accomplished novel. I don't know what that means, but like, what does it mean when someone says accomplished? I, I'm not quite sure exactly. Fully realized, um, you know, you're the Mary's Mary's different yeah. parts of like style with originality, genius, and then mm -hmm. also uh, story. Yeah. You know, every character fully real, you know, yeah, that would be my, but it can mean anything, right? What is it even? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I do. I've read it. Um, I do think it is a great work of fiction. Is it as good as Heart of Darkness? it's not doing the same. It's not trying to do the same thing as heart of darkness. So I have a hard time comparing them. It is great. And it's, it's good. It's a, it's a worthwhile read. It's actually, it's also entertaining and it's not as, it's not as dark as heart of darkness. Um, the basic premise is that a bomb. Um, okay. The basic premise is that a bomb goes off, right? You've got this lazy smut peddler guy. He literally owns like a kind of a porn shop for 1907 London. Right. Um, and he's also employed as a spy by a foreign embassy and, you know, by some foreign, he's living in London, but some foreign embassy employs him as a spy um, out of fear that he's going to lose his paid position. So a new regime comes in in the embassy and they really kind of they're like, listen, you haven't done anything for us. We need you to stir some stuff up and or else you're going to lose this. And it's he's getting like a monthly stipend to just he'd been like 
you know, doing like organizing. He's he's part of like an anarchist group, but the anarchist group doesn't really do anything but meet and complain, right? <laughs> um, Nothing changes. Right, right. Yeah. So now what do they want him to attack? Like they basically say, like, you need to set off a bomb. And we don't necessarily want to kill anybody or anything, but what we need to do is stir up some chaos because and it's interesting because it's kind of it's kind of complicated. They're not trying to um undermine England entirely. The idea is this co- this country uh, which is goes unnamed um is seeing that basically England is becoming liberal and open and that's making country people on the continent want to also become more liberal and more open, right? And 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 fewer restrictions in this sort of thing. So what this foreign government wants our hero, quote unquote, to do is set off a bomb so that England kind of tightens down again, right? Starts to kind of rein things in, get try to get things under control. These crazy anarchists are blowing stuff up, right? Um, so, so the smut peddler decides he has to do this because he needs his he needs his monthly stipend, and he gets uh, involved with an associate that's known only as the professor, and the professor is. I mean, if Kurtz is one of the best uh, villains in literary history, the professor's up there too. Like the professor is a great character. He's played uh, by Robin Williams in one of the film adaptations, actually. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you one bit. This is going to be Verloc getting his assignment. I was going to read the bit that the professor is talking where where we meet the professor but it's it's so scattered around this is the thing well no you know what i will read that because there's one good paragraph but first i'm going to read you verloc who is the lazy smut peddler getting his assignment um to bomb something um and it's quite interesting um as sort of commentary um read i'm gonna be topping my water off as you do all right copy that bring it on all right so this is this is the um sort of administrator um, who is sort of an ambassador and he's telling Verloc, <clears throat> who is our lazy smut peddler, um, that he's got to blow something up. Quote, this is what you should try for an attempt upon a crowned head or on a president. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Um, an attempt upon a crowned head or on a president is sensational enough in a way, but not so much as it used to be. It has entered into the general conception of the existence of all chiefs of state. It is almost conventional especially since so many presidents have been assassinated. Now let us take an outrage upon, say, a church. Horrible enough at first sight, no doubt, and yet not so effective as a person of an ordinary mind might think. No matter how revolutionary and, and anarchist in inception, there would be fools enough to give such an outrage the character of a religious manifestation. And that would detract from the especial alarming significance we wish to give to the act. A murderous attempt on a restaurant or a theater would suffer in the same way from the suggestion of non-political passion, the exasperation of a hungry man, an act of social revenge. All this is used up. It is no longer instructive as an object lesson in revolutionary anarchism. Every newspaper I have, every newspaper has ready-made phrases to explain such manifestations away. I am about to give you the philosophy of bomb throwing from my point of view, from the point of view you pretend to have been serving for the last 11 years. I will not, I will try not to talk above your head. The sensibilities of the class you are attacking are soon blunted. 
Property seems to them an indestructible thing. You can't count upon their emotions either of pity or fear for very long. A bomb outrage to have any influence on public opinion now must go beyond the intentions of vengeance or terrorism. It must be purely destructive. It must be that and only that beyond the faintest suspicion of any other object. You anarchists should make it clear that you are perfectly determined to make a clean sweep of the whole social creation. But how to get to that appallingly absurd notion to the heads of the middle classes so that there should be no mistake? That's the question. By directing your blows at something outside the ordinary passions of humanity is the answer. Of course, there is art. A bomb in the National Gallery would make some noise. But it would soon not be serious. But it would not be serious enough. Art has never been their fetish. It's like breaking a few back windows in a man's house. Whereas if you want to make him really sit up, you must try at least to raise the roof. There would be some screaming, of course, but from whom? Artists? Art critics and such like people of no account? Nobody minds what they say. But there is learning. Science. Any imbecile that has got an income believes in that. He does not know why, but he believes it matters somehow. Science is the sacrosanct fetish. All the damned professors are radical at heart. Let them know that their great panjandrum has got to go too, to make room for the future of the proletariat. A howl from all these intellectual idiots is bound to help forward the labors of the Milan conference. They will be writing to the papers. Their indignation would be above suspicion. No material interests being openly at stake, and it will alarm every selfishness of the class which uh, should be impressed. They believe that in some mysterious way, science is at the source of their material prosperity. They do. And the absurd ferocity of such a demonstration will affect them more profoundly than the mangling of a whole street or theater full of their own kind. To that last, they can always say, oh, it's mere class hate. But what is one to say to an act of destructive ferocity so unthinkable as to be incomprehensible, inexplicable, almost unthinkable, in fact, mad? Madness alone is truly terrifying, inasmuch as you cannot placate it either by threats, persuasion, or bribes. So this foreign government wants our lazy smut peddler to blow up the Greenwich Observatory to attack the very concept of science at the heart of progress in the 20th century. It's still called Greenwich Mean Time. Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. It's where time is marked in the world mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. intense yeah. symbolism yeah, so they're, there yeah. they're trying to send a bomb right into the heart of that right and mm-hmm. i just think that's very like for after a century of terrorism and all its forms that we've seen since this this is a very interesting if it, it's a very interesting perspective to have on this and it's a book that has been referred to like um, apparently, I don't remember this, but apparently like around 9-11, there was a lot of discussion about this book hmm. as like, can we understand something about the motivations of the terrorists? Hmm. Interesting. The well, agents? and once again, we're right back on the Thames. I mean, the Greenwich is right there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, this good is pass, good a, passage. Yeah. Yeah. It is a little on the long side, but um, bear with me. Um, here's another one. So. This isn't uh, our lazy smut peddler meeting him, but another guy in his fraternity of anarchists. They they he stumbles upon this guy named the professor, and the professor is a bomb maker. And so, if you're an anarchist or another political activist in London and you want a bomb, he's the guy that you go see. Now, um, uh, 
I, I it's tricky to know exactly which parts to read because it's so scattered. But here's the thing. The professor will give a bomb to anyone. He doesn't care. He he doesn't care who gets the bomb. And he's trying to explain <laughs> this to the anarchist that to him cool. it does not matter who the because he's the perfect anarchist, right? So to him for the purposes of anarchy of bringing down the system it doesn't matter who has the bomb some men just want to watch the world burn exactly exactly mm -hmm. and then i don't even think i'm going to read a passage because i can kind of explain it now he has this other thing his I, I will end up reading one 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 paragraph that's really good but okay this is the other thing all of the police and all of the anarchists and political activists know who the professor is, but nobody does anything about him. And the reason they don't do anything about him is because he always has a suicide vest on and he has a little India rubber ball that he can squeeze. And when he squeeze it, squeezes it within 10 seconds, uh, a bomb with a basically a, a sphere of influence of about 60 yards will go off and it will kill him and everybody. That is an incredible character. This is like right. a, this is kind of like a comic book movie. A bit, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. And and it's funny. What I'm not capturing here is the humor because it is kind of funny and ironic. It's menacing yeah. and a little scary. Suicide like, vests kind of are funny. hilarious. No, not that part. <laughs> no, okay. All right. Other, other parts. Well, you get this kind yeah. of like lazy, portly. Humor uh, is subjective, Brad. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I find it, I find it a lot of the book quite ironic and quite funny, but yeah. not. But but I I think this is a great like and he will talk about like he he the fact this is why the police don't the police don't do anything about him. Right. And there's, in fact, a, a police officer who's a major character, this guy named Chief Inspector Heat, who um, not to give too much away. He's very concerned that the professor not be involved because he doesn't want to deal with the professor. Right. Like you don't want to be the guy that has to go apprehend him. Right. And he walks around with this knowledge. The professor does that. Like he's basically untouchable. And why is he untouchable? Because he's willing to play the game all the way to the end. Right. And then his point also is like, well, because then one of the other anarchists says, you know, somebody should just shoot you from a distance. And then he says, well, the problem with that is um, they would have to go against their whole system to do that. Like you would have to, it wouldn't become a self-defense thing. It would, uh, become, it would become murder. Indeed. And then you would have to go against, and then he, and then his point is like, and then I still get what I want, right? Because that one guy had to go against the system to do it's it. It's like, it's like a character that's a logic problem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of, and it's kind like of proto the, the Riddler or the Joker. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Now, and then he's arguing with this anarchist, right? And, and he says, um, this is kind of good. Um, he's, so he's arguing with this anarchist, right? And he says, the professor does, you are not a bit better than the forces arrayed against you, than the police, for instance. The other day I came suddenly upon Chief Inspector Heat at the corner of Tottenham Court Road. He looked at me very steadily, but I did not look at him. Why should I give him more than a glance? He was thinking of many things, of his superiors, of his reputation, of the law courts, of his salary, of newspapers, of a hundred things. But I was thinking only of my perfect detonator. <laughs> <laughs> so his whole point, like his whole thing is he's narrowed his political philosophy and everything down to if you build the perfect detonator, it's 
entangled with everything else that he wants to have happen. It's really expertly done, honestly. Wow, I have uh, um, so much reading to do for the pod and and other things, but this is really interesting. This sounds like a very good novel. Yeah, it's quite yeah, it's quite good. Yeah, um, and there's so much intrigue. It's layers upon layers. Everybody has personal motivations and then public motivations, and they're all sort of like they the the kind of the drama of the book is when they that they all come into conflict with each other, right? Um, uh, okay. So <clears throat> moving along, um, now as he's putting these books out, 1907 secret agent comes out and it sells reasonably well. And, and things are, things are kind of progressing. As we said earlier, his career kind of progresses more or less linearly until he's eventually quite successful and quite well known. Um, but the critical the critical success kind of lags the commercial success in a way. Um, the novels Nostromo, even the secret agent, the one, the political novel he writes after the secret agent under Western eyes, these go basically under or unremarked by the critics. So question is sort of like, okay, how is, why is Conrad important? So the critics at the time didn't really acknowledge him in a way. So what, and we say he's an important writer. What does that even, what does that even mean? Right. Um, how about, so let's think about this, Kevin, can you tell me another, uh, writer of the 20th century who is important, who is also known for his adventurous masculine life? Hemingway. Hemingway. Okay. Here's what Hemingway had to say about Conrad. And, and Hemingway, I think is undisputably important in, in English language writing. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't even think we have to nobody. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, um, he said that he would have <laughs> Hemingway said that he would have gladly pursued T.S. Eliot with a sausage grinder. If quote, grinding Mr. Eliot into a fine dry powder and sprinkling that powder uh, over Mr. Conrad's grave would bring Conrad back to life. Um, Conrad or Hemingway would say in a write in a essay called Conrad Optimist and Moralist that came out shortly after Conrad died. Um, Hemingway says, "Quote: It is fashionable fashionable among my friends to disparage Conrad. Even it is even necessary. Living in a world of literary politics where one wrong opinion often proves fatal, one writes carefully. It is agreed by most of the people I know that Conrad is a bad writer, just as a just as it is agreed that T.S. Eliot is a good writer. And now Conrad is dead, and I wish to God they would have taken some great acknowledged technician of a literary figure and left him to write his bad stories. Right. Or sorry. Yeah. Now, he's basically saying, I wish they would have taken T.S. Eliot instead of Conrad. Sure. Right. Yeah. And T.S. Eliot, we all, you know, we're all, oh, come T.S. Eliot. Oh, or T.S. Right, Eliot, right, the right. Wasteland. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so um, here's another thing uh, about the direct influences of Conrad on Hemingway. And, and what I've read of Conrad, I think you don't really see that influence on Hemingway because Hemingway is sort of archetypally or sort of famously known for these sh very efficient sentences. And I don't think Conrad is efficient in that same way. Um, there's a little bit, there's a little bit of an ornate quality to, to, to a lot of, uh, a lot of Conrad's work. So it's, it's not easy to see the influence, but uh, let me read this a little bit. So, um, this is from, uh, from an essay by, um, where did it go? 
Uh, this is from an essay called Hemingway and Conrad by a gentleman named, uh, oh shoot, what's his, what is, I think I may have lost his name. Apologies. Um, no worries. Uh, anyway, Hemingway, uh, quote, Hemingway worked 10 months before he wrote the final ending for A Farewell to Arms, one of his most famous books. However, what uh, Reynolds, uh, this is a person who is who uh, Reynolds is a earlier reviewer and critic um, and scholar of Hemingway. However, what Reynolds does not explain and what the manuscript evidence does not reveal is that after those 10 months of frustration, Hemingway returned to his source for the ending of The Sun Also Rises. Working that summer in 1929, as he told George Plimpton, Plimpton at getting the words right for the ending of his new novel. At this time, Hemingway read, remembered, or perhaps in his search, reread Conrad's short story, A Smile of Fortune, discovering the image which so brilliantly concludes a farewell to arms. So um, in, a, in A Farewell to Arms, he says the end, basically at the end, I don't know if it's exactly the end, but it's near the end. Um, Hemingway says, uh, no, sorry, I'm sorry. Conrad says the garden at the end of a smile of fortune. Conrad says the garden was one mass of gloom, like a cemetery of flowers buried in the darkness. And she in the chair seemed to muse mournfully over the extinction of light and color. Only whiffs of heavy scent passed like wandering fragrant souls of that departed multitude of blossoms. I talked volubly, jocularly, persuasively, tenderly. I talked in a subdued tone. Um, to a listener, it would have sounded like a murmur of a pleading lover. Whenever I paused expectantly, there was only a deep silence. It was like offering food to a seated statue. Okay, that last sentence. It was like offering food to a seated statue. The final ending for A Farewell to Arms uh, basically ends on the same thing. He says, uh, pulling the... Oh my gosh, did I not get... Oh shoot. No, no, no. He says... But after I had gotten them out and shut the door and turned off the light, it wasn't any good. It was like saying goodbye to a statue. After that, I went out and left the hospital and walked back to the hotel in the rain. That's the last sentence. So the second to last sentence of one of Hemingway's most acclaimed novels is borrows the image directly from Conrad from a story we know he was reading while he was working on it. Right. So these influences are like small scale and large scale on Hemingway and others. And Fitzgerald says, you know, there's no novel I would have rather written than Nostromo. Hmm. Um, okay. We're getting close to the end. Um, in 1914, I just have to give the, put this in here. 1914, the most uneventful year in European history, as everyone knows, Conrad goes to Poland with his children for the first time in 21 years. While he's there, a little thing called the Great War breaks out. So while they're bouncing around Krakow and then eventually making it to Vienna, uh, they are basically watching Eastern and Central Europe descend into war while he's on holiday. Uh, they see soldiers returning from the front. His, his wife, Jessie, sees a barrel full of limbs in the street. They see the whole thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's like... He doesn't need any. it's just like there's a certain kind of silliness to it like not silliness but like conrad didn't think the great war was going to happen when he heard about um franz ferdinand being assassinated he's like ah who's that guy that guy doesn't matter nothing's going to happen right <laughs> um and he just goes to goes to poland um mm. he's his big fear about world war one is that 
basically there were people in Poland who thought this might be an opportunity for Polish sovereignty and independence. And Conrad was worried that the Polish people would basically just be sacrificed on this war, just be used for cannon fodder, right? Um, anyway, they do, they hide out in a Polish resort, mountain resort for a while, and then eventually kind of smuggle themselves back or sneak back across the border and get themselves back to England. But for several months during World War One, they are near... Um, they're near, they're near the battle. Um, uh, he has a couple other novels, novels come out after this. Um, a big one that was po- quite popular and really got attention in America was v- the novel victory, which is, which is quite good. Not going to go into depth on it. Cause like I said, he has a lot of novels. This is a more of a seafaring one. There is some sort of espionage and intrigue and there's, there's a dispute over a, a bat guano deposit on an Island and all these things. It's very kind of pulpy, but with, with Conrad's, you know, erudition and, and, and depth. Um, and, uh, Victory brings up one thing about his life that's interesting. We talked about his sort of sexual hangups, and it's not clear what was going on there exactly. Um, in Victory, Conrad has a character, a villain, who is pretty clearly homosexual, though it's not stated. Um, and this gives us maybe our sense of what Conrad's attitudes towards homosexuality were. I mean, you make your villain the only gay character you've ever had in your Uv is a nasty villain. That says one thing, right? Um, and Conrad would may have to make disparaging comments about Oscar Wilde and some other well-known, you know, homosexual men of his day. Um, and yet, interestingly enough, he had a lot of gay friends. Um, mm. Some of which he would have known, clearly knew. Um, his tr- French, tr- his tr- the the man who tr- translated his work into French was gay. Uh, Hugh Walpole, who became a good friend of his, was gay. Roger Casement, who we've mentioned before, the man he met in the Congo, was gay. Um, Andre Gide, who is a friend of Oscar Wilde um, and whose most famous book is called Corridon, which is basically a series of Socratic dialogues about homosexuality uh, and and pederasty. Um, he and Conrad were good friends. Um, Conrad was very good friends with a man named Norman Douglas, who most people don't, it's not a name that rings a bell for most people. Norman Douglas was an English writer about 10 years younger than Conrad. Um, he'd moved to Capri, uh, where Conrad met him on holiday, um, and buddied around Capri with like, you know, opium addicts and the sort of the riffraff. In 1916, Norman Douglas was jailed on sexual assault charges on a 16-year-old boy. Um, And when this happened, Norman Douglas was and Conrad were such good friends that Douglas's son, Robin, would often stay with the Conrads on school holiday. And so when Douglas was jailed, Conrad like took over taking care of Norman Douglas's son for a while. Wow. Right. So he clearly knew what was going and he, he had a sense sure. of like, we have to protect Robin, the boy, from knowing what his dad did too. like, we have to keep it like secret with from the family. Mm. So he has a he has a complicated relationship. I, you know, like a lot of people, I think you have one opinion about a phenomenon out there in the world. But when it's in your personal life, it's very different. Right. You know, a person mm-hmm. who is that thing, you know, so just a kind of interesting sort of note. Um. He does have an affair with a woman named Jane Anderson. Uh, <laughs> she's 
They meet in 1916, and she's about 30 years younger than him. Uh, hmm. She is an American. She's from Atlanta. She uh, like came to England as a journalist and kind of, um, I think it's fair to say she sort of slept her way into positions uh, within sort of English journalism and public eye. Uh, and, you know, she had this kind of American free spiritedness that, you know, English, very proper, upright Englishmen found like irresistible. Um, and Conrad was Conrad, despite the fact that she may have been the second person Conrad ever slept with. Conrad was not immune to her charms. <laughs> um, I wonder if he really only slept with those, those two women. I, well, I highly doubt thing. it. I but think yeah. so. I mm -hmm. think that's probably true. And I think he's just better at concealing it or, you know, whatever than some of maybe our other, our other subjects who are a little bit more free talking about it. Um, uh, the one thing that's kind of screwy with this one is like, she came out, she had asked to, um, through some connections she had to meet Conrad. She just wanted to meet Conrad, the great writer. And she came out and she eventually became like a friend of the family. And she was around all of the time. And like, she was friends with Conrad's wife and it got very weird. And then just like, at some point they started sleeping together. And then of course, Jesse found out about it and she was outraged. Um, you know, it was, uh, it's just something that happened. It's it's kind of there. Jane Anderson is an interesting figure. Um, she she was like a family friend of Wild Bill Cody, which you know, which is interesting. Um, yeah, she's like she's she's a bit of a trip, you know. Um, and you can kind of imagine her. You could look a picture of her up. Jane Anderson's kind of hard to Google, but if you look Jane Anderson nineteen sixteen or something, you'd probably find it. Um, and you can just imagine her just showing up in sort of wartime England and just driving everybody a little bit crazy. <laughs> like, you know, just, just every, the women kind of being, oh, my gosh, clutching their pearls and the men <laughs> yes, getting sure. all like, yeah, getting all stressed no. out. Mm. Yeah. Um, OK, we're getting very close now. We're into the final years, the final, final years of Conrad. Um, Conrad would, as I said, spend his final years. I don't know about quite rich, but but doing pretty well. The Rescue, uh, basically his last novel, would sell 50,000 copies, which is a lot. Um, he'd become friends with T.E. Lawrence, which is just kind of interesting. And T.E. Lawrence would try and tell him that all of the all of the, you know, Lawrence of Arabia stuff was all BS. <laughs> um, uh, Conrad would wait around for a Nobel Prize. He thought that he was going to get it on at least two occasions. And then he lost to another Polish writer, which was very confusing and frustrating for him. Um, he would make these um, just terrible failures of forays onto the stage and screen. He was not well adept at writing for, for, for the theater. Um, mm. They tried to turn the secret agent into a silent film and they like drained all of the humor out of it. And it just didn't work at all. Mm. Yeah, just didn't just didn't understand how. Just that's fine. Just new medium. It wasn't his thing. Um, but he would become celebrated in America as well. Um, and you know, last few years there's kind of an uneventful sort of elder statesman of literature. Um, I want to give you a description since we've given a couple physical descriptions of him. I want to give you a description by his sculptor. So a man. Um. Uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name right now, but it will be right here. This is again from the biography. And I just thought it was a kind of lovely description of a man. You know, it is in his final years and days. <clears throat> um, his, his sculptor was named 
Epstein. Um, uh, no relation. I don't. Think. <laughs> uh, and this is he's, he's he's sculpting a bust of Conrad. Um, Epstein noticed Conrad's hooded eyelids and deep-rooted sense of despair about his work, and he would have this to say: "Quote: Conrad had a demon expression in the left eye." while his right eye was smothered by a drooping lid, but the eye glowed with a great intensity of feeling. The drooping, weary lids intensified the expression of brooding thought. The whole head revealed the man who had suffered much. Conrad gave me a feeling of defeat, but defeat met with courage. He was crippled with rheumatism, crotchety, nervous, and ill. He said to me, I am finished. There was pathos in his pulling out of a drawer his last manuscript to show me that he was still at work. There was no triumph in his manner, however, and he said that he did not know whether he would ever finish it. I am played out, he said, played out. He appeared a lonely, brooding man with none too pleasant thoughts. Okay, so then during this kind of sculpting process, and we're coming right to the end here. Um, I'm just going to read this. I think it's quite good. <clears throat> Epstein, again, Epstein's a sculptor making the, the final bust of Conrad. Epstein mentioned that Conrad, who, who suffered from hypertension related to gout, had had a mild heart attack while he was posing, and complaints about ill health, which made him savage, misanthropic, and pessimistic, as well as expressions of longing for death, became frequent during the last years of Conrad's life. On November 12, 1923, uh, Dr. Fox of nearby Ashford told him in his horrid way that he had, like, uh, like Ransom in the Shadow Line, one of his, Conrad's last books, a, quote, flabby heart. Though Conrad feared a breakdown in health and a lingering end, he also believed that gouty people went out suddenly. A week later, he described himself to Hugh Walpole as a tottering, staggering, shuddering, shivering, crocky, seedy, gouty wretch. Jesse noticed that, noted that in 1924, he suffered such severe fits of depression that he could scarcely rouse himself to speak. And he told his friend Richard Curl that he was conscious of his approaching death and was not very sorry to die. On July 3rd, 1924, he repeated an expression he had used in a desperate letter to H.G. Wells in October of 1905 and told Major Ernest Dawson, quote, I feel and probably look horribly limp and my spirits stand at about zero. Here you have the horrid truth, but I haven't been well for a long time. And I and I have begun to feel like a cornered rat. Richard Curl, his friend, Boris, his um, son, and Boris's wife, Joan, and their six-month-old son, so Conrad's grandson, arrived at um, Oswald's, that was their house, <clears throat> for the bank holiday on August 1st, 1924, and found Conrad apparently well. The next day, Conrad took Richard Curl out in his car to see the new house he was thinking of renting. Though he suffered a sudden pain in his chest, another slight heart attack, he insisted they continue the journey. But when they got within a mile and a half of the house, he felt worse and agreed to turn back. Dr. Fox diagnosed the heart attack as acute indigestion, and a second doctor, who ordered a cylinder of oxygen and said Conrad should have his teeth removed as soon as possible, agreed that there was no cause for alarm. That evening, sensing the worst, worst Conrad told Boris, Quote, you know, I am really ill this time. At 8.30 on the morning of Sunday, August the 3rd, Conrad and Jesse, who was immobile in her bed after yet another operation, were alone in their adjoining rooms. He grasped the command. He gasped, sorry, he gasped the command, here, you. And she heard a heavy shuffling sound, a dull thump and then silence. His heart had stopped beating. 
He had slipped from his chair to the floor and at the age of 66 was suddenly dead. Though Conrad had no religious belief, he was given a Catholic funeral by Jesse, who could not walk and did not attend the ceremony. It incongruously took place on August 7th amidst the crowded and flag-festooned Canterbury Cricket Festival. Conrad's sons, his friends Edward Garnett, Cunningham Graham, Sir Hugh and Lady Clifford, Alice Rothenstein, and a list of other people, uh, Count Edward Rosinski, who represented the Polish minister, uh, all attended the mass at St. Thomas's Catholic Church. At the graveside in Canterbury Cemetery, Father Shepherd read, Shepherd read the Catholic burial service. Quote, so we left him, Cunningham Graham wrote, with his sails all duly furled, ropes flemished down, and with the anchor holding truly in the kind of in the kind Kentish earth. The moving epigraph from Spencer's The Fairy Queen which Conrad had used on the title page of the rover, was cut into the gray granite. Sleep after toil, port after stormy seas, ease after war, death after life, does greatly please. And that was it. That was Joseph Conrad, 1924, age 66, 20 novels, countless short stories, huge influence on everybody who read him. The horror. <laughs> the, oh, that's the movie. That's very the well done, movie. Brad. Thanks, man. Awesome. Yeah. Went I long, but so had to much. do it. Had to I'm do so it. glad you went long. I hope the listeners got a lot out of it. You know where to find Brad. He mans the Twitter account. He is the captain of <laughs> at Art of Dark Pod on Twitter, uh, bringing that steamship forward every creaking inch every <laughs> cruel mile right. you you can find him there and then of course we're we're on telegram to t.me slash art of dark pod what are we going to talk about in the after dark remind me yeah we're going to talk about um when conrad tried to kill himself as a young man and we're going to talk a little bit about um what conrad thought of other great writers who he's been compared to herman melville and dostoevsky Last time I'll make the pitch on this episode, patreon.com slash short of dark pod. You get access to the book club, access to every single after dark episode, which we do for, for uh, every episode we record. The core of the show are these core episodes, which you've just finished listening to, uh, or you're in the process of finishing. <laughs> and we endeavor to do two of these a month. Brad put, puts one together. I put one together. And then beyond all of that, there are the darkroom episodes. We get great guests. If you can find it in your heart to, to chuck five bucks a month or more at this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. So we can continue to do this, not for one more year, but for, for five, ten more years indefinitely. We'll keep going mm. until one of us drops dead. And there's no, uh, there's no mm. shortage of subjects, that's for sure. Well, yeah. Right. And so if you like the show, let us know. And uh, if we got something wrong, let us know that too. We're always, uh, you know, we hear from people. Sometimes we get something wrong. We're very curious. We really love uh, our listeners and uh, just genuinely appreciate it. Brad, we got to close with a question. I'm going to ask you actually. Okay. Even though you delivered it, I want to ask you, what the, yeah. what the hell is Joseph Conrad doing if he's alive now? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think he's, I think his depression I think there was a darkness in him that he never, he was always out running and sometimes was losing too. And I think it was always going to get him. And I don't necessarily mean physically. Yeah. 
I think I think at some point he was going to run out of steam, like towards the end there where he's saying, I'm played out, I'm played out. I don't think mm. that was just about his physical health. I no. think his sort of demons had finally had finally taken kind of their taken their root in him. Um, and I, I, I fear I usually say, oh, he would have still been like when we ask this, it's like he'd still be writing, but they'd be doing something slightly different. I'm not sure Conrad would have. I think he might have. I think he might have. You know, he would have come to the end where he couldn't go on anymore. But I don't know. Well, what do you think? I, I think of Conrad. I'll flip the other side of the coin there and try to mm-hmm. imagine imagine him as a young man setting out to write now. I think he mm-hmm. he would have a lot to tell us now about our time now. I wonder mm-hmm. what he would be focused on. Um if not colonialism, if not the sea, I think he probably would be writing about the internet and probably and AI uh, mm. and and culture around that. I think mm. possibly impossible to say, though, we can only speculate. It, Brad, that yeah. was outstanding. I, I that is probably I, I haven't done I didn't do the research on Conrad. But is there a single source for a fairly comprehensive uh, Joseph Conrad bio, uh, biography online profile? Uh, no. I don't know. Not that I know of. Not not there, that it's, you know. I think there will be it. after I there will be after I post this bish. So here we go. <laughs> hey, great job, yeah. Brad. I had a really Man, good time. It. Please uh, stick around for Patreon. Get on the After Dark. Uh, you know whether you do or you don't. I'm coming. I'm coming in hot next week with uh, kind of a bit of a curveball. Mm-hmm. I'm going to cover the the great uh, Jewish Austrian architect Victor Grun who mm. invented the mall yeah he's going to be our first architect and this is going to be cool because i've already learned more about him than i knew and just what you just said so this is there this you is go cool. so you you went for big air and then i'm going to go on a little a little detour but th- listen as much as joseph conrad has influenced your life victor mm-hmm. grun in a way that you probably mm-hmm. don't realize has also influenced your life very cool and uh i'm i'm excited i got my book it was a little delayed my second book but we're gonna go we're gonna get it done uh any final words on conrad before we take a quick break no i don't think so i mean if people are looking for one thing to read heart of darkness is obviously the one if you haven't if you've already read heart of darkness and you haven't read anything else secret agent for psychopolitical espionage conspiracy paranoia it's great um um and then don't neglect the short stories there's a bunch of really great short stories the secret sharer uh is one that i really liked um so yeah just just do do some of the reading and spend your time with it this is not you have to remember this is a man out of the 19th century he's not writing um and i love twitter he's not writing twitter posts this is a man he's taking his time um, and 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 get, if you're going to read it, get into that speed um, is one thing I would say. Put, put the phone away, light a mm-hmm. candle, get a nice lamp, get cozy, mm-hmm. and get ready to read paragraphs that go on for three pages. Hey, Brad, you know what I got here? <laughs> what you got? You can see it on the YouTube. People can see it. I've got my perfect detonator. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>